The Myth of National Defense Essays on the Theory and History of Security Production Edited by Hans Hermann Hopper Narrated by George Pickering Dedicated to the memory of Gustave de Molinari, 1819-1911 Acknowledgements This volume would not have come into existence without the help and encouragement of Professor Gerard Radnitsky. He first proposed the project to me and established the initial contact to Professor Ragnar Gerholm and Gregory Breland, whose help was instrumental in realizing it. The present book grew out of the proceedings of a conference committee on the subject of national defense, which I organized and chaired, and which was held between the 9th and the 13th of February in the year 2000 in Seoul, South Korea, in conjunction with the 22nd International Conference on the Unity of Sciences, ICUS. Special thanks go to the conference chairman, Professor Ragnar Gerholm, for his invitation and personal interest in the committee's subject, and to Gregory Breland, the ICUS executive director, for his admirable organizational and logistical help. The subject matter of my committee and this book, as fundamental as it is, is rarely, if ever, touched upon and represents somewhat of an intellectual taboo. ICUS must be lauded for its courage to open the debate on a subject of truly vital importance. Thanks go also to Christian Comanescu, David Gordon, Stefan Kinsella, and Joseph Seema for their assistance during various phases in preparing the current volume, and to Llewellyn H. Rockwell Jr. and the Ludwig von Mises Institute for publishing it. Last and most importantly, I thank all contributors to this volume for their cooperation. Hans Hermann Hopper, Las Vegas, Nevada, January 2003. Introduction In the American Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson affirmed these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That, whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and, accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is in their right, it is in their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. More than 200 years after the Declaration of Independence, it seems appropriate to raise the question whether governments have in fact done what they were designed to do, or if experience or theory has provided us with grounds to consider other, possibly more effective guards for our future security. 
The present volume aims to provide an answer to this fundamental question. In fact, the question has recently assumed new urgency through the events of September the 11th, 2001. Governments are supposed to protect us from terrorism. Yet, what has been the U.S. government's role in the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon? The U.S. government commands a defense budget of $400 billion per annum, a sum equal to the combined annual defense budgets of the next 24 biggest government spenders. It employs a worldwide network of spies and informants. However, it was unable to prevent commercial airliners from being hijacked and used as missiles against prominent civilian and military targets. Worse, the U.S. government did not only fail to prevent the disaster of September the 11th; it actually contributed to the likelihood of such an event. In pursuing an interventionist foreign policy, taking the form of economic sanctions, troops stationed in more than 100 countries, relentless bombings, propping up despotic regimes, taking sides in irresolvable land and ethnic disputes, and otherwise attempting political and military management of whole areas of the globe, the government provided the very motivation for foreign terrorists and made the U.S. their prime target. Moreover, how was it possible that men armed with no more than box cutters could inflict the terrible damage they did? Obviously, this was possible only because the government prohibited airlines and pilots from protecting their own property by force of arms, thus rendering every commercial airline vulnerable and unprotected against hijackers. A fifty-dollar pistol in the cockpit could have done what four hundred billion dollars in the hands of the government were unable to do. And what was the lesson drawn from such failures? In the aftermath of the events, the U.S. foreign policy became even more aggressively interventionist and threatening. The U.S. military overthrew the Afghani government that was said to be harboring the terrorist mastermind Osama bin Laden. In the course of this, thousands of innocent civilians were killed as collateral damage. But Bin Laden has not been captured or punished to this day, almost two years after the attacks. And once a U.S.-approved government had been installed in Afghanistan, the U.S. government turned its attention to wars against other enemy states, in particular Iraq, with its huge oil reserves. The U.S. refused even to rule out the employment of nuclear weapons against enemy regimes. No doubt, this policy helped to further increase the number of recruits into the ranks of people willing to use extreme violence against the U.S. as a means of retribution. At the same time, domestically, the government used the crisis which it had helped to provoke to further increase its own power at the expense of the people's liberty and property rights. Government spending, in particular on defense, was vastly increased, and a new government department for homeland security was created. Airport security was taken over by the federal government and government bureaucrats, and decisive steps towards complete electronic citizen surveillance were taken. Truly, then, the current events cry out for a systematic rethinking of the issues of defense and security, and the respective roles of government, the market, and society in providing them. Two of the most widely accepted propositions among political economists and political philosophers are the following: first, every monopoly is bad from the viewpoint of consumers. 
Monopoly here is understood in its classical sense as an exclusive privilege granted to a single producer of a commodity or service, i.e. as the absence of free entry into a particular line of production. In other words, only one agency, A, may produce a given good, X. Any such monopolist is bad for consumers because, shielded from potential new entrants into his area of production, the price of his product, X, will be higher and the quality of X lower than otherwise. Second, the production of security must be undertaken by, and is the primary function of, government. Here, security is understood in the wide sense adopted by the Declaration of Independence as the protection of life, property, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from domestic violence, crime, as well as external foreign aggression, war. In accordance with generally accepted terminology, government is defined as a territorial monopoly of law and order, the ultimate decision-maker and enforcer. That both propositions are clearly incompatible has rarely caused concern among economists and philosophers, and insofar as it has, the typical reaction has been one of taking exception to the first proposition rather than the second. The contributors to this volume challenge this orthodox view and offer both empirical and theoretical support to the contrary thesis that it is the second proposition, not the first, which is false and ought to be rejected. As far as empirical, historical evidence is concerned, proponents of the orthodox view face obvious embarrassment. The recently ended 20th century was characterized by a level of human rights violations unparalleled in all of human history. In his book, Death by Government, Rudolf Rummel estimates some 170 million government-caused deaths in the 20th century. The historical evidence appears to indicate that, rather than protecting life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of their citizens, governments must be considered the greatest threat to human security. Proponents of the orthodox view, willing to compromise the first thesis regarding the evil of monopoly in order to maintain the second concerning the necessity of state government, cannot entirely ignore this seemingly overwhelming evidence to the contrary. If they wish to rescue from refutation the thesis that government is indispensable for the provision of law and order, they must revise the second thesis. Experience shows that some states are aggressors, not protectors. Thus, if one is not to discard the second thesis altogether, its further specification is required. It is only possible to claim that some states protect. Accordingly, rather than faulting government as such for the dismal security record in particular during the past century, several attempts have been made to explain this record as the result of specific forms of government. Numerous political scientists, including the aforementioned Rummel, have tried to show by various statistical means that it is the absence of democratic government which explains the anomalies of the 20th century. Admittedly, democracies go to war against non-democratic regimes, but supposedly not against other democracies. Hence, it would seem to follow, and this thesis has in the meantime become part of the American neoconservative folklore, that once the Wilsonian dream of making the world safe for democracy has been achieved, eternal peace and security will be accomplished.
In a similar vein, political economists such as James Buchanan and the School of Constitutional Economics have suggested that the admittedly miserable record of governments concerning the provision of internal and external security can be systematically improved by means of constitutional reforms aimed at the strict limitation of governmental powers. Both of these explanations are scrutinized and rejected in this volume. As for the thesis of the peaceful nature of democracy, several contributors note that, in accordance with military historians such as J.F.C. Fuller and M. Howard, it rests on a rather selective or even erroneous reading of the historical record. Let me mention only two such misreadings. First, how can this thesis account for a seemingly obvious counterexample, such as the American War of Southern Independence, the war between the states, with its until then unparalleled brutality? Answer, by excluding and ignoring it or downplaying its significance. Second, proponents of the peaceful democracy thesis typically support their claim by classifying traditional monarchies and modern dictatorships as autocratic and non-democratic, and contrasting both to what they classify as genuine democracies. Yet historically, and if any grouping must be done at all, it is democracy and dictatorship that should be grouped together. Traditional monarchies only resemble dictatorships superficially. Instead, dictatorships are a regular outgrowth of mass democracy. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao were distinctly democratic rulers as compared to the former emperors of Russia, Germany, Austria, and China. Indeed, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, and almost all of their smaller and lesser-known successors, were outspoken in their hatred for everything monarchic and aristocratic. They knew that they owed their rise to democratic mass politics, and they employed democratic politics, elections, referenda, mass rallies, mass media propaganda, etc., throughout their reign. On the other hand, as for the proposal of constitutional reforms aimed at limiting state power, several contributors to this volume explain that any such attempts must be considered futile and ineffective, if and insofar as the interpretation and the enforcement of such limitations is left to government itself or to one of its organs, such as a governmental supreme court. See more on this below. More convincing to the contributors of this volume appears a third thesis advanced by the economist Ludwig von Mises, which may be considered a combination of the above. Mises asserts that, in order to fulfill its primary function as a provider of security, a government must satisfy two conditions. It must be democratically organized, and it must permit unlimited secession in principle. Quote, whenever the inhabitants of a particular territory, whether it be a single village, a whole district, or a series of adjacent districts, make it known by a freely conducted plebiscite that they no longer wish to remain united to the state to which they belong at the time, their wishes are to be respected and complied with. This is the only feasible and effective way of preventing revolutions and international wars. One obvious attraction of this thesis is that it can account for the events of the American War of Southern Independence. 
Thus, until 1861, it was generally taken for granted in the U.S. that a right to secession existed and that the Union was nothing but a voluntary association of independent states. But when the desire for the unrestricted right to secede was no longer respected, the state turned from protector to aggressor. Mises's thesis is accorded considerable attention in this volume, and the role of secession as a means for limiting or escaping government depredation is emphasized repeatedly. However, in requiring a protective state to allow unlimited secession from its jurisdiction, Mises's explanation essentially renders the state a voluntary membership organization with taxes amounting to voluntarily paid or withheld membership dues. With an unlimited right to secession, even at the level of individual households, the government is no longer a state, but a club. Hence, strictly speaking, Mises's thesis must be considered a rejection of Proposition 2, rather than merely its revision. The contributors to this volume concur with this judgment, not only for empirical reasons, but even more so for theoretical ones. Every attempt to explain the dismal performance of governments, states, qua providers of security, as inherent in the nature of state government, must begin with a precise definition of state government, the state. The definition of the state adopted throughout this volume is uncontroversial. It corresponds closely to that proposed by Thomas Hobbes, and adopted to this day by countless political philosophers and economists. Briefly, Hobbes argued that, in the state of nature, men would constantly be at each other's throats. Homo homini lupus est. Each individual, left to his own devices and provisions, would spend too little on his own defense. Hence, permanent interpersonal warfare would result. The solution to this presumably intolerable situation, according to Hobbes and his followers, is the institution of a state government. In order to institute peaceful cooperation, security, among themselves, two individuals, A and B, require a third independent party, S, as ultimate judge and peacemaker. However, this third party, S, is not just another individual, and the good provided by S, that of security, is not just another private good. Rather, S is a sovereign and has as such two unique powers. On the one hand, S can insist that his subjects, A and B, not seek protection from anyone but him. That is, S is a compulsory territorial monopolist of protection and ultimate decision-making, jurisdiction. On the other hand, S can determine unilaterally, without unanimous consent, how much A and B must spend on their own security. That is, S has the power to impose taxes in order to provide security collectively. Based on this definition of government as a compulsory territorial monopolist of protection and jurisdiction, equipped with the power to tax without unanimous consent, the contributors to this volume argue that, regardless of whether such a government is a monarchy, a democracy, or a dictatorship, any notion of limiting its power and safeguarding individual life, liberty, and property must be deemed illusory. Under monopolistic auspices, the price of justice and protection must rise, and its quality must fall. 
A tax-funded protection agency, it is pointed out, is a contradiction in terms. It is an expropriating property protector and can only lead to ever more taxes and less protection. In fact, even if a state limited its activities exclusively to the protection of life, liberty, and property, as a protective state a la Jefferson would do, the further question of how much security to provide would arise. Motivated, like everyone else, by self-interest and the disutility of labor, but with the unique power to tax without consent, a government's answer will always be the same, to maximize expenditures on protection, and almost all of a nation's wealth can be consumed by the costs of protection, and at the same time to minimize the production of protection. Furthermore, a monopoly of jurisdiction must lead to a deterioration in the quality of justice and protection. If one can appeal only to the state for justice and protection, justice and protection will be distorted in favor of government, constitutions and supreme courts notwithstanding. After all, constitutions and supreme courts are state constitutions and courts, and whatever limitations to government action they might contain is determined by agents of the very same institution. Accordingly, the definitions of life, liberty, and property, and their protection will continually be altered, and the range of jurisdiction expanded to the state's advantage. The first person to provide a systematic explanation of the apparent failure of governments as security producers along the above-sketched lines was Gustave de Molinari, 1818-1912, a prominent Belgian-born French economist, student of Jean-Baptiste Say, and teacher of Vilfredo Pareto, and for several decades the editor of the Journal des Economistes, the professional journal of the French Economic Association. De Molinari's central argument was laid out in his article The Production of Security of February 1849. The argument is worth quoting because of its theoretical rigor and its seemingly visionary foresight. Quote, if there is one well-established truth in political economy, it is this, that, in all cases, for all commodities that serve to provide for the tangible or intangible needs of consumers, it is in the consumer's best interest that labor and trade remain free, because the freedom of labor and trade have, as their necessary and permanent result, the maximum reduction of price. And this that the interests of the consumer of any commodity whatsoever should always prevail over the interests of the producer. Now, in pursuing these principles, one arrives at this rigorous conclusion, that the production of security should, in the interests of the consumers of this intangible commodity, remain subject to the law of free competition. Whence it follows that no government should have the right to prevent another government from going into competition with it, or require consumers of security to come exclusively to it for this commodity. Either this is logically true, or else the principles on which economic science is based are invalid. End quote. De Molinari then predicted what would happen if the production of security is monopolized. Quote, if, on the contrary, the consumer is not free to buy security wherever he pleases, you forthwith see open up a large profession dedicated to arbitrariness and bad management. 
Justice becomes slow and costly. The police vexatious. Individual liberty is no longer respected. The price of security is abusively inflated and inequitably apportioned according to the power and influence of this or that class of consumers. End quote. Nearly all contributors to this volume pay explicit tribute to Molinari's path-breaking theoretical insight. Hence, the present volume is dedicated to the memory of Gustave de Molinari. If Molinari's explanation of the dismal performance of government as security provider by the nature of government qua compulsory territorial monopolist of law and order is accepted, however, then the question of alternatives arises. Accordingly, the bulk of this volume consists of contributions to this quest for private and voluntary market-produced alternatives to the failed and fundamentally flawed system of state protection. How could and would an alternative system of freely competing security producers work? Based on historical experience and economic logic, how effective are private alternatives such as mercenaries, guerrillas, militias, partisans, and privateers? What are the consequences of free proliferation of weapons, in particular of nuclear arms? What is the role of ideology and public opinion in defense and war? What type of good is defense, a private or a public good? Can protective agencies be provided by freely competing and financed insurance agencies? How could the logic of competitive insurance protection differ from that of monopolistic state protection? How can the transition from a system of monopolistic to competitive security production be achieved? What is the role of secession in this process? How can state-free societies, natural orders, possibly defend themselves against state attacks and invasions? These are the central questions addressed and answered in the present volume by an international assembly of contributors from philosophy, economics, history, sociology, and political science. The contributors to Section 1 on state-making and war-making set the stage historically and conceptually. Marco Bassani and Carlo Lottieri locate the topic and theme of the volume in history and in the history of political thought. They emphasize the historical modernity of the institution of a state, States have not always existed, and direct particular attention to medieval feudal Europe as an example of a society without state, from which valuable insights regarding the present and its possible paths of transformation can be gained. They explain the ideological revolution associated with such names as Machiavelli, Bodin, Hobbes, and Rousseau that supported and led up to the rise of the state. They review the rise of a liberal, libertarian, ideological opposition to statism, associated in particular with the names of Molinari in the 19th century and Rothbard in the 20th. They note the importance of European realism, i.e. the elitist social theorists such as G. Mosca, V. Pareto, and R. Michels in Italy, and Carl Schmitt in Germany, for a correct understanding of the non-neutral nature of the state and sovereignty. And they explore the prospects for liberty and protection in the current world torn between a tendency toward political centralization 
a one-world order, and an opposite tendency toward decentralization and secession. Murray N. Rothbard, 1926-1995, the author of the second contribution to Section 1, is the most important 20th-century disciple of Molinari. In synthesizing Molinari's monopoly, or rather anti-monopoly theory, with Ludwig von Mises's neo-Austrian system of free market economics, praxeology, and natural law ethics, Rothbard created a grand new anti-statist theoretical system of Austro-libertarianism. As they were by Molinari, most contributors to this volume have been profoundly influenced by Rothbard and his system. In his contribution to this volume, published originally in 1963 and reprinted here with the permission of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, Rothbard introduces the conceptual and terminological distinctions fundamental to all of the following. He clarifies the meaning of property, aggression, crime, self-defense, punishment, state, peace, war, just and unjust, revolution, imperialism, neutrality, and isolationism, and he explains the inherently aggressive nature of the state, i.e. the indissoluble link between war-making and state-making. The contributions to Section 2 focus on the subject of government forms, war, and strategy. Eric von kunult Ledin, 1909-1999, in the last article completed before his death, presents a sweeping portrait of European history and the role of monarchy and Christian kings. In the European-Christian worldview, the king was seen as part of a natural, quasi-familial, hierarchical, or vertical social order, of God the Father in heaven, the Holy Father in Rome, the King as Father of the Fatherland, and the Father as the King in the Family. He describes the gradual deconstruction of this vertical worldview and its displacement beginning with the French Revolution and completed in World Wars I and II by a new egalitarian or horizontal outlook incompatible with monarchy and kings. He identifies democracy, majority rule, socialism, international and national, and popular dictatorship as expressions of this new horizontal worldview. Furthermore, he provides ample historical illustration of how the transformation from monarchy to democracy changed the conduct of war from limited warfare to total war. Gerard Radnitsky, in his wide-ranging essay, bolsters Kunult Ledin's case against democracy. Following Antony de Yassai, Radnitsky begins with a detailed analysis of the economics and politics of majoritarian democracy and refutes as illusory and impossible the claims of constitutional economists such as James Buchanan. A discussion of the thesis, Democracies are more peaceful, occupies the centre of his chapter. Based on analytical considerations and detailed historical evidence, Radnitsky rejects the thesis. Further, he identifies the thesis that democracies do not make war with each other as a cornerstone of the New World Order crowd and U.S. imperialism and hegemony. 
He concludes with a few game-theoretical considerations regarding the possibility of private defense coalitions and some remarks on the likelihood of the decline and demise of the state. Bertrand Le Menissier provides an economic conceptual and formalistic game-theoretical explanation of the effects and prospects of government policies and treaties concerning the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. In accordance with standard economic cartel theory, Le Menissier argues that any such agreements are bound to fail due to external and internal pressure. The cartel members cannot lastingly prevent non-member countries from developing nuclear weapons independently. And within the cartel, each member has a constant incentive to cheat and sell. Moreover, Le Menissier argues that even if a cartel agreement could be maintained and enforced, this would still be a bad idea. The world is made less safe rather than more so when a single country dominates in nuclear possession and enforcement. The U.S. retains a monopoly on nuclear dissuasion and plays the part of world enforcer, excluding international exchanges for countries seeking nuclear weapons, writes Le Menissier. Such a position is costly and the U.S. has no legitimate claim to such a role. The contributions to Section 3 review the historical record of private alternatives to state defense and warfare. Joseph Stromberg considers the example of professional standing armies commanded by aristocratic officers. He looks at the experience with mercenary armies in Renaissance Italy. He discusses the role of militia in Republican theory and practice from ancient Greece and Rome to the United States and Switzerland. Special attention is given to guerrilla warfare. Its essentially defensive nature is explained, and its role in the American Revolution, in the War of Southern Independence, and in the Second Anglo-Boer War is discussed. Based on this evidence, Stromberg suggests as a solution to the problem of defensive protection, some combination of voluntary militias, inspired if possible by unifying ideology or faith, and modern mercenaries in the form of professional insurance protection companies, both steeped in the theory and practice of guerrilla warfare. Larry Seacrest opens his contribution with a brief discussion of the nature of the good of defense, and argues that defense is a distinctly private good, while national defense is an imaginary good. He then applies these theoretical considerations to the subject of naval warfare. In particular, he provides a detailed survey of privateering as a form of naval warfare conducted by privately owned ships from the 12th to the 19th centuries. Seacrest explains how privateers operated, the legal customs that grew up around them, and how remarkably effective and profitable they were. Finally, as to why the practice of privateering declined after the 19th century, Seacrest argues that this had no technological reasons. To the contrary, privateering died out because it was too effective and threatened the jobs of the regular state navies. Jeffrey Rogers Hummel begins with a discussion of the anthropological preconditions of state formation and the reasons for the historical triumph of states over stateless societies. He explores the reasons, population size, geography, political decentralization, wealth, and technology, for the success of some states and world regions and the failure of others. 
In particular, Hummel investigates and emphasizes the importance of ideas and ideological convictions, of motivation and morale, in war and defense. Finally, he ponders the ideological requirements of liberating oneself of the macro-parasitism of one's own state and the prospects of defending a free territory against the potential aggression of another foreign state. Hummel expresses considerable optimism regarding the effectiveness of such a defense because free societies will be wealthier and technologically more advanced than statist societies, but cautions that the maintenance of a free society rather than a regression to statism requires eternal ideological vigilance on the part of the public. The final section, section four, is dedicated to the theory of private security production and its various practical applications. In his contribution, Walter Bloch argues that to claim that a tax-collecting government can legitimately protect its citizens against aggression is to contradict oneself, since such an entity starts off the entire process by doing the very opposite of protecting those under its control. In support of this claim, Bloch reviews analyzes and refutes the entire panoply of statist arguments, the prisoner's dilemma, the free rider, the externality, and the public goods thesis in favor of national defense. Defense, Bloch explains, is the defense of private property and as private as private property. Last, he discusses the thesis, popular especially in public choice and constitutional economic circles, that states are forms of clubs and clubs forms of states, and he concurs with Joseph Schumpeter's verdict that this thesis only proves how far removed this part of the social sciences is from scientific habits of mind. In my own contribution to this volume, I open with a reconstruction of the Hobbesian myth of collective security and its empirical and logical refutation. I then proceed to a detailed analysis of risk, property, and insurance. I comment on the arbitrariness of national borders and hence of national defense, in contrast to the natural borders of private property and the defense of such borders. I provide a comparative analysis of insurance protection versus state protection and contrast the logic of state warfare to that of freely financed protection agencies. Finally, I point out that insurance agencies, in contrast to states, will not disarm those they protect, and I address the question of how a free and armed society, in conjunction with professional protection insurance agencies, would likely go about defending itself against state aggression. Guido Holtzman, in the final contribution to this volume, deals with secession as a means of establishing private property order and assuring effective protection. He discusses the nature of secession and its comparative advantages as compared to other forms of political reform. After examining the conditions that must be met for secession to be successful, Holtzman turns to a key problem of secessionist movements – defense against the government from which they are seceding. He argues that secessionist defense organizations must themselves be run on the basis of private property principles to ensure that the political goal of libertarian secession can be reached and that its military effectiveness be as high as possible. Though the implications of the arguments made in this volume are radical and sweeping, the principles are quite simple at root. 
In economics, the contributors seek the consistent application of market theory, not its arbitrary exclusion from whole areas of life, such that it applies also to the delivery of goods and services associated with security and defense. In politics, the contributors seek only the application of the principle Jefferson presented in his Declaration of Independence, that people have the right and duty to throw off governments that are not affecting their safety and find alternatives that provide guards for future security. In both respects, these ideas represent a relatively unexplored application of traditional liberal theory. And yet, given the continued rise of the national security state in our own time, the future of liberty itself may hinge on our willingness to push these principles to their fullest extent. Hans Hermann Hopper Section 1. State-Making and War-Making Chapter 1. The Problem of Security Historicity of the State and European Realism by Luigi Marco Bassani and Carlo Lottieri The state forbids private murder, but itself organizes murder on a colossal scale. It punishes private theft, but itself lays unscrupulous hands on anything it wants, whether the property of citizen or alien. Albert J. Nock, 1928 on doing the right thing. Libertarianism has proved to be a force in almost every field of contemporary social debate. The doyens of social science can no longer dismiss the arguments produced by the leading scholars, dead and alive, of this intellectual tradition. Much of what is being discussed in this volume, being a specific libertarian contribution to the problem of security, is part of a broader dispute on crime, punishment, and the state that belongs also to orthodox, i.e. statist, social science. However, certain tenets of libertarianism, which, after all, is also a moral doctrine, render the handling of such issues very different from what is common in mainstream social analysis. While the latter does not question the idea that the state must be the sole supplier of law and order, libertarians take quite the opposite road, as they are ready to explore any alternative to coercion and monopoly in the production of security. Central to the libertarian framework, in fact, are the concepts of the state and the free market as two opposite poles of human experience. Rothbard nicely states this position in Power and Market. On the market, there can be no such thing as exploitation, but a conflict of interests arises when the state or any other agency intervenes. On the market, all is harmony. The market is the subject of thousands of publications of libertarian inclination, with Austrian economics as one of the most important traditions, and our understanding of free markets, competition, and their benefits to society and individuals has been increasing enormously. But when it comes to the other pole of the dichotomy, the state, libertarians seem to be less sophisticated. It is our contention that one of the greatest mistakes of many libertarians has been to follow a simplistic scheme of power, to call state every form of political aggression, and to believe in the perennial nature of this human artifact. 
commenting on a much-welcomed book dealing specifically with the modernity of the state, David Gordon, the semi-official reviewer of the libertarian community, notices, By state, our author means something much more limited than do contemporary libertarians and Max Weber. This general lack of perception of the state as a historically shaped institution is understandable in light of the fact that contemporary libertarianism has developed mostly in America, a country plagued only recently and often inadvertently by statehood. Some views on the origins of the state, however, are bound to backfire against the general theory of libertarianism. If the state is nothing else than political power, if it has accompanied human communities since the beginning of history, how are we going to see the end of such a massive coercive apparatus? In other words, if the state is inherently part of the human experience, why should a defender of freedom bother to become libertarian? Ultimately, if the state is as old as mankind, then libertarianism is just another form of utopia, though of no criminal nature. One of the central axioms of libertarianism is the idea that the same morality applies to every person, whether acting on behalf of a public apparatus or in his individual capacity. Society and individuals must be judged as a whole. If something is morally unacceptable, it should be so for everybody. In Human Action, Mises affirms that the most weighty revolt against reason can be found in the idea that there is no such thing as a universally valid logic. Mises calls this polylogism. Marxian polylogism asserts that the logical structure of the mind is different with the members of various social classes. Racial polylogism differs from Marxian polylogism only insofar as it ascribes to each race a peculiar logical structure of mind. The rise of the state brought about a different kind of polylogism, whose paramount importance for the general theory escapes no one, the division between the mass of subjects and the elite of political rulers. We can distinguish between three different concepts, politics, coercion, and state. Not all politics are coercive, and not all coercive political orders can be called states. Libertarian theory is destructive not of politics qua politics, but of certain peculiar orders based on the monopoly of violence or of legitimate force. The most relevant example of the latter is the political order that won preeminence in Europe during modern times, the one that we call the state. In fact, the moral separation between the rulers and the subjects is a byproduct of the rise of modern politics, that is, the state. During modern times, the state has emerged because of many diverse and unique historical circumstances, but one single moral doctrine has been crucial for its materialization. It is the belief according to which the ruling class is legitimized to act by any means necessary, while the people at large are bound by a set of laws created by the rulers as well as common sense morality. The state is indeed a very peculiar institution, having a uniqueness that must be appreciated from the historical point of view. 
It was, in fact, only during the rise of the state that the previous unheard-of idea of raison d'etat gained ground, both intellectually and practically. Although quite correctly the name of Niccolò Machiavelli is to be associated with a break between politics and morality, the Florentine was only the first of several political theorists who worked to furnish the ruling class its morally invulnerable position. In particular, Giovanni Botero, in his 1589 book La Ragione di Stato, was the first to openly argue that, for the safety of the state, men may legitimately perform actions that would be considered crimes were they committed with other purposes or by people not empowered by such a noble institution. During previous times, however brutal they may have been, the viciousness of a double morality one limited to those acting in the name of the state, and the other suitable for the general public, simply did not exist. For libertarians not to grasp this historical fact would be a mistake of great import. In fact, since the birthmark of modern politics, political modernity being synonymous with the state, is the double-standard libertarians so explicitly fight against, they would be missing a chance to give a sound historical foundation to their own theory. What gives libertarianism a great intellectual appeal, as well as a watertight foundation, is the very historicity of the state. It is useful to borrow the words of a historian, certainly not a libertarian, to grasp immediately the consequences of a clear, precise, and scientific perception of the state. Quote, the state is not an eternal and unchanging element in human affairs. For most of its history, humanity got by, whether more happily or not, without a state. For all of its universality in our times, the state is a contingent and comparatively recent historical development. Its predominance may also prove to be quite transitory. Once we have recognized that there were societies before the state, we may also want to consider the possibility that there could be societies after the state. End quote. The fortune of Marxism as an intellectual force relied heavily on the fact that the socialists rarely advanced a model society. Karl Marx devoted a mere fraction of his intellectual productivity to fantasizing about the socialist ideal society, and his followers focused rather on a never-ending critique of capitalism. In contrast, libertarians have concentrated much of their efforts towards envisioning a future society based on market exchanges, sometimes at the expense of reflections on strategy, how to get from here to there. As for the libertarian critique of existing restrictions on free markets, we may rely on Austrian economics or other traditions depending on one's tastes. But when it comes to the evaluation of the state, one has to rely on the past. It is, in fact, in the medieval political and juridical order that existed in Europe prior to the rise of the state that one could find suggestions for a libertarian future. Before we briefly explain what we consider to be the sound interpretation of the origins of the state, the key to a realistic treatment of the problem of security, let us briefly review the all-too-fashionable schools that still command respect from academic quarters. In particular, two related approaches are unsatisfactory. 
the sociological and the anthropological views of the genesis of the state. One should be very suspicious of anthropological studies of the birth of the state for various reasons. First, because, although non-European cultures deserve all the scholarly attention they may get, at least as an antidote for the many centuries of racism, anthropologists have a tendency to fall in love with the cultures they study and make too much of them. We owe respect to every human being and his or her heritage. However, statements like the following, typical of a certain stream of cultural relativism, are quite unwarranted. Quote, when one is reading descriptions of those who lived in ancient Buganda or ancient Polynesia, images of the Italian Renaissance or Athens in the 5th century BC come to mind, end quote. But this could be considered a venial sin in light to what the anthropological school has to say about the hard issues. To Eli Sagan, quote, the state may be defined as that form of society in which non-kinship forms of social cohesion are as important as kinship forms, end quote. In fact, quote, state building was the process of kingship triumphing over kinship, end quote. While it seems difficult to grasp the different stages of institutional development from this vantage point, the complete absence of historical perception underlining such a postulate must be noted. It may be true that tribal and blood relations must be overcome in order to approach an institutionalized system of command. This simple truth, however, is unable to account for the complexity of modern juridical organizations. Moreover, the timeless nature of the anthropological analysis could be helpful to comprehend some perennial features of human societies, but it proves futile when applied to transient and peculiarly European institutional realities, such as the state. One of the pioneers of the tradition, James George Fraser, asserted, quote, The continuity of human development has been such that most, if not all, of the great institutions which still form the framework of civilized society have their roots in savagery and have been handed down to us in these later days through countless generations, assuming new outward forms in the process of transmission, but remaining in their inmost core substantially unchanged, end quote. Although rarely given full credit, the whole construction of the anthropological school follows the same line of reasoning drawn by Ludwig Gumplowicz and Max Weber a century ago. Gumplowicz was one of the leading exponents of the sociological tradition. He gave the following account of the origins of the state. Quote, the state is a social phenomenon consisting of social elements behaving according to social laws. The first step in the subjection of one social group by another is the establishment of sovereignty, and the sovereign body is always the less numerous. But numerical inferiority is supplemented by mental superiority and greater military discipline. End quote. One element of this definition, the anchorage to European realism, the idea that the disorganized mass will always be ruled by an organized elite, is still persuasive, but his portrayal of the human condition appears simplistic, ignoring largely the complexity of different institutional orders and political cultures. 
It seems to entail the existence of a process of subjugation going on since the beginnings of time. Let us notice, however, that Glumpovich employs the word sovereignty, invented by Jean Baudin in 1576. The sociologists spoke of organizations, power, politics, domination, and so on, but they actually had in mind the state, i.e. political modernity. Instead of projecting a semi-barbaric and timeless condition on Western institutions, as the anthropologists do, the sociologists cast the state image on the hordes and tribes of all continents. This is also the most important ambiguity of Max Weber. On one side, he is one of the authors who characterizes the state model in a totally unhistorical fashion. At the same time, however, he appears to be very much aware of the specifically modern character of the state institutions. For Weber, quote, the basic functions of the state are the enactment of law, legislative function, the protection of personal safety and public order, police, the protection of vested rights, administration of justice, the cultivation of hygienic, educational, social welfare, and other cultural interests, the various branches of administration, and, last but not least, the organized armed protection against outside attack, military administration. These basic functions are either totally lacking under primitive conditions, or they lack any form of rational order. They are performed instead by amorphous ad hoc groups, or they are distributed among a variety of groups, such as the household, the kinship group, the neighborhood association, the rural commune, and completely voluntary associations formed for some specific purpose. End quote. Weber tries to characterize the universal features of the state, but it becomes palpable that only some specific institutions can be traced back to such a political order, and that the family, the parental group, the union of the neighbors, the rural commune, and the like, are not among such institutions. It is true that Weber tries to connect state and coercion. We hold that every state involves coercion, but not every kind of coercion makes a state. However, Weber seems to be well aware of the genuinely modern nature of the state when he tries to depict its emergence. Quote, the spread of pacification and the expansion of the market thus constitute a development which is accompanied along parallel lines by, one, that monopolization of legitimate violence by the political organization which finds its culmination in the modern concept of the state as the ultimate source of every kind of legitimacy of the use of physical force, and two, that rationalization of the rules of its application which has come to culminate in the concept of legitimate legal order. End quote. The book on the state that has probably had the most lasting impact on libertarians is Oppenheimer's. Albert J. Nock and Murray Rothbard, arguably the most important libertarian thinkers of the last century, have taken directly from the German sociologist the famous dichotomy between economic means and political means. Libertarians are usually talented, at least Rothbard was, in making use of an array of different thinkers of Marxist, socialist, and collectivist persuasions for their own purposes. However, 
Oppenheimer is such a chaotic web of intellectual traditions that, perhaps, he is of no use at all. He considered himself a social liberal and put himself in very good company. Quote, Only a small fraction of social liberals or of liberal socialists believe in the evolution of a society without class dominion and class exploitation, which shall guarantee to the individual, besides political, also economic liberty of movement, within, of course, the limitations of the economic means. That was the credo of the old social liberalism of pre-Manchester days, enunciated by Kenney and especially by Adam Smith, and again taken up in modern times by Henry George and Theodore Herzger. End quote. Nonetheless, the author of Der Staat must be judged for what he has to say on his topic. Quote, the state, completely in its genesis, essentially and almost completely during the first stages of its existence, is a social institution formed by a victorious group of men on a defeated group with the sole purpose of regulating the dominion of the victorious group over the vanquished and securing itself against revolt from within and attacks from abroad. Teleologically, this dominion had no other purpose than the economic exploitation of the vanquished by the victors, end quote. The claim is that the state came out of conquest and force. As appealing as this may sound for libertarians, this vision is off the mark. In another passage, Oppenheimer hints that the dawn of the state must be recognized in the division of labor, the simple fact that some people were endowed by nature with a warrior character and physical ability. Quote, the peasants become accustomed when danger threatens to call on the herdsmen, whom they no longer regard as robbers and murderers, but as protectors and saviors. The herdsman has learned to capitalize, end quote. In other words, it was not only direct conquest, but also failed assaults, that gave birth to the state. The best defenders discovered that they could do nothing and be nurtured by the population until the next wave of assailants came by. The warriors were thus the soul of the rising state. Needless to say, to defend and protect other people is a perfectly legitimate function, and if some people are very good at it, they deserve all the idleness they may get. The birth of the state, in Oppenheimer's enthusiastic conjecture, is contradictory. Plunder, definitely illegitimate, on the one side, and the division of labor, clearly legitimate, on the other. Nation and state were born together and are indistinct in the German scholar's imagination. Quote, the moment when the first conqueror spared his victim in order to permanently exploit him in productive work was of incomparable historical importance. It gave birth to nation and state, to right and the higher economics, with all the developments and ramifications which have grown and which will hereafter grow out of them. End quote. Oppenheimer is one of the leading sociologists to have paved the way for a fusionist socio-anthropological model. Countless quotations from Friedrich Ratzel add an exotic flavor to the book. 
we are thus brought into a world where social organizations of the Ovambo, Wahoma, and other primitive cultures should teach us something about the state and its specific features. The Rise of the Sovereign State The Borders of Law and Order The first myth one has to debunk in order to assess the relationship between the provision of law and order and the rise of the modern state is that this political institution is merely a natural and organic outgrowth of political power, as old as the history of mankind or of organized society. Actually, it would be wise to dispose of the qualifier modern. Only the state is modern. Whether we see its cradle in the Italian system of states after the Peace of Lodi, 1454, or in Western Europe, Spain, France, England, in the 1600s, one thing is clear. The state gradually emerged in the course of the 15th and 16th centuries and found its first mature form in the 17th. After a summary of the chief traits of the state... Organization, sovereignty, coercive control of the population, centralization, etc. Gianfranco Poggi affirms, quote, Strictly speaking, the adjective modern is pleonastic, for the set of features listed above is not found in any large-scale political entities rather than those which began to develop in the early modern phase of European history, end quote. Oakeshott seemed to be conscious of this peculiarity of the state when he affirmed that, quote, the somewhat novel association of human beings, which came to be called the states of modern Europe, emerged slowly, prefigured in earlier European history, but not without some dramatic passages in their emergence. For the most part, the territories of modern states were newly delineated. They were the outcome of movements of consolidation in which local independencies were destroyed and movements of disintegration in which states emerged from the breakup of medieval realms and empires, end quote. The second myth we must dispose of is the belief, shared by most historians, that the rise of the state contributed to the general cause of human liberty. In other words, that it has been a progressive factor in the history of mankind. Instead, it must be seen as a revolution that upset the old order, granting privileges, immunities and rents to some, and obliterating them for the rest of society. As Charles Tilley put it, quote, the European statemakers engaged in the work of combining, consolidating, neutralizing, and manipulating a tough, complicated, and well-set web of political relations. They had to tear or dissolve large parts of the web, and to face furious resistance as they did so, end quote. The history of liberty is rather to be found in the attempts to restrain the powers of the state, from the fight to preserve medieval freedoms and community privileges, to the struggle against the concentrations of power in a given centre, whether a king or a parliament. Liberty, as well as law and order, was secured, and in some cases much better, at different stages of European history, when a monopoly of violence over a given territory was simply out of reach. 
Although we are primarily concerned here with the state provision of law and order, one must not forget that the self-governing communities of the Middle Ages in northern Italy and central Europe offer significant examples of a completely different way of guaranteeing peace and security. In the golden age of communal liberty, which lasted in most parts of Europe until the 16th century, but in certain areas like Switzerland much longer, merchants and citizens formed their own statutes regulating passage, immigration, and exchange. In short, everything related to a peaceful and non-coercive self-government. During these times, there was no clear-cut definition of power over a given territory, as there were no borders in the modern sense. An institutionalized power always had an antagonistic counterpower claiming allegiance from the same subjects. The result was that every medieval command was actually nothing more than a claim, subject to be opposed and constrained by an institutional network of competing counterclaims. In Freedom and the Law, Bruno Leone stated that, quote, an early medieval version of the principle no taxation without representation was intended as no taxation without the consent of the individual taxed. And we are told that in 1221, the Bishop of Winchester, summoned to consent to a scutage tax, refused to pay after the council had made the grant on the ground that he dissented and the exchequer upheld his plea. We also know from the German scholar Gierke that, in the more or less representative German assemblies held among German tribes, according to Germanic law, unanimity was requisite, although a minority could be compelled to give way. End quote. It was not only what has been simplistically called medieval pluralism that guaranteed the impossibility of any state-like organizations, but rather the forms of juridical relations between individuals and rulers. In medieval society, the lives and properties were not readily accessible to the king and nobles. As Charles H. McElwain pointed out, this property, which a subject had of legal right in the integrity of his personal status and the enjoyment of his lands and goods, was normally beyond the reach and control of the king. At the opening of the 14th century, John of Paris declared that neither pope nor king could take a subject's goods without his consent. End quote. It seems quite difficult to conceive of a state without the attributes of a state, that is, the possibility of disposing at free will over the lives and properties of its subordinates. Clearly, what was beyond the reach of king and nobles during the Middle Ages is now available to democratic majorities, and the whole story of the state is how we got from there to here. Prior to the birth of the state, the predatory effects of political power on individuals were minimal compared to other areas of the globe or to what happened later on the same continent. And in any case, citizens always retained their exit right. This right kept a check on political power and is singled out by many authors as one of the primary causes for the development of a limited territorial predator in the West. Meanwhile, there was no single source of law and order. The production of security was never considered a distinct institutional affair, but rather a concern of the whole community. 
For several centuries, customs, traditions, and ancient Roman laws worked together in assuring a juridical order. Law in the Middle Ages was a way of resolving conflicts, but it was kept a more or less private business. There was no organic conception of the social body, and thus crime remained a private matter to be taken care of with well-defined rules. In other words, crime was never considered a social problem, a wound inflicted on the collective body. This, in turn, implied that the victims were the centre of any lawsuit. Redress was done from the point of view of the victims, never of a supposedly wounded collectivity. Even when feuds broke out, which was quite often, the families involved were asked to re-establish the public peace, but very seldom were the perpetrators of crimes punished once peace was restored. In a peculiar sense, words as crystallized ideas have consequences. The medieval period was definitively over when, at the end of a long gestation, the word state was used in the modern sense by Niccolò Machiavelli. The Florentine asserted right at the beginning of his most famous work, The Prince, quote, All states, all the dominions under whose authority men have lived in the past and live now, have been and are either republics or principalities, end quote. And the emergence in political theory of the cluster of ideas associated with the state is largely a Machiavellian legacy. As George Sabine put it, quote, Machiavelli, more than any other political thinker, created the meaning that has been attached to the state in modern political usage. Even the word itself, as the name of a sovereign political body, appears to have been made current in modern languages largely by his writings, end quote. However, in Machiavelli, we find little concern for the public peace, tranquility, and the security of citizens. When the word security, securta, is used, it is always in reference to the prince's possessions. Quote, Among kingdoms which are well organized and governed in our own time is that of France. It possesses countless valuable institutions on which the king's freedom of action and security depends. End quote. For our purposes, Machiavelli is important because, although Republican at heart, he saw the king and the kingdom as the protagonists of a new era. From the 16th century, it was left to monarchical absolutism to develop the notion of the organization of power through an artificial person, the state. The novelty of such a political creature was that the entire political reality was reshaped through offices, entities, and laws. The new body politic transcended individuals as well as sovereign. It did not represent anybody. It simply existed and was nurtured by myths produced by historians as well as politicians. First and foremost, the myth of having always existed. As Luhmann has noted, quote, following the proclamation of the sovereign state, especially in France during the second half of the 16th century, historians went to work. The present needs a past adaptable to it, end quote. In this concept of political modernity, the problem of law and order arose as a specific state problem. 
the first and foremost duty of the state toward its subjects became the provision of security, or, to be less naive, quote, the state has arrogated to itself a compulsory monopoly over police and military services, the provision of law, juridical decision-making, the mint, and the power to create money, unused land, the public domain, streets and highways, rivers and coastal waters, and the means of delivering mail. But, above all, the crucial monopoly is the state's control of the use of violence, of the police and the armed services, and of the courts, the locus of ultimate decision-making power in disputes over crimes and contracts. End quote. Modern Political Thinkers Sovereignty as security. The rise of the centralized state apparatus that practically claimed a monopoly of the use of force within a given territory went hand in hand with the intellectual pursuit of describing such a novelty. Quote, the plentitudo potestasis became the goal towards which kings moved consciously. To reach it, a long road stretched before them, for it was necessary to destroy all authorities other than their own, and that presupposed the complete subversion of the existing social order. This slow revolution established what we call sovereignty. End quote. The French thinker Jean Baudin in the late 16th century attempted to validate the power of the king against any other claim and thus produced a work that is considered the starting point for any history of sovereignty. The ruler was offered the gift of a totally new concept, that of the absolute authority over his kingdom, subject only to the divinely ordained natural laws. But such an innovation had to be dressed in old clothes. Quote, sovereignty is the absolute and perpetual power of a commonwealth, which the Latins called maestas, the Greeks arca exusia curion arce and curion politeuma, and the Italians senora, while the Hebrews called it tomek shevet, that is, the highest power of command, end quote. Baudin's intellectual efforts, coupled with the institutional developments that were taking place in Europe at the time, brought about a break with the medieval political tradition. In relation to well-known historical events, Baudin was writing in a period of intense religious conflict in France, at the height of the religious wars that threatened to destroy the country, and addressing social, cultural, and political needs of his time, the French thinker discovered the notion of sovereignty, and associated it with an institutionalized reality. Sovereign authority became the absolute power of the state, neither temporary nor delegated, nor answerable to any particular power on earth. The only limitations to the power of sovereignty were the laws of God and nature. There is no place for anything like a concurrence of the subjects in determining the course of the sovereign, because, quote, sovereignty is not limited. The crucial point of sovereign majesty is that it can give laws to its subjects generally without their consent, end quote. But what is it there to perform? The first duty of the sovereign power is to find solutions for conflicts naturally arising in society. The task is to show that the forces that generated the conflict are unable to provide a solution to it. 
Once this is accepted, and because a permanent state of war is intolerable, it follows that a summa potestas, a locus where decisions must be taken, becomes a self-evident necessity. The sovereign need not be an extraordinarily gifted man. Here we see the modernity of Baudin vis-à-vis Machiavelli. The only important thing is that someone has the power to decide for everybody without restrictions. The function attributed to the sovereign power, not the quality of the prince, will render his actions just and fortunate. It is the birth in political thought of the institutional reality. Some contemporary political philosophers, far-reaching visions notwithstanding, sovereignty is very much a state concept, as in the days of Charles Loiseau, who asserted, quote, Sovereignty is entirely inseparable from the state, for sovereignty is the form which causes the state to exist. Indeed, the state and sovereignty in the concrete are synonymous. Sovereignty is the summit of authority by means of which the state is created and maintained. End quote. It was up to Thomas Hobbes to reinterpret the same category discovered by Baudin in times of social and political strife for England that parallel those in which the French thinker wrote. The framework created by Hobbes has had a much more lasting impact on social philosophy. As Hopper put it, quote, the myth of collective security can also be called the Hobbesian myth. Thomas Hobbes and countless political philosophers and economists after him argued that in the state of nature, men would constantly be at each other's throats. Homo homini lupus est. Put in modern jargon, in the state of nature, a permanent underproduction of security would prevail. End quote. Hobbes accentuated the institutional characteristics of the sovereign power, as well as the necessity of preserving the public peace. In fact, the only times when the citizens seem to have certain rights vis-à-vis the sovereign is when the latter does not perform his duty to provide law and order. A contemporary historian asserted, quote, Hobbes deserves the credit for inventing the state as an abstract entity separate both from the sovereign who is said to carry it and the ruled who, by means of a contract among themselves, transferred their rights to him. Hobbes's sovereign was much more powerful than any Western ruler since late antiquity, end quote. The supreme power, be it vested in an omnipotent assembly or a king, has a right to the obedience of its subjects. Quote, and because the end of this institution is the peace and defense of them all, the citizens, and whosoever has a right to the end has a right to the means, it belongeth of right to whatsoever man or assembly that hath the sovereignty to be judge both of the means of peace and defense, and also of the hindrances and disturbances of the same, and to do whatsoever he shall think necessary to be done, both beforehand for preserving the peace and security, by prevention of discord at home and hostility from abroad, and when peace and security are lost, for recovery of the same. End quote. The great antagonist of Hobbes in 17th century England was John Locke, but as far as we are concerned, only one difference must be kept in mind. Hobbes defends government as a peacemaker, Locke as a rights protector. 
Locke's concept of the state as a man-made artifact for the protection of life, liberty, and estate, in a word, property, puts him in a different class of thinkers. The state is still the provider of law, order, and social peace. However, it is limited by a major constraint, namely the protection of the individual's natural and inalienable rights. This is the peculiar Lockean notion of law and order. Property, the sum of the individual's rights in the state of nature minus the individual right to self-defense, which is forfeited upon entering into civil society, must be guaranteed by the state monopoly of force. Obedience, however, is not granted unconditionally. Quote, the reason why men enter into society is the preservation of their property, and the end, while they choose and authorize a legislative, is that there may be laws made and rules set as guards and fences to the properties of all the society, and to limit the power and moderate the dominion of every part and member of the society. For, since it can never be supposed to be the will of the society that the legislative should have a power to destroy that which everyone designs to secure by entering into society, and for which the people submitted themselves to the legislators of their own making, whenever the legislators endeavor to take away and destroy the property of the people, or to reduce them to slavery under arbitrary power, they put themselves into a state of war with the people, who are thereupon absolved from any further obedience, and are left to the common refuge which God hath provided for all men against force and violence. End quote. The intellectual pursuit of an almost non-sovereign state, or at least of a limited state, bound by consent and natural rights, which is what the work of Locke is about, gave birth to the traditions of classical liberalism and constitutionalism. But the quest for full sovereignty of the body politic did not end with Locke's second treatise, which actually had little impact when it was first published in 1690, and went almost unnoticed for several decades. A very different kind of thought, soon to gain preeminence in continental Europe, was developed in the 1700s by a Geneva-born thinker. For Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Sovereignty resides in the general will, and accordingly, individuals must be forced to be free. In The Social Contract, 1762, he wrote, quote, In order, then, that the social compact may not be an empty formula, it tacitly includes the undertaking, which alone can give force to the rest, that whoever refuses to obey the general will shall be compelled to do so by the whole body. This means nothing less than that he will be forced to be free, for this is the condition which, by giving each citizen to his country, secures him against all personal dependence. In this lies the key to the working of the political machine. This alone legitimizes civil undertakings which, without it, would be absurd, tyrannical, and liable to the most frightful abuses." End quote. In spite of the war on individuality declared both by Rousseau and his Jacobin followers, classical liberalism did not completely die out on the continent. Frédéric Bastiat, in the middle of the 19th century, was one of the few political theorists to revive the natural rights tradition. 
In a famous pamphlet, he stated that, quote, life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have made laws. On the contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused men to make laws in the first place. What then is a law? It is the collective organization of the individual right to lawful defense. Each of us has a natural right from God to defend his person, his liberty, and his property. These are the three basic requirements of life, and the preservation of any one of them is completely dependent upon the preservation of the other two. End quote. Just a year earlier, another French economist, Gustave de Molinari, published an article in the Journal des Economistes challenging, for the first time, the state in its most vital monopoly function, the production of security. Molinari begins by quoting Dunoyer, a classical liberal who believed that a state monopoly on law and order was a necessity. Quote, One economist who has done as much as anyone to extend the application of the principle of liberty M. Charles Dunoyer, thinks that the functions of government will never be able to fall into the domain of private activity, end quote. And then he poses the crucial question, quote, but why should there be an exception relative to security? What special reason is there that the production of security cannot be relegated to free competition? Why should it be subjected to a different principle and organized according to a different system? End quote. Molinari's argument for security as a commodity is simple and very appealing. Quote, it offends reason to believe that a well-established natural law can admit of exceptions. A natural law must hold everywhere and always, or be invalid. I consider economic laws comparable to natural laws. The production of security should not be removed from the jurisdiction of free competition, and if it is removed, society as a whole suffers a lot. Either this is logical and true, or else the principles on which economic science is based are invalid. End quote. His analysis goes on to show that there are two logical, non-competitive solutions, monopoly, the old monarchy, and communism, which he believed was on the rise and gaining ground everywhere. If communism will prove itself to be a good provider of protection, then it should work also in any other field of economics. Quote, complete communism or complete freedom, that is the alternative, end quote. What if someone accepts neither monopoly nor communism? For these unlucky few, there is only violence. Quote, the monopolists and the communists understand this necessity. If anyone, says Monsieur de Maistre, attempts to detract from the authority of God's chosen ones, let him be turned over to the secular power. Let the hangman perform his office. If anyone does not recognize the authority of those chosen by the people, say the theoreticians of the school of Rousseau, if he resists any decision whatsoever of the majority, let him be punished as an enemy of the sovereign people. Let the guillotine perform justice. End quote. Molinari ends his essay with a vision of a free society that, even a century and a half later, still inspires libertarians all around the world. Quote, Under a regime of liberty, the natural organization of the security industry would not be different from that of other industries. 
In small districts, a single entrepreneur could suffice. This entrepreneur might leave his business to his son or sell it to another entrepreneur. In larger districts, one company by itself would bring together enough resources to adequately carry on this important and different business. If it were well managed, this company could easily last, and security would last with it. On the one hand, this would be a monarchy, and on the other hand, it would be a republic. But it would be a monarchy without monopoly, and a republic without communism. On either hand, this authority would be accepted and respected in the name of utility, and would not be an authority imposed by terror. End quote. The Lessons of European Realism The constitutionalist claim to justify the state's monopoly of violence has been challenged directly by the radical libertarian tradition, Molinari, and by individualist anarchists such as Lysander Spooner. However, an important role in bringing the modern state into perspective has also been played by European political realism, and in particular by Carl Schmitt and the Italian elitist scholars Gaetano Mosca and Vilfredo Pareto. Schmitt's importance rests very much on his intuition that, in every state, there is first a political dimension and then a decision which cannot be obscured by the so-called impersonality of law and the super-individuality of orders. Beyond the apparent abstraction of the state, as described by Hans Kelsen and other positivists, Schmidt uncovered choices, interests, and in short, people that impose their will on others. The constitutional thought of classical and contemporary liberalism has constantly tried to neutralize politics, but it has failed. In Schmidt's opinion, the real sovereign is the political group that has the final decision about the critical situation in the state of emergency. The locus of sovereignty thus becomes the political entity, which in our time is the state, and the decision on the state of emergency is the ultimate test of sovereignty. Legal positivism tried hard to refute the importance of this notion, but critical decision-making is paramount in the development of human relations. Therefore, the liberal neutralization of politics sought by classical constitutionalism is simply impossible. When the state, every state, is recognized as a structure of decisions and an instrument of domination wielded by some rulers, political modernity displays itself with no clothes, and one can understand the illegitimacy, as well as the irrationality, of the monopoly of protection. There is nothing neutral or innocent in the power of a group of men that Italian elitists called the ruling class. Hobbes was wrong, as a philosopher, when he asserted that law comes from authority. However, we can agree with political scientists using Hobbesian theory that the state decisions are the results of conflicts of interests and opposing views. In statist societies, where law is controlled by a monopolistic institution, it is force that dictates law. This is especially true in democratic countries, where social life is marked by the competition for the control of the political centre, i.e. the power to distribute resources, favours, and privileges. Schmidt's critique of the hypocrisy of liberal democracy is confirmed by the Italian elitists. 
The latter were convinced that in every political system there is a small group of men, an organized elite, dominating the large, disorganized mass. As Pareto noted, quote, the corruption of the parliamentary system meant that the interests of the majority were seconded to the interests and passions of a small and highly organized group. These were ready to use any means to extend their influence and dominate the country, end quote. For this reason, democracy exists only as a political ideology devoted to protecting and legitimating the power of a minority capable of taking advantage of its higher organization. Bruno Leone adopted political realism and the lessons of the Italian elitists in his critique of majoritarian democracy. In his opinion, eliminating all group decisions taken by aggressive coalitions, quote, would mean terminating once and for all the sort of legal warfare that sets group against group in contemporary society because of the perpetual attempt of their respective members to constrain, to their own benefit, other members of the community to accept misproductive actions and treatment, end quote. In juridical and political philosophy, the hypothesis of a neutral state is often supported by the suggestion that this political institution is eternal. However, European political realism refused this arbitrary identification between state and politics. Social orientations generally support contemporary democracy, defining all forms of juridical organization as part of the all-encompassing category state. A major contribution of Schmidt, as we noted, is his placing the state in historical context, i.e. modernity. For all these reasons, European realism has contributed to uncovering the fabrications of constitutionalism, the conceptual frauds of democracy, and the fallacious idea that the state is an institutional reality as old as mankind. To be sure, Schmidt was the most theoretically sound expounder of the crisis of the state, but he did not identify a solution. Another protagonist of European realism, the Lombard scholar Gianfranco Miglio, tried to go beyond Schmidt. In some of his works, he has explained the crisis of the Soviet state model. This was the downfall of the modern political system that showed the greatest confidence in the rationality of orders imposed with violence. Given that the Soviet Union has broken up, Miglio asserted, the other state systems, especially the ones governed by democratic parliaments, would suffer growing criticism and dissent, and might also collapse in the near future. The state is declining also because of its internal contradictions. In its attempt to appear as a non-aggressive provider of individual rights, the state has created a deceitful contractualism which is continually sapping its existence. From a theoretical point of view, as Miglio observed, quote, the modern state is a construction entirely based on the contract. It has extended into the non-political area of private life. Therefore, the state is historically a complex of services and provisions, a gigantic entity of contractual relationships, end quote. In fact, in spite of its ideological self-representation, the democratic state is an illustration of violence and monopoly unparalleled in human history. It exists because it is the only institution authorized to use force in a given territory. 
However, the notion of political obligation has lost vigor and consistency, while economy and communications are growing, together with the rationality of free exchange, free markets, and free discussions. In Search of Libertarian Realism the force of Miglio's arguments derives from the fact that his speculative theory tries to bring together the par destruens of European realism with the par construens of American libertarianism, although somewhat unconsciously. For Miglio, however, political communities are primary entities, while most contemporary libertarians, like Rothbard, accept Molinari's theory about the privatization of security and imagine a complete liberalization in the realm of law and order. It is not the usual occupations of contemporary states that are the focus of libertarian criticism. Quote, the state indeed performs many important and necessary functions, from the provision of law, to the supply of police and firefighters, to building and maintaining the streets, to the delivery of the mail. But this in no way demonstrates that only the state can perform such functions, or indeed that it performs them even passably well. End quote. Rothbard's demystification of the state is appealing. In fact, he underlined a methodological integration of state and civil society, and pursued a reductio ad unum that eliminates every artificial frontier between men operating within the private and public sectors. In his noted statement of the tenets of the libertarian creed, he asserted, quote, The libertarian refuses to give the state the moral sanction to commit actions that almost everyone agrees would be immoral, illegal, and criminal if committed by any person or group in society. The libertarian, in short, insists on applying the general moral law to everyone and makes no special exemptions for any person or group. End quote. For libertarians, it is impossible to accept criminal behavior if carried out by the lawmakers. It must be condemned just as when a simple citizen acts in the same manner. Rothbard remarks that, quote, all other persons and groups in society, except for acknowledged and sporadic criminals, such as thieves and bank robbers, obtain their income voluntarily either by selling goods and services to the consuming public, or by voluntary gift, e.g. membership in a club or association, bequest or inheritance. Only the state obtains its revenue by coercion, by threatening dire penalties should the income not be forthcoming. End quote. In libertarian theory, Albert J. Nock analyzed the consequences of this situation in the 1930s. Quote, Taking the state wherever found, striking into its history at any point, one sees no way to differentiate the activities of its founders, administrators, and beneficiaries from those of a professional criminal class. End quote. When the state exercises a monopoly of violence and punishes criminal behavior committed by ordinary citizens, it must legitimize itself and its own criminal behavior. Hence, Schmidt was right when he said that in state-ridden societies, there is always a decisional dimension, political and arbitrary, that nobody can ignore and no institution can eliminate. 
Rothbard also accepted the main tenets of elitism. His opinion is that, quote, the normal and continuing condition of the state is oligarchic rule, rule by a coercive elite which has somehow managed to gain control of the state machinery, end quote. His thesis is that an important argument, quote, for the oligarchic rule of the state is its parasitic nature, the fact that it lives coercively off the production of the citizenry. To be successful to its practitioners, the fruits of parasitic exploitation must be confined to a relative minority. Otherwise, a meaningless plunder of all by all would result in no gains for anyone, end quote. So, Rothbard gave us a straightforward explanation of the fact that a minority controls the state, and he often used Oppenheimer's distinction, as we noted, probably the only utilizable reflection to be found in the state, between economic means and political means. Quote, there are two fundamentally opposed means whereby man, requiring sustenance, is impelled to obtain the necessary means for satisfying his desires. These are work and robbery, one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. I propose in the following discussion to call one's own labor and the equivalent exchange of one's own labor for the labor of others the economic means for the satisfaction of needs, while the unrequited appropriation of the labor of others will be called the political means, end quote. If the state exists to exploit the great mass of the population, then a small minority must control the loot. It is here that libertarianism underlines the fragility of modern politics, always unable to justify the different conditions of the governing elite and the governed populace. It is obvious that this situation can only be appreciated by understanding the historical evolution of the state. It should be evident that this institution has been imposed to the disadvantage of all types of social and political autonomy that existed in previous times. The factual character inherent in most libertarian analyses of the state should bring us to understand the important link between libertarianism and European realism. The realists, following Schmidt, consider sovereignty an abstract and impersonal concept, having very little to do with authenticity. Thus, a stream of contemporary libertarian thought trying to re-establish the intellectual legitimacy of a sort of pre-modern past, which the concept and reality of state institutions tried to cancel, seems to us perfectly sound. The key to the rise of the state can also be found in the personal feuds of medieval Germanic populations and the gradual abolition of this practice. Otto Brunner showed that the modern political judicial rationalization implied the disarming of citizens, which was followed by the creation of an increasingly armed bureaucracy. The disarming of individuals and the abolition of their possibility to act in defense of their own rights paved the way for the creation of a monopoly of legislation, which in turn led to the submission of the entire society. But what was this ancient feud? It was, above all, an action to correct a wrong, and therefore it was construed as a right. 
quote, the legitimacy of a feud depended above all on a just claim, for feud and enmity were at heart a struggle for right that aimed at retribution and reparation for a violation of one's right, end quote. Within medieval judicial order, and indeed within their institutions, we see sovereigns and subjects declare war and conclude peace with each other as if each were subject to international law. This link between the historicity of the state and political realism is very important. The analysis of Brunner about medieval feud is interesting also because it underscores the fact that law and society are the result of individual acts. Bruno Leone's writings about the individual claim illustrate the attempt to construe a realistic theory on the origins of law based on methodological individualism. Medieval history offers a corroboration of this thesis. For Leone, norms are the result of an exchange of individual claims, as the price is the result of a negotiation between buyer and seller. But also, the feud solution of medieval law can be analysed as the conclusion of an interaction between the victim, who asked for justice, and the offender, who must satisfy the claims of the victim and refund the damages. In fact, the feud was not an arbitrary initiative. Its essential premise was the existence of a juridical foundation. Without a wrong being committed, there was no feud, but simply brute force, rebellion, and aggression. On the other hand, Brunner showed that, quote, in a legitimate feud, the parties were required to offer justice in some sort of preliminary negotiations, end quote. In many cases, a feud was not simply a right, but also a duty that took priority over an individual's obligation to a third party, a creditor in particular. The strides toward political modernity cancelled the polycentric juridical order without a monopoly of the law, where each vassal could lawfully initiate violence against his own lord in order to have his reasons recognised. As Otto Brunner noted, quote, prohibiting feuds was not a matter of a simple act of state. It entailed a fundamental change in the structure of law and politics, end quote. Of course, some historians are quite content with the category of feudalism, which they adopt to explain pretty much everything in Europe from the fall of the Roman Empire to the Renaissance. We concur with Brunner that this is a, quote, convenient cover for everything that one does not understand about the Middle Ages, end quote. Some scholars have developed historical institutional analysis to show the historicity of the state and the fact that it is only one, and certainly not the best, of many possible forms of social cooperation. There are a number of non-state judicial organizations which, although marginal, are nevertheless important for our historical comprehension of the problem. Typical societies without government that have been studied by libertarians include prehistoric civilization, ancient Iceland, primeval Ireland, and the American West. In the future, we need to look more into the medieval period, and in particular at the later stages of its peak between the 11th and 15th centuries. It is from the medieval, polycentric, and self-regulated juridical order that many useful suggestions could come to widen our concept of liberty.
Also, this world is the very core of Western civilization, while the realities celebrated by libertarians as societies without a state are somewhat peripheral. Prior to the rise of the state, law and its interpreters had to recognize the existence of traditions, ethnic and family ties, and customs and culture. Law was mostly unwritten. It coincided with customs, and therefore it existed in a series of concrete cases that were outside the control of any political authority. It was to be found in the realms of jurisdiction and in the theoretical debates made by theologians and jurists. In the medieval period, the law was far from the all-encompassing instrument of modern societies. There are two levels of law within medieval society, lex divina and lex humana. The latter was never intended as an act of free will, but rather as a constant and imperfect attempt to impose divine rationality on nature and society. In the tensions that united and divided divine law and human law, an extraordinary intellectual work emerged, witnessed by the scholastic questiones. In St. Thomas, therefore, law was quodam dictamen practicae rationis, an expression of practical reason. The greatest effort consisted of finding the strength and limits of the historical laws to be able to recognize laws necessary for society that were coherent with how God had ordained the world. Totar communitas universi gubernator ratione divina, et ideo ipsa ratio gubernationis, rerum in deo sicut in principe universitatis existens, legis habet rationem. Communities by consent, market for protection, and the new world order. One of the more characteristic features of the medieval period was the dimension of the traditional community. The isolated individual did not exist either socially or politically. The intentional characteristics of modern law, as an act of free will of those who are in power, and the centrality of the individual without relations, without history or identity, completely abstract and simply part of the welfare state, are therefore closely linked. Contemporary libertarianism, after decades of oblivion of community, has also developed a tendency to rethink the individual and to emphasize his strong ties within a community. Furthermore, the free market can be appreciated fully for its ability to connect individuals, thereby favoring communications and the development of a sense of community. The market, in fact, allows the emergence of relationships based on trust, this is essential for the quest for a society capable of minimizing the role of violence, like the one envisioned by libertarians. Protection agencies competing for customers could be the means to create consensus and trust among those who require security. This free market for protection, favored by libertarians, would be a prelude to a revitalization of interpersonal relationships. On the other hand, economic analyses of state redistribution and studies on rent-seeking have shown that, in its terminal stage, statist politics is a bitter struggle of everyone against everyone in search of privileges.
the triumph of the Hobbesian state of war occurs inside the body politic, within the borders of the sovereign power. At the beginning of the 21st century, Leviathan seems to have concluded its own parabola in a society dominated by conflicts without rules. Contemporary politics faces a dilemma. Should the state protect individuals as individuals, or should it consider men as members of a group? If it opts for the former, it must ignore identity and culture to the point of obliterating traditions in the name of the Commonwealth of the Republican Values. On the other hand, if it considers individuals as part of a group, the state must accept the balkanization of political society. This in turn implies that power becomes the fulcrum of a cartel of ethnic, religious, or cultural groups that look after their own interests to the detriment of everybody else's rights. Indeed, within the state, each difference becomes an excuse for conflict and contrast. Contrary to the critics of libertarianism, the commercialization of protection does not lead to the disorder of endemic conflict and war without solutions. Once again, the medieval experience shows that conflicts were less frequent and their consequences less bloody. Furthermore, the inability to reach the lawmaking process, the seat of ultimate decision-making, as the former was placed in no particular centre and the latter simply did not exist, made the risks associated with waging war not worth taking. The fragmentation of medieval politics had the merit of making all institutions weak and each army small. As Jean Bichler showed in his famous work on the origins of capitalism, it was medieval anarchy that helped create the dynamism of the first capitalism, both in the northern Italian and Flemish communes and in the markets of France. The weakness of politics was the strength of the merchants and vice versa. We believe that a careful re-examination of the past can be a means of regaining efficient strategies for liberty. The failure of public monopolies in facing crime has already aided the spread of private security agencies to protect banks, companies, and residential areas. It is reasonable to imagine that the number and size of these activities will continue to grow in the future, as it has done extraordinarily over the past 22 years. There are no contradictions, furthermore, between the libertarian defense of secessionist processes, which lead to the development of smaller territorial monopolies, and the hypothesis of a market where protection is guaranteed by insurance companies and private police forces. Both strategies are closely related, because if secessionist processes are able to challenge state control of the territory, they also tend to create new and smaller protection monopolies. These in turn are less capable of subduing their own citizens, thanks to reduced exit costs and to the widening supply of governmental services. However, the breakup of the nation-state, which might be in our horizon, will not be able by itself to secure a libertarian future. One need only to observe what is happening on an international level to see that a new concept of law enforcement is quickly gaining ground. It is within such a logic that we could envision the old nation-states abandoned to their fate and the new statist thinkers and builders bottling the same old wine in new flasks.
Given the great difficulty within national borders, state law enforcement is trying to re-legitimize itself within a new world order, which, thanks to the United Nations, NATO and the like, would want to ensure maximum protection to all our rights. This project is very dangerous because public opinion only vaguely understands the risks associated with the construction of world government. Humanitarian interventionism, which is opening the path toward this goal, seems to meet with favour from the general public as well as from the pundits. In David Held's view, for instance, globalization means that our actual citizenship cannot be defined by membership in a nation-state, and democracy will not mean participation in purely national political processes. In this sense, according to Held, we need to think in terms of a cosmopolitan democracy. What is already happening in Europe is very significant. If present trends continue, the different European peoples, daily wrapped up in conflicts and difficulties caused by their own states, are about to be subject to the authority of a continental superstate without even realizing it. This new government will try to harmonize fiscal policies, not to lower taxes, to be sure, and every other type of control of individual resources. At the end, perhaps, Brussels will command every political decision and succeed in building a new imperial state alongside the United States. The expressions world government and cosmopolitan democracy are only elusive as they suggest a very general hypothesis. However, the success of a global power cannot be foretold, and we will never be sure whether this unified legal order, centralized and tyrannical, will take the place of the actual nation-states. In his analysis of the use of violence which is proper of the state, Charles Tilley distinguishes four different activities of the public agents. War-making, eliminating or neutralizing their own rivals outside the territories in which they have clear and continuous priority as wielders of force. State-making, eliminating or neutralizing their rivals inside those territories. Protection, eliminating or neutralizing the enemies of their clients. And extraction, acquiring the means of carrying out the first three activities, war-making, state-making, and protection. Nobody can predict whether the international organizations will ever be ready to satisfy all these conditions. They are merely increasing their authority and the capacity to control the resources of individuals, but they are still unable to discipline states. There is a certain irony in the fact that freedom seekers all around the globe must rely on the state's unwillingness to comply with the far-reaching political dreams of Euro and world unificationists. The contemporary resistance of the state to this historical nemesis of its own logic, the same one that in the past has paved the road to the rise of political modernity and is now digging its grave, seems to be the only realistic hope for individual liberties. If human history continues the current ominous evolution toward a reinforcement of global political institutions, it is fairly likely that the world order will be marked by a shared, concurrent power between the old nation-states and the new centre. The history of American federalism and the recent evolution of the European Union should provide some useful insights to understand this kind of dynamic. In any case, today's cultural struggle seems clear-cut. 
On the one side, there is the emergence of theoretical hypotheses and business solutions, which redirect an ever-increasing amount of power and free choice into the hands of individuals. The liberalization process of individual sectors and the globalization of markets have favored this trend. Secessionist pressure and the increasing demand for private protection are other signs of this tendency. Against these overall positive tendencies, there is the zealous attempt of the monopolistic classes to preserve their privileges by the preparation of universal institutions created to abolish all types of dictatorship, protect civilians in all corners of the world, spreading liberal culture and practices. The struggle against poverty, sufferance, and ignorance, which have in the past been the pretext to justify socio-economic intervention by governments and the domination of the political classes, has now reappeared as planetary welfareism. And this new statism is aimed at creating a technical, structural monopoly capable of imposing its own wishes on everyone. The contemporary humanitarian liberal agenda, which caused the most recent conflicts, is something truly paradoxical and contradictory. The attempt to justify war by the political classes of NATO was shielded by the championing of individual rights. The crimes committed by those who bombed the civilian Serbian population were justified with constant referral to the civilian situation in Kosovo. Thus, states disappeared, and the war appeared to be what it actually was, a conflict between individuals, groups, and coalitions. War returned to being something similar to the medieval feud, even if it had no moral legitimacy. By refusing to confer upon Milosevic's Serbia the traditional dignity granted to states, the Western allies showed the very nature of their own institutions. In its hypocritical appeal for individual rights of Kosovo's citizens, NATO was forced to ignore the rights of Yugoslavia as a state, and thus to accept the view of European realism and American libertarianism. This bloody episode shows that the same logic which could lead to a world government could also lead in the opposite direction. The return of individual and ethnic rights, even only as an excuse for political imperialism, could favour the dissolution of nation-states, of large continental empires, and of mainstream political culture. Many libertarians have singled out international relationships among individuals in times of peace as examples of contractual agreements, voluntary jurisdiction, and minimal coercion we may witness a fundamental change. The conflict between liberty and coercion will continue to make its mark on human history in the future, and the international arena will probably be a more important battlefield than the domestic one. Chapter 2 War, Peace, and the State by Murray N. Rothbard the libertarian movement has been chided by William F. Buckley Jr. for failing to use its strategic intelligence in facing the major problems of our time. We have indeed been too often prone to pursue our busy little seminars on whether or not to demunicipalize the garbage collectors, as Buckley has contemptuously written, while ignoring or failing to apply libertarian theory to the most vital problem of our time. War and Peace. 
There is a sense in which libertarians have been utopian rather than strategic in their thinking, with a tendency to divorce the ideal system which we envisage from the realities of the world in which we live. In short, too many of us have divorced theory from practice and have been content to hold the pure libertarian society as an abstract ideal for some remotely future time, while in the concrete world of today we follow unthinkingly the orthodox conservative line. To live liberty to begin the hard but essential strategic struggle of changing the unsatisfactory world of today in the direction of our ideals, we must realize and demonstrate to the world that libertarian theory can be brought sharply to bear upon all of the world's crucial problems. By coming to grips with these problems, we can demonstrate that libertarianism is not just a beautiful ideal somewhere on cloud nine, but a tough-minded body of truths that enables us to take our stand and to cope with the whole host of issues of our day. Let us then by all means use our strategic intelligence, although when he sees the result, Mr. Buckley might well wish that we had stayed in the realm of garbage collection. Let us construct a libertarian theory of war and peace. The fundamental axiom of libertarian theory is that no one may threaten or commit violence, aggress, against another man's person or property. Violence may be employed only against the man who commits such violence, that is, only defensively against the aggressive violence of another. In short, no violence may be employed against a non-aggressor. Here is the fundamental rule from which can be deduced the entire corpus of libertarian theory. Let us set aside the more complex problem of the state for a while and consider simply relations between private individuals. Jones finds that he or his property is being invaded, aggressed against, by Smith. It is legitimate for Jones, as we have seen, to repel this invasion by defensive violence of his own. But now we come to a more knotty question. Is it within the right of Jones to commit violence against innocent third parties as a corollary to his legitimate defense against Smith? To the libertarian, the answer must clearly be no. Remember that the rule prohibiting violence against the persons or property of innocent men is absolute. It holds, regardless of the subjective motives for the aggression. It is wrong and criminal to violate the property or person of another, even if one is a Robin Hood, or starving, or is doing it to save one's relatives, or is defending oneself against a third man's attack. We may understand and sympathize with the motives in many of these cases and extreme situations. We may later mitigate the guilt if the criminal comes to trial for punishment. But we cannot evade the judgment that this aggression is still a criminal act, and one which the victim has every right to repel by violence if necessary. In short, A aggresses against B because C is threatening or aggressing against A. We may understand C's higher culpability in this whole procedure, but we must still label this aggression as a criminal act, which B has the right to repel by violence. To be more concrete, 
If Jones finds that his property is being stolen by Smith, he has the right to repel him and to catch him, but he has no right to repel him by bombing a building and murdering innocent people, or to catch him by spraying machine gun fire into an innocent crowd. If he does this, he is as much or more of a criminal aggressor as Smith is. The application to the problems of war and peace is already becoming evident. For, while war in the narrower sense is conflict between states, in the broader sense we may define it as the outbreak of open violence between people or groups of people. If Smith and a group of his henchmen aggress against Jones, and Jones and his bodyguards pursue the Smith gang to their lair, we may cheer Jones on in his endeavour. And we and others in society interested in repelling aggression may contribute financially or personally to Jones's cause. But Jones has no right, any more than does Smith, to aggress against anyone else in the course of his just war, to steal others' property in order to finance his pursuit, to conscript others into his posse by use of violence, or to kill others in the course of his struggle to capture the Smith forces. If Jones should do any of these things, he becomes a criminal as fully as Smith, and he too becomes subject to whatever sanctions are meted out against criminality. In fact, if Smith's crime was theft, and Jones should use conscription to catch him, or should kill others in the pursuit, Jones becomes more of a criminal than Smith. For such crimes against another person as enslavement and murder are surely far worse than theft. For, while theft injures the extension of another's personality, enslavement injures and murder obliterates that personality itself. Suppose that Jones, in the course of his just war against the ravages of Smith, should kill a few innocent people, and suppose that he should declaim, in defence of this murder, that he was simply acting on the slogan, Give me liberty or give me death. The absurdity of this defence should be evident at once, for the issue is not whether Jones was willing to risk death personally in his defensive struggle against Smith. The issue is whether he was willing to kill other people in pursuit of his legitimate end. For Jones was in truth acting on the completely indefensible slogan, Give me liberty or give them death, surely a far less noble battle cry. The libertarian's basic attitude toward war must then be, it is legitimate to use violence against criminals in defence of one's rights of person and property. It is completely impermissible to violate the rights of other innocent people. War, then, is only proper when the exercise of violence is rigorously limited to the individual criminals. We may judge for ourselves how many wars or conflicts in history have met this criterion. It has often been maintained, and especially by conservatives, that the development of the horrendous modern weapons of mass murder – nuclear weapons, rockets, germ warfare, etc. – is a difference only of degree rather than kind from the simpler weapons of an earlier era. Of course, one answer to this is that when the degree is the number of human lives, the difference is a very big one. But another answer that the libertarian is particularly equipped to give is that, while the bow and arrow and even the rifle can be pinpointed, if the will is there, against actual criminals, modern nuclear weapons cannot. Here is a crucial difference in kind. 
Of course, the burn arrow could be used for aggressive purposes, but it could also be pinpointed for use only against aggressors. Nuclear weapons, even conventional aerial bombs, cannot be. These weapons are ipso facto engines of indiscriminate mass destruction. The only exception would be the extremely rare case where a mass of people who were all criminals inhabited a vast geographical area. We must therefore conclude that the use of nuclear or similar weapons, or the threat thereof, is a sin and a crime against humanity for which there can be no justification. This is why the old cliché no longer holds that it is not the arms but the will to use them that is significant in judging matters of war and peace. For it is precisely the characteristic of modern weapons that they cannot be used selectively, cannot be used in a libertarian manner. Therefore their very existence must be condemned, and nuclear disarmament becomes a good to be pursued for its own sake. And if we will indeed use our strategic intelligence, we will see that such disarmament is not only a good, but the highest political good that we can pursue in the modern world. For, just as murder is a more heinous crime against another man than larceny, so mass murder, indeed, murder so widespread as to threaten human civilization and human survival itself, is the worst crime that any man could possibly commit. And that crime is now imminent. And forestalling of massive annihilation is far more important in truth than the demunicipalization of garbage disposal, as worthwhile as that may be. Or are libertarians going to wax properly indignant about the price control or the income tax, and yet shrug their shoulders at, or even positively advocate, the ultimate crime of mass murder? If nuclear warfare is totally illegitimate even for individuals defending themselves against criminal assault, how much more so is nuclear or even conventional warfare between states? It is time to bring the state into our discussion. The state is a group of people who have managed to acquire a virtual monopoly on the use of violence throughout a given territorial area. In particular, it has acquired a monopoly of aggressive violence, for states generally recognize the rights of individuals to use violence, though not against states, of course, in self-defense. The state then uses this monopoly to wield power over the inhabitants of the area and to enjoy the material fruits of that power. The state, then, is the only organization in society that regularly and openly obtains its monetary revenues by the use of aggressive violence. All other individuals and organizations, except if delegated that right by the state, can obtain wealth only by peaceful production and by voluntary exchange of their respective products. This use of violence to obtain its revenue, called taxation, is the keystone of state power. Upon this base, the state erects a further structure of power over the individuals in its territory, regulating them, penalizing critics, subsidizing favorites, etc. The state also takes care to arrogate to itself the compulsory monopoly of various critical services needed by society, thus keeping the people in dependence upon the state for key services 
keeping control of the vital command posts in society, and also fostering among the public the myth that only the state can supply these goods and services. Thus, the state is careful to monopolize police and judicial services, the ownership of roads and streets, the supply of money and the postal service, and effectively to monopolize or control education, public utilities, transportation, and radio and television. Now, since the state arrogates to itself the monopoly of violence over a territorial area, so long as its depredations and extortions go unresisted, there is said to be peace in the area, since the only violence is one way, directed by the state downward against the people. Open conflict within the area only breaks out in the case of revolutions, in which people resist the use of state power against them. Both the quiet case of the state unresisted and the case of open revolution may be termed vertical violence, the violence of the state against the public or vice versa. In the modern world, each land area is ruled over by a state organization, but there are a number of states scattered over the earth, each with a monopoly of violence over its own territory. No super-state exists with a monopoly of violence over the entire world, and so a state of anarchy exists between the several states. It has always been a source of wonder, incidentally, to this writer, how the same conservatives who denounce as lunatic any proposal for eliminating a monopoly of violence over a given territory, and thus leaving private individuals without an overlord, should be equally insistent upon leaving states without an overlord to settle disputes between them. The former is always denounced as crackpot anarchy, the latter is hailed as preserving independence and national sovereignty from world government. And so, except for revolutions, which occur only sporadically, the open violence and two-sided conflict in the world takes place between two or more states, that is, in what is called international war or horizontal violence. Now, there are crucial and vital differences between interstate warfare on the one hand and revolutions against the state or conflicts between private individuals on the other. One vital difference is the shift in geography. In a revolution, the conflict takes place within the same geographical area. Both minions of the state and the revolutionaries inhabit the same territory. Interstate warfare, on the other hand, takes place between two groups, each having a monopoly over its own geographical area. That is, it takes place between inhabitants of different territories. From this difference flow several important consequences. 1. In interstate war, the scope for the use of modern weapons of destruction is far greater. For, if the escalation of weaponry in an intra-territorial conflict becomes too great, each side will blow itself up with the weapons directed against the other. Neither a revolutionary group nor a state combating revolution, for example, can use nuclear weapons against the other. But, on the other hand, when the warring parties inhabit different territorial areas, the scope for modern weaponry becomes enormous, and the entire arsenal of mass devastation can come into play. A second consequence, too, 
is that, while it is possible for revolutionaries to pinpoint their targets and confine them to their state enemies, and thus avoid aggressing against innocent people, pinpointing is far less possible in an interstate war. This is true even with the older weapons, and of course with modern weapons there can be no pinpointing whatever. Furthermore, 3. Since each state can mobilize all the people and resources in its territory, the other state comes to regard all the citizens of the opposing country as at least temporarily its enemies, and to treat them accordingly by extending the war to them. Thus, all the consequences of inter-territorial war make it almost inevitable that interstate war will involve aggression by each side against the innocent civilians, the private individuals, of the other. This inevitability becomes absolute with modern weapons of mass destruction. If one distinct attribute of interstate war is interterritoriality, Another unique attribute stems from the fact that each state lives by taxation over its subjects. Any war against another state, therefore, involves the increase and extension of taxation aggression over its own people. Conflicts between private individuals can be, and usually are, voluntarily waged and financed by the parties concerned. Revolutions can be, and often are, financed and fought by voluntary contributions of the public. But state wars can only be waged through aggression against the taxpayer. All state wars, therefore, involve increased aggression against the state's own taxpayers, and almost all state wars, all in modern warfare, involve the maximum aggression, murder, against the innocent civilians ruled by the enemy state. On the other hand, revolutions are generally financed voluntarily and may pinpoint their violence to the state rulers, and private conflicts may confine their violence to the actual criminals. The libertarian must therefore conclude that, while some revolutions and some private conflicts may be legitimate, state wars are always to be condemned. Many libertarians object as follows. While we too deplore the use of taxation for warfare and the state's monopoly of defence service, we have to recognise that these conditions exist, and while they do, we must support the state in just wars of defence. The reply to this would go as follows. Yes, as you say, unfortunately states exist, each having monopoly of violence over its territorial area. What, then, should be the attitude of the libertarian toward conflict between these states? The libertarian should say, in effect, to the state, All right, you exist, but as long as you exist, at least confine your activities to the area which you monopolize. In short, the libertarian is interested in reducing as much as possible the area of state aggression against all private individuals. The only way to do this in international affairs is for the people of each country to pressure their own state to confine its activities to the area which it monopolizes, and not to aggress against other state monopolists. In short, the objective of the libertarian is to confine any existing state to as small a degree of invasion of person and property as possible. All this means the total avoidance of war. 
The people under each state should pressure their respective states not to attack one another, and, if a conflict should break out, to negotiate a peace or declare a ceasefire as quickly as physically possible. Suppose further that we have that rarity, an unusually clear-cut case in which the state is actually trying to defend the property of one of its citizens. A citizen of country A travels or invests in country B, and then state B aggresses against his person or confiscates his property. Surely, our libertarian critic would argue, here is a clear-cut case where State A should threaten or commit war against State B in order to defend the property of its citizen. Since, the argument runs, the state has taken upon itself the monopoly of defense of its citizens, it then has the obligation to go to war on behalf of any citizen, and libertarians have an obligation to support this war as a just one. But the point again is that each state has a monopoly of violence and, therefore, of defense only over its territorial area. It has no such monopoly, in fact it has no power at all, over any other geographical area. Therefore, if an inhabitant of country A should move to or invest in country B, the libertarian must argue that he hereby takes his chances with the state monopolist of country B and it would be immoral and criminal for State A to tax people in Country A and kill numerous innocents in Country B in order to defend the property of the traveller or investor. It should also be pointed out that there is no defence against nuclear weapons. The only current defence is the threat of mutual annihilation and therefore that the state cannot fulfill any sort of defense function so long as these weapons exist. The libertarian objective then should be, regardless of the specific causes of any conflict, to pressure states not to launch war against other states, and, should a war break out, to pressure them to sue for peace and negotiate a ceasefire and peace treaty as quickly as physically possible. This objective, incidentally, is enshrined in the international law of the 18th and 19th centuries, that is, the ideal that no state should aggress against the territory of another, in short, the peaceful coexistence of states. Suppose, however, that despite libertarian opposition, war has begun and the warring states are not negotiating a peace. What, then, should be the libertarian position? clearly to reduce the scope of assault of innocent civilians as much as possible. Old-fashioned international law had two excellent devices for this, the laws of war and the laws of neutrality, or neutrals' rights. The laws of neutrality are designed to keep any war that breaks out confined to the warring states themselves, without aggression against the states or particularly the peoples of the other nations. Hence, the importance of such ancient and now forgotten American principles as freedom of the seas or severe limitations upon the rights of warring states to blockade neutral trade with the enemy country. In short, the libertarian tries to induce neutral states to remain neutral in any interstate conflict and to induce the warring states to observe fully the rights of neutral citizens. 
The laws of war were designed to limit as much as possible the invasion by warring states of the rights of civilians of the respective warring countries. As the British jurist F.J.P. Veal put it, quote, the fundamental principle of this code was that hostilities between civilized peoples must be limited to the armed forces actually engaged. It drew a distinction between combatants and non-combatants by laying down that the sole business of the combatants is to fight each other and, consequently, that non-combatants must be excluded from the scope of military operations. End quote. In the modified form of prohibiting the bombardment of all cities not in the front line, this rule held in Western European wars in recent centuries, until Britain launched the strategic bombing of civilians in World War II. Now, of course, the entire concept is scarcely remembered, the very nature of nuclear war resting on the annihilation of civilians. In condemning all wars, regardless of motive, the libertarian knows that there may well be varying degrees of guilt amongst states for any specific war. But the overriding consideration for the libertarian is the condemnation of any state participation in war. Hence, his policy is that of exerting pressure on all states not to start a war, to stop one that has begun, and to reduce the scope of any persisting war in injuring civilians on either side or no side. A neglected corollary of the libertarian policy of peaceful coexistence of states is the rigorous abstention from any foreign aid that is, a policy of non-intervention between states, which could be called isolationism or neutralism. For any aid given by state A to state B, one, increases tax aggression against the people of country A, and two, aggregates the suppression by state B of its own people. If there are any revolutionary groups in country B, then foreign aid intensifies the suppression all the more. Even foreign aid to a revolutionary group in B, more defensible because directed to a voluntary group opposing a state rather than a state oppressing the people, must still be condemned as, at the very least, aggravating tax aggression at home. Let us see how libertarian theory applies to the problem of imperialism, which may be defined as the aggression by state A over the people of country B and the subsequent maintenance of this foreign rule. Revolution by the B people against the imperial rule of A is certainly legitimate, provided again that revolutionary fire be directed only against the rulers. It has often been maintained, even by libertarians, that Western imperialism over undeveloped countries should be supported as more watchful of property rights than any successor native government would be. The first reply is that, judging what might follow the status quo is purely speculative, whereas existing imperialist rule is all too real and culpable. Moreover, the libertarian here begins his focus at the wrong end at the alleged benefit of imperialism to the native. He should, on the contrary, concentrate first on the Western taxpayer, who is mulcted and burdened to pay for the wars of conquest, and then for the maintenance of the imperial bureaucracy. On this ground alone, the libertarian must condemn imperialism.
Does opposition to all war mean that the libertarian can never countenance change? That he is consigning the world to a permanent freezing of unjust regimes? Certainly not. Suppose, for example, that the hypothetical state of Waldavia has attacked Ruritania and annexed the western part of that country. The western Ruritanians now long to be reunited with their Ruritanian brethren. How is this to be achieved? There is, of course, the route of peaceful negotiation between the two powers, but suppose that the Waldavian imperialists prove adamant, or libertarian Waldavians can put pressure on their government to abandon its conquest in the name of justice. But suppose that this too does not work, what then? We must still maintain the illegitimacy of Ruritania's mounting a war against Waldavia, the legitimate routes are 1. Revolutionary uprisings by the oppressed Western Ruritanian people, and 2. Aid by private Ruritanian groups, or for that matter by friends of the Ruritanian cause in other countries, to the Western rebels, either in the form of equipment or of volunteer personnel. We have seen throughout our discussion the crucial importance in any present-day libertarian peace program of the elimination of modern methods of mass annihilation. These weapons, against which there can be no defense, assure maximum aggression against civilians in any conflict, with the clear prospect of the destruction of civilization and even of the human race itself. Highest priority on any libertarian agenda, therefore, must be pressure on all states to agree to general and complete disarmament, down to police levels, with particular stress on nuclear disarmament. In short, if we are to use our strategic intelligence, we must conclude that the dismantling of the greatest menace that has ever confronted the life and liberty of the human race is indeed far more important than demunicipalizing the garbage service. We cannot leave our topic without saying at least a word about the domestic tyranny that is the inevitable accompaniment of war. The great Randolph Bourne realized that War is the health of the state. It is in war that the state really comes into its own, swelling in power, in number, in pride, and in absolute dominion over the economy and the society. Society becomes a herd, seeking to kill alleged enemies, rooting out and suppressing all dissent from the official war effort, happily betraying truth for the supposed public interest. Society becomes an armed camp, with the values and the morale, as Albert J. Nock once phrased it, of an army on the march. The root myth that enables the state to wax fat off war is the canard that war is a defence by the state of its subjects. The facts, of course, are precisely the reverse. For if war is the health of the state, it is also its greatest danger. A state can only die by defeat in war or by revolution. In war, therefore, the state frantically mobilizes the people to fight for it against another state, under the pretext that it is fighting for them. But all this should occasion no surprise. We see it in other walks of life. For which categories of crime does the state pursue and punish most intensely? Those against private citizens or those against itself? 
The gravest crimes in the state's lexicon are almost invariably not invasions of person and property, but dangers to its own contentment. For example, treason, desertion of a soldier to the enemy, failure to register for the draft, conspiracy to overthrow the government, etc. Murder is pursued haphazardly, unless the victim be a policeman or, Gott soll hüten, an assassinated chief of state. Failure to pay a private debt is, if anything, almost encouraged, but income tax evasion is punished with utmost severity. Counterfeiting the state's money is pursued far more relentlessly than forging private checks, etc. All this evidence demonstrates that the state is far more interested in preserving its own power than in defending the rights of private citizens. A final word about conscription. Of all the ways in which war aggrandizes the state, this is perhaps the most flagrant and most despotic. But the most striking fact about conscription is the absurdity of the arguments put forward on its behalf. A man must be conscripted to defend his or someone else's liberty against an evil state beyond the borders. Defend his liberty? How? By being coerced into an army whose very raison d'etre is the expunging of liberty, the trampling of all the liberties of the person, the calculated and brutal dehumanization of the soldier, and his transformation into an efficient engine of murder at the whims of his commanding officer? Can any conceivable foreign state do anything worse to him than what his army is now doing for his alleged benefit? Who is there, O oh Lord, to defend him against his defenders? Section 2. Government Forms, War and Strategy Chapter 3. Monarchy and War by Eric von Kunolt Ledeen Modern history is nothing but an inventory of bankruptcy declarations. Nicholas Gomez de Villa. 1. Monarchy is a form of government rarely well understood in North America. To many people in that part of the world, it seems by now a totally obsolete, childish institution. The surviving monarchies, after all, might play a symbolic or even a psychological role, but not really a decisive political role. As a rationalist and as a liberal, in the worldwide and not in the American sense, I am also a monarchist who realizes that, combined with Christianity and antiquity, monarchy was responsible for the rise and flowering of Western civilization, which by now is slowly assuming an almost global character, penetrating the whole world. Yet, modern man's mind is political rather than historical, and is therefore hopelessly tied to the spirit of his time. In the words of Goethe, he who cannot give account of the last three thousand years rests in darkness unexperienced, though he lives from day to day. Such a person, intellectually nurtured by the boob tube and newspapers, would be greatly surprised to hear a British Prime Minister, Disraeli, saying, quote, The tendency of an advanced civilization is in truth monarchy. Monarchy is indeed a government which requires a high degree of civilization for its full development. An educated nation recoils from the imperfect vicariate of what is called a representative government. End quote. 
Democracy is, after all, the oldest form of government, where majorities rule over minorities. It is still today preserved by Aborigines in various parts of the globe. You can find the names of the ethnologists who have studied this phenomenon in some of my books. Democracy reappeared in a more civilized form in Athens, but when Socrates, in a truly political trial, praised monarchy, he was condemned to death. Remember also that Madariaga said rightly that our civilization rests on the death of two persons, a philosopher and the son of God, both victims of the popular will. No wonder that Plato, Socrates' follower, and Aristotle, Plato's disciple, were fierce monarchists, and that the latter, when democracy returned to Athens, went into exile in order to not suffer the fate of Socrates. In accordance with these leading philosophers of antiquity, Thomas Aquinas maintained that democracy was the least bad of the three evil forms of government. Oclocracy and tyranny, he admitted, were even worse. Plato's thesis that democracy naturally evolves into tyranny was also adopted by Polybius, who believed in an anachyclosis, a natural circular evolutionary process from monarchy into aristocracy, aristocracy into democracy, and democracy into tyranny. Indeed, reading Plato's Republic, books 8 and 9, one gets an exact description of the transition from the Weimar Republic to National Socialist tyranny. The historically conscious observer realizes not only that countries like Great Britain, Spain, or the Netherlands, which today are monarchies, went through republican periods. Greece and Mexico, today republics, had already twice been monarchies. Still, the most educational case is that of Rome. If we had the opportunity, given also our knowledge of history, to meet a Roman citizen in the 60th year before Christ and told him that his country soon would become a monarchy, he certainly would have reacted most vigorously, blaming us for totally ignoring the Roman tradition and mentality. Monarchy a return to the authoritarianism of Tarquinius Superbus, out of the question. Yet Caesar already loomed beyond the horizon. Now, if we had the chance to meet with one of his descendants in the year 260 after Christ, and told him of his ancestors' indignation about our naivete and arrogance, he certainly would have shrugged his shoulders. Of course, he was right. But in the meantime... In the meantime, we are still a republic. Look at signs everywhere saying Senatus Populusque Romanus. A monarchy? As among Orientals and Barbarians? Out of the question. But you have an emperor. Ha ha. Imperator means general, and there always have been generals in republics. Yet a few years later, Diocletian, the Imperator Augustus, had a golden crown put on his head and demanded proskinesis, the kneeling approach to his person. Then even the most stupid Romans realized that the Republic had gone the way of all flesh. Tacitus, indeed, had suspected it a long time before. There are still outstanding thinkers who have a deep respect for the monarchical order, for rational as well as sentimental motives. 
Yet even the rationalist has to take the psychological factor into his calculations, or he would cease to be a realistic rationalist. As a matter of fact, the increasing democratization of Western civilization has fostered monarchophile thinking, although only on a rather high level. Thus, it is not surprising that Theodore Herzl, founder of Zionism, had declared monarchy to be the best form of government. But, since no descendants of David survived, the aristocratic constitution of Venice should be studied in the planning of a Jewish state, whereas democracy, as the worst type of rule, was to be strictly avoided. History is already telling us how right he was. This introduction is necessary to understand the relationship between monarchy and war, monarchy and warfare. Yet we are limiting ourselves here to the Christian monarchy in our civilization and not discussing some abstract form of monarchy. Bear in mind that Arche is not Kratos. We have indeed to remember the words of Nicholas Gomez de Villa that, without Christianity and antiquity as their background, Europeans would be nothing but pale-faced barbarians. Nor should we forget that war is a calamity to be avoided, one of many results of our imperfections due to original sin, even if soldiers by and large play a positive role in the New Testament. Many of our saints, from St. Francis to St. Ignatius, have fought in battles. Still, eliminating or at least limiting war should be one of the goals to be achieved historically in our time or in the future. 2. The First Enlightenment produced the French Revolution, the great historical revival of democracy, a sadistic sex orgy in which, indeed, the divine Marquis played personally and intellectually a leading role. It is not here the place to portray the revolution's unspeakable horrors, which, to a broader public, were revealed only in the years preceding its 200th anniversary in 1989. But, in order to explain its effects on wars and the methods of warfare, it is necessary to highlight its character and role in history. It wanted to bring liberty and equality under a common denominator, something Goethe considered only charlatans would promise. Equality, indeed, could merely be established in some form of slavery, just as a hedge can only be kept even by constantly trimming it. In this perverse competition between liberty and equality, the latter naturally won out. Robespierre, before being dragged to notre chère mère la guillotine had planned to put all Frenchmen into one uniform and all French women into another. He also wanted to eliminate all church steeples as undemocratic, since they were taller than other buildings. The revival of democracy from antiquity, with its ideal of equality, was closely connected with nationalism, a term understood by most Europeans as what in America might be called ethnicism, not to be confused with racism, which is not a linguistic cultural, but a biological concept. The basic drive we are alluding to is the craving for sameness, the twin of equality. Whatever is the same is also equal, but not the other way around. Differences, after 1789, became suspect and were to be rejected, eradicated. 
The traditional outlook of our culture, indeed, was vertical. God, Father in heaven, the Holy Father in Rome, the King as the Father of the Fatherland, and the Father as the King in the family. In the lands of the Reformation, the monarch, not the Pope, was head of the Church. Connected with the fathers figured the mothers, from the Regina Coeli down to the queens and the various matriarchs. The new order now was increasingly flattened out until it became horizontal. Of course, not the people as such could rule, but the majority over the minority, and numbers assumed immense importance. Even truth became a matter of majorities, and the bigger the majority, the truer the right answer. The ideal was the consent, the affirmation by the majority, finally achieving almost a totality. Hence also the totalitarian root of democracy, which stands for the politization of the entire people. Even the children, although not voting, are now educated in that direction. It is obvious that the new order could tolerate no estates, and soon the demand rose to eliminate social differences based on wealth and income, rather than only on birth. For this development, one did not have to wait for Karl Marx. In 1794, the popular ire also turned against the rich, and some already were guillotined just for that reason. Needless to say, the new horizontalism also conflicted with the Christian tradition, which emphatically does not stand for equality. In the French schoolbooks, one can read, The terror was terrible but grand, which, in view of our bottomless human stupidity, one nice day one might even say about German national and Russian international socialism. Most of our contemporaries assume that the victims of the guillotine were largely degenerate aristocrats, and that the final benefits of the revolution were greater than the damages or losses the French suffered. Yet, only a few years before the celebration of its 200th anniversary in 1989, a flood of well-documented books came out which tore the mask away from the face of that godless event. Already in 1986, the French deputy Bernard Antony warned the European Parliament in Strasbourg not to celebrate 1789, since it had bred national and international socialism. About that time came the revelations of François Furet, Simon Sharma, and, above all, Reynal Seicher, for whose terrifying volume Professor Jean Mayer wrote in his preface that the worst and most nauseating atrocities could not even be mentioned. We are told that in this sadistic sex orgy, pregnant women were squeezed out in fruit and wine presses, mothers and their children were slowly roasted to death in baker's ovens, and women's genitals were filled with gunpowder and brought to explosion. We cannot continue to dwell on these unspeakable horrors, and should not be surprised that Sard was invoked, in whose pornographic writings long passages are devoted to philosophical and anti-religious reflections. The infamies and cruelties of the French Revolution were of such a low nature that the national and international socialists appear in comparison to these democrats as sheer humanitarians. In the number of victims, however, 
they could not beat them, since the world has technically progressed after 1789, and now offers greater possibilities for mass murder. The 1989 celebrations of the French Revolution concentrated unilaterally on the Declaration of Human Rights, in the shadow of the guillotine, and did not even mention the fall of the Bastille with its most unsavoury details. The invention of the guillotine was psychologically a step in the new direction, the mechanization of swift murder. Yet the French Revolution left behind something much worse than the guillotine, because it was permanent, the radical change in the nature of wars which made this human calamity more extensive and intensive, conscription. 3. The social pyramid in this new horizontalism was now upturned, and quantity, not quality, had its day, for everybody had the same rights, a truly microscopic share in decisions, effective only if it contributed to a majority, and also the same obligations. One could vote for a representative, but in turn, a male had the duty to defend his country, or to participate in its aggressions, which might mean drudgery in barracks, captivity, wounds, mutilation, or even death. Indeed, a very bad deal. The draftee almost ceased to be a real person, and he was dragged out of his privacy and became an individual, a term which really means only the last indivisible part of a collective whole. Hippolyte Taine describes the results of this return to the stage of primitive tribes with these ringing words, taken from his Origine de la France Contemporaine. Quote, One puts in the hands of each adult a ballot, but... On the back of each soldier, a knapsack. With what promises of massacre and bankruptcy for the 20th century? With what exasperation of ill-will and distrust? With what loss of wholesome effort? By what a perversion of productive discoveries? Accompanied by what an improvement in the means of destruction? By what recoil toward the inferior and unhealthy forms of the old combative societies? By what a backward step toward egoistic and brutal instincts? Toward the sentiments, manners, and morality of ancient cities and barbaric tribes we know all too well. End quote. One of the most immediate and degrading consequences of the general military service in the time of war was the indoctrination of the draftee. They were, in their vast majority, innocent and largely even unwilling civilians, whose enthusiasm for fighting and killing was very limited. So they were taught to hate the enemy, degraded to the impersonation of wickedness, ugliness, and devoid of all virtue. This had been different in previous ages, when soldiers were men, gentlemen as well as ruffians, who loved to fight and offered their services to anybody who led and paid them well. Prince Eugène of Savoy had vainly offered his services to France, but ended up as the glorious military hero of the Habsburgs, the same happened finally to Baron Gideon Lorden, born in Livonia, but of Scottish origin, whose father was an officer in the Swedish services. 
Lorden, however, served first in the Russian army, then offered his experience to Frederick II of Prussia. Yet, rebuffed by him, Lorden joined the largely Austrian army of the Holy Roman Emperor and defeated Frederick in battle. Such switches were rare in my own time, but not unheard of. Since right into the middle of the 19th century, the vast majority of recruits had only a very scant education. Mass illiteracy prevailed for generations. They had to serve a long time in the army, frequently three, sometimes four years. Those who had bachelor's degrees, age group 18 to 19 years, served only one year and received commissions and became reserve officers. The idea was to have trained soldiers under arms, as well as in a reserve capacity, periodically called to manoeuvres. The loss of time for all was considerable. Yet, if one major power adopted that system, it literally forced other countries on the same continent, in order not to be outnumbered, to do exactly the same. And, since the European monarchies in Europe had painfully experienced the numerical superiority of the French armies in the Napoleonic Wars, as constitutional monarchies were drifting into the democratic cauldron, they too were now victims of a phenomenon called militarism, resulting in the armed horde. England, relying on its splendid isolation, was an exception from the rule, but the United States, politically already a victim of the French school, drafted in the war between the states not only its citizens, but even the foreigners on its soil. Although these could not vote, they earned money, and thus cash was redeemed by blood. Voluntary military service is a different matter. On a lower level, it might rely on the desire to fight. On a higher one, on the fascination of army life. On the highest, on the wish to defend one's country or bring to life a great ideal. In the book from which we quoted Taine, the American author Hoffman Nickerson wrote, quote, During the last century and a half, civilization has recreated the armed horde. Previously a rarity, it has become the accepted instrument of any great military effort. It has not, however, come alone. Exactly 150 years ago, in 1789, shortly after the United States had sought to protect themselves against democracy by their federal constitution, the French Revolution began. From that time to our day, Democratic ideas have come to dominate politics, just as the mass army has dominated war. It is the thesis of this book that the two are inseparably connected with each other, and with a third thing, barbarism. End quote. 4. The 19th century compromise of monarchy with democracy was also symbolized by the fact that the monarchs appeared in military uniforms and figured prominently as heads of the army. The horizontal identitarian order assumed an increasingly national, ethnic character, and the general tendency was toward the ethnically unified state. We were faced by pan-Germanism, pan-Italianism, the Risorgimento movement, and even by pan-Slavism, which transcended the minor ethnic boundaries. 
Hand in hand with this evolution, we see in the German-speaking and Slavic areas the rise of collective gymnastic movements, cultivating a violent nationalistic spirit and manifesting themselves in gigantic synchronized performances. This physical training also implied a paramilitary aim to impress the public with numbers. Here we have undoubtedly one of the psychological roots of national socialism. The communists, too, loved synchronized, uniformed mass performances. Horizontalism asserted itself visually. This is part of the 19th century's still mixed transformation. Needless to say that the new ideal, the ethnically uniform state, is more in harmony with militarization than the ethnically mixed state, and also for the development of parliamentary institutions. Mark Twain has given us an account of parliamentary life in Vienna, and John Stuart Mill has insisted that democracy is problematic in a multilingual state. No wonder, since totalitarian institutions need linguistic uniformity. Added to this is the fact that the ethnic majority, through its party or parties, seeks to rule democratically, but not in a liberal way, over the minorities. Multilinguality in a parliament as well as in an army creates enormous difficulties. Hence also the hostility of the French Revolution toward the use of non-French languages in the Republic. The rise of democracy and of ethnic nationalism went in synchro mesh. These two horizontal mass movements easily combined in the name of the demos. It is significant that the armed forces of the Red German Democratic Republic were the conscripted and ideologically drilled National Volksarmee, the National People's Army, in whose name the term people appears in two forms. Yet when the monarchist nobleman Charles de Gaulle proposed to the socialist Léon Blum to transform the French army into an army de métier, a purely professional army consisting of volunteers, his plan, as a rightist, undemocratic trick, was immediately rejected. Such an army could be easily mobilized against the dear people and might develop an esprit de corps, which would be fully undemocratic. 5. We already spoke about the indoctrination of draftees, which, naturally, becomes very important in a time of war. An even greater evil is the fact that, since the recruits are taken from the population at large, the people itself has to be indoctrinated. In other words, made to hate the enemy collectively. For this purpose, governments invoke in modern times the support of mass media, which will inform the people about the evil of the enemy, with little to no regard to the truth. The attack will be launched in three directions, stressing the wickedness and inferiority of the hostile nation and the evil deeds committed by its armed forces, who consist of cowards, a low breed recruited from a fiendish people. In World War I, the Western Allies, being more democratic, were also more skilled in organizing collective hatreds. Taking advantage of the stupidity of the masses everywhere, they could print almost anything, and even the silliest accounts were readily believed. For instance, that German soldiers cut off the hands of Belgian babies. A Dutchman, Louis Reimacher, 
produced in the service of the Allies incredibly nauseating etchings depicting atrocities committed by the German armies. One of the worst showed a naked French girl crucified and spat upon by bespectacled, unshaven German soldiers. Nothing like it was manufactured by the Central Powers. Georges Bonanno described in a memorable book the idiocies of French war propaganda in this period. According to Bonanno, the French were told that the German bodies on the battlefield emitted a worse stench than those of the French, and that the Germans were ridiculous cowards, and did not even dare to interrupt the cosy life of the French poilu in their trenches. It was deceitful propaganda of the worst kind. Yet, during the French mutinies in 1917, whole battalions were decimated, i.e. every tenth man executed. So the war was not so entertaining or cosy at all. Naturally, World War I was no longer a cabinet war between monarchs, but already what the Germans called a Volkeringen, a war between nations at least up until 1917, when the Russian monarchy fell and made America's entry politically feasible. Then it became an ideological crusade to make the world safe for democracy, as we had experienced already at the end of the 18th century, when France challenged Europe ideologically. It was interesting to see how the tensions were different on the two fronts, East and West. In the East, it was still, until 1917, a fight among three emperors, and this was the reason why the old style there somehow survived and continued on a higher level. It was still a war between gentlemen, a fact evident not only at the front, but even in the homelands. In Russia, craftsmen and tradesmen among the prisoners were often released and, until the Bolsheviks took over, they earned money very nicely. Enemy aliens were jailed in Britain, France, Italy and Germany, but not in Austria. My family lived for half a year in an Austrian prison camp, where my father installed and ran an X-ray station, and we children loved the mostly Russian prisoners with whom we played. They taught us the Cyrillic alphabet. Then we lived nearly two years in Baden, near Vienna, the headquarters of the Austro-Hungarian army, where I sported a British sailor's suit with a ribbon in my cap inscribed HMS Renown. We also had a French governess, and spoke French with her in the streets. Mutatis mutandis, something of the sort would have been unthinkable in the more progressive, and therefore more debased, West. After the fall of our great fortress, Bjemist, it was starved into surrender. The Russian officers invited their Austro-Hungarian colleagues to a banquet where they toasted each other. I know of an Austrian officer who, made a prisoner, handed to the Russians his calling card. I had fun once after a lecture in America during a debate. A professor, a real leftist jerk with long hair, dark glasses and jeans, complained that he could not understand my term, a gentleman's war. Of course you couldn't, was my reaction. One can imagine the hilarity of the students. 6. A war between entire nations developing into an ideological crusade, 
the word crusade has near-religious implications, was bound to assume total and totalitarian features. Anatole France realized this very well. The totalitarians could kindle the fervor of their soldiers more easily because they operated in a highly authoritarian framework. This also explains why the German army fought well over two years, 1942 to 1945, in a hopeless defensive rear action. Yet, the hate propaganda of the democracies was partly very successful. Thus, mixed with racist motives, the United States decided to put the West Coast's entire foreign as well as American population of Japanese ancestry in concentration camps, which the British had invented during the Boer War. There were among them U.S. citizens with only one Japanese grandparent, looking like Caucasians and not speaking a word of Japanese. And, after the final mass surrender of German soldiers in May 1945, they were not treated as ordinary war prisoners, protected by the Hague Convention, but as DEF, Disarmed Enemy Forces, and were dealt with miserably. They were starved and suffered enormous losses, possibly even a million. Indignation about the German concentration camps, however, played only a minor role in this policy, because the facts were largely not believed. People remembered the lies spread about the Germans during World War I. Upon entering the age of the armed horde, wars inevitably took on new forms and another character. The idea was no longer to outmaneuver the enemy and just to win battles, but... Since this war was a war between peoples and ideologies, to kill as many enemies as possible, whereby wars assumed an exterminatory character. The mercenaries of the past belonged to different nationalities and, once they signed up, could be employed for different reasons and operations by their employer, or even traded in to another one. He who sells himself can also be sold to somebody else. Since wars had evolved very democratically, from clashes between crowned heads to conflicts between masses of people, entire nations became collectively enemies of other nations. Therefore, wars could at long last be waged against civilians, not only against beleaguered cities, but against entire populations, men, women, and children. And since technology had progressed, it had now become possible to attack the hinterland of the enemy, villages and cities. Aviation had done the trick. The French, pioneers in aviation, made a beginning in World War I by bombing a Corpus Christi procession in Karlsruhe and killing children. But the Germans followed up and dropped bombs from their zeppelins on British cities, and fired artillery missiles from a very long distance, 80 miles, on Paris. Frenchmen had to die, regardless of age and sex, and this seemed all right. Europe had fallen as low as that. Curiously enough, it was the Third Reich, although planning aggressive wars, which desired to ban aerial warfare except on well-defined battlefronts. In 1935, the Germans, wanting a pact outlawing war on civilians in the hinterland, suggested this to Great Britain, which at the time had a Labour government. 
However, the offer for such a pact was turned down on the ground that all efforts to humanize war would make wars more acceptable and would thus be a blow to the noble cause of pacifism. Actually, all important British authors confirm the thesis that, in World War II, the aerial warfare à outrance was started, willed, and perfected by the democracies, not by the National Socialists. German attacks outside of the actual war zone were always retaliations. Some British authors merely shamefacedly admitted this fact. Others boasted of it. Above all, Mr. Churchill. General J.F.C. Fuller stated rightly that, quote, it was Mr. Churchill who lit the fuse which detonated a war of devastation and terrorization unrivaled since the invasion of the Seljuks, end quote. It reached its all-time high with the destruction of Dresden, the German Florence, with a loss of 204,000 lives and the annihilation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Although the Japanese had twice desperately asked for armistice conditions, in April 1945 through the Vatican, and in July via Moscow, the answer was only the infamous and idiotic unconditional surrender formula. The American people knew nothing about this, and during that period, not only thousands of Japanese died in vain, but also innumerable American boys. The hatred generated by propaganda heated up the horizontal collective mentality to such a degree that the war in the Pacific assumed, in the words of American socialist leader Norman Thomas, the character of a militarily organized race riot. The racist aspect of the war received a very concrete expression in a memorable incident. An American soldier sent President Roosevelt a paper knife made of the thigh bone of a Japanese soldier killed in action. The president wrote him a letter of thanks and expressed his hope to get more such presents. This piece of news reached the Japanese, whereupon Ken Harada, Japanese ambassador at the Vatican, decided to protest via Roman channels. The president then changed his mind and promised to give his paper knife a dignified burial. Could one imagine one of the crowned heads of Europe engaged in a similar incident? Francis Joseph using the thigh bone of a Prussian grenadier as a paper knife? Or Queen Victoria, in such a delicate way, the keybone of a Burr sharpshooter. Only a paramount chief of the upper Ubangi might have acted similarly. An even graver evidence of sheer guerrillism appeared in the bombing of a Gestapo centre in The Hague that killed 800 Dutch, or, even worse, the carpet bombing of Le Havre just prior to its liberation, but after the evacuation by the Germans, with more than 3,500 victims. De Gaulle in London was outraged, but the British-American allies justified themselves, saying, we really thought that the Jerrys were still in the city. Thereupon, de Gaulle really hit the ceiling, butchering 3,500 Frenchmen just to get a few Germans. He went to Le Havre for their burial, heading the cortege with the clergy. Nor was there any respect for the cultural treasures of the old world. In World War I, the Germans were accused of having shelled Reims Cathedral with the excuse that observers were hidden in the spire, 
and having willfully burned down parts of Louvain-Lain because civilians had fired on their troops. But World War II was far more progressive, which means that Europe and North America had declined for the last 200 years under populist rule and had reached the cultural and ethical level of Dalmey's Glegle or Uganda's Idi Amin Dada. The raids over Germany were called Baidecker raids because, fearing for their safety, the Allied planes flew very high and emptied their freight more or less in the historic centers of cities, destroying the most beautiful buildings, whereas the industrial war production had suffered astoundingly little. So, the hearts of Frankfurt, Munich, Nuremberg, Hamburg, and Bremen were all in shambles, but not the industrial establishments surrounding them. Some Allied spokesmen explained that one wanted to hit the workers' dwellings, while others thought that annihilating German Kultur destroyed Nazi arrogance. Yet, that blood orgy contributed very little to the Allied victory. IG Farben and other big enterprises functioned to the bitter end. One of the worst and most idiotic feats was the destruction of the ancient monastery of Monte Cassino in Italy by the American army. The Allies had been informed that there were no German troops inside. Since the building remained intact, a hue and cry was raised in the United States that to spare the monastery would mean yielding to Roman Catholic interests at the cost of American lives. Our boys would have to die just to please the Pope. Finally, the military yielded in order to bolster the home front. The Vox Populi should not be thwarted, and a political, not a military, decision was made. The old building went down in fire and ashes. Thereupon, it became safe for the Germans to occupy the ruins, whereas to defend a huge, solidly structured building under artillery fire would have been suicidal. Now, the American soldiers faced an enemy much better entrenched and protected by the rocks of the destroyed abbey. No falling walls could bury them. The Allied losses became now much bigger, and so were those of the poor betrayed Poles who had to fight with them. But public opinion was satisfied. The war was fought democratically. Yet what did some of the American soldiers think of the frequently irreparable losses of architectural beauty? An officer stationed near Benevento, asked whether he had any misgivings, replied to an American journalist, There's nothing what can be done about it. Italy is just lousy with clerical monuments. Most unfortunately, World War II had also another fatal aspect the resistance movement, enthusiastically applauded by the public of the Western Alliance. An exception has to be made for the Polish Armia Krajowa, as well as for Jewish fighters, because the national, like the international socialists, wanted to deprive them of their upper classes, or to exterminate them altogether. With no legal armies for their defence, they had the moral right to fight in order to protect their very existence. Yet, as in other countries, the occupying army had no other means to combat these sly attackers but to take hostages and shoot them. Nations, not completely democratized, did not engage in such activities, and only too often resistors were former collaborators who, sensing that the Third Reich was a sinking ship, changed sides. 
Obviously, the French resistance became truly active only after the collapse of the National International Alliance. There had been a predecessor to the civilian resistance after France became a republic in 1870 in the form of the Franc Tireur, entirely in keeping with the rising horizontalism. One used to have naturally no right to participate in a war without wearing the king's coat. The alternative was to sink down to the level of savages. This was somewhat different in the case of the Balkans, where, after 50 years of Turkish rule, the Christian tradition had been broken, and one went to war collectively, as we painfully experienced in two world wars. First, we had the nationalistic Comitagis, then the ideological Partisani. 7. One of the worst results of the democratization of wars was and remains the difficulty in terminating war by peace, or at least by lengthy periods of peace, because, in a slowly democratized or fully democratic order, having fought with conscripted soldiers, one is governed largely by representatives of the people, by men who do not think historically, but politically. Of history, economics, cultural mentalities, and geography, they know nothing. Moreover, they think personally, not dynastically. What do they have primarily in mind? The wheel of their grand and great-grandchildren, or the winning of the next election? The returning soldiers, too, if they have been fighting on the winning side, want to see the fruits of their sufferings, and yearn for a peace with maximum gains for their country. Mercenaries thought otherwise. They had their next job in mind. Moreover, generosity is a virtue more frequently found in the small top layers than among the masses. It takes, after all, intelligence to suspect that generosity very often pays, while egotism does not. Fenelon, in a brilliant book, exhorted the Dauphin, quote, Peace treaties are meaningless if you are the stronger one, and if you force your neighbor to sign a treaty to avoid greater evil. Then he signs in the same way as a person who surrenders his purse to a brigand who points his pistol at his throat, end quote. Yet, already in the 19th century, in which we witnessed the democratization of constitutional monarchies, we see that the warning of Fenelon was increasingly ignored. The German drive for unification and the Italian risorgimento offered opportunities to annex entire countries and to make dynasties homeless. In this respect, the Italians made the start. The sovereigns of Modena, Parma, Tuscany and the Bourbons of both Sicilies had to quit. After the liberation of Schleswig-Holstein from Danish rule by the German League, the legitimate heirs were not allowed to take over their inheritance. The situation was made worse by the outcome of the German-Prussian War of 1866, which ended Prussia's incorporation not only of Schleswig-Holstein, but also of Hesse-Nassau, the imperial city of Frankfurt, and, by no means last, the Kingdom of Hanover. This was the policy of Bismarck, who had started his life as a typical Prussian conservative and a devout Lutheran Christian, but who became a German nationalist and a national liberal, who, soon after the establishment of the German Empire, 
the Second Reich, initiated as a nationalistic progressivist the culture camp against the Catholic Church. Yet the real break came at the end of World War I, which, as we have said, changed from a war between nations into an ideological crusade to make the world safe for democracy. By 1900, Europe had only two democratic republics, France and Switzerland, a form of government then represented on this globe largely by South and Central American nations, enriched in 1910 and 12 by Portugal and China. The great victory of democracy in Central Europe, its triumph in Russia lasted only seven months, and the disappearance of the three emperors created a new scene. The Democrats expected to fashion the peace democratically, i.e. by the consent of the majority of the voters in the victorious nations. Of course, if we look at the 14 points of Wilson, the defeated should have expected the principles of self-determination applied even to them. But this lovely document had merely been a bait for surrender, like the mockery of the Atlantic Charter. Since the victors were democracies, the treaties were not treaties, but dictates that had to please the voters at home. Since these had been taught to hate the enemy, the dictates were in reality voted for, even if indirectly, by the agitated masses. In Britain, we had the famous khaki election, an orgy of demagoguery in which Lloyd George promised to ruin the German middle class through exorbitant reparations to make Germany pay so that the pips squeak and to hang the Kaiser. George F. Kennan has said very rightly that our evils nearly all go back to World War I, not to the fighting, but to the outcome. I would name four reasons for his thesis. The American intervention, which artificially prolonged the war and prevented a compromise peace. The combination of national combat with an ideological crusade, thus aggravating the issue. The mountainous historical, geographic, economic and psychological ignorance of the politicians who, naturally, thinking only of the elections, wanted to please the voters and the intellectual vacuum of the dear people whose emotions had been whipped up to the nth degree. The bad taste of a Bismarck, who organised the celebrations for the establishment of the Second Reich in Versailles, was now imitated by these clowns who prepared the humiliation of the German Reich in the mirror hall of the same building. There, as in the far more important dictates of Saint-Germain-en-Laye and Trianon, were laid the foundations of the Third Reich and World War II, with an admirable foresight and loving care in all details. Needless to say, the Versailles Treaty did tremendous harm in Germany internally, but it hardly changed the map of Europe. It was the destruction of the Habsburg Empire that made Germany the geopolitical winner of World War I. Bordering after 1919 on only one great power, France, it was now the direct or indirect neighbour in the East of partly artificial, partly militarily indefensible states. As His Magnificence, the rector of Breslau University, Ernst Kurnemann, pointed out in 1926, the time to take advantage of this advantageous situation would come sooner or later. And it came. 
what Hitler actually inherited from these nincompoops who had dictated the Paris suburban treaties was not only an internal situation characterized by the economic uprooting of important social layers and the imposition of an unworkable form of government, but also a uniquely profitable geopolitical position due to the division of Austria-Hungary. If Hitler had had any sense of humor, he would have erected a colossal monument to Woodrow Wilson. Looking back at these happenings, John Maynard Keynes, who assisted Lloyd George at these conferences, could write that, quote, The Carthaginian peace is not practically right and possible. The clock cannot be set back without setting up such strains in the European structure and letting loose such human and spiritual forces as, pushing beyond frontiers and races, will overwhelm not only you and your guarantees, but your institutions and the existing order of your society. End quote. Well, one of these guarantees was the League of Nations, which Compton Mackenzie called a typist's dream of the Holy Roman Empire, and which the Congress of the United States refused to join. Still, there is no doubt that general satisfaction reigned in the nations of the victors, not only among Americans, British, French, and Italians, but also among the Czechs, Romanians, and Serbs. However, intelligent Poles, seeing their country buffeted between Germany and the Soviet Union, remained sceptical. Yet history, always immensely brutal, might have said to the defeated, Since you were disloyal to your better self, to your heritage and traditions, you will serve not emperors, but exterminators, in abject slavery, pitiless megalomaniacs who will force you back to another slaughter. And to the victors, she would say, Profiting from your huge superiority in men and wealth, you have abused your triumph, and have paid dearly not only with men, women, and children, but moreover lost your worldwide prestige and possessions. Looking back to World War I, the old democratic enthusiasm for extending the great ideals of the French Revolution reappears, even at the price of enormous bloodshed, because democracy means to simple spirits freedom from rule, from above or from outside. When a compromise peace was in the offering, the democratic idealists went up in arms, the left hand of Wilson in foreign politics, George D. Heron, preferred even a Prussian victory to a compromise peace, which to him meant aristocracy, the Ruhr barons, the Catholic Church, and the Habsburgs, and would, quote, break God's heart. Whereas even after a triumph of the Hohenzollerns, the nations, quote, still might awake after a long baleful night to cosmic intimacy and infinite knowledge, end quote. Heron was greatly admired by Wilson, who made him his go-between in Europe during the war, and thus gave him the opportunity to torpedo the Austrian peace effort in February 1918, because it would have meant the political survival of the Habsburgs. Yet, if you have conscription, the lives of soldiers are of little value. They are easily replaceable. The same holds true for the rebuff suffered by the secret German right before the outbreak of World War II, the Holder-Beck conspiracy, 
and then during the war of their efforts through Dr. Bell, the Bishop of Chichester, who begged in vain to get the cooperation of Winston Churchill. The Germans had to sign the Treaty in Versailles because the hunger blockade worked like thumbscrews. The hope for a liberal democracy in Russia had been snuffed out by the radical social democrats, the so-called Bolsheviks, and thus Russia was no longer a fit partner in a league of honor, as Wilson had greeted the rule of Alexander Kerensky. The new Russia, the socialist fatherland, had, twenty years later, the delightful chance to start World War II jointly with the National Socialists. Had the European monarchs ever tried to enforce monarchism either in the Second or the Third French Republic, in Brazil after the fall of the monarchy, or in Portugal in 1910? No, because there was no such thing as monarchism. Democracy as democratism is a Gnostic ideology, hell-bent on saving the world. Monarchy is familistic. The family is something natural. It needs no philosophical impulses. It represents no secular religion. Yet, to make the people happy after one's own fashion requires sometimes a little and occasionally even a lot of pressure. In February 1914, Mr. Wilson thought that the Mexicans would be much happier if they imitated politically the United States, which in turn had imitated France. This worried Sir Edward Grey, British Foreign Minister. A curious dialogue developed between Gray and the American ambassador, Walter Hines Page. The theme was the Mexican reluctance to adopt a full-fledged democracy, which the United States, after all, had fostered and abetted in Mexico even before the days they had supported Benito Juarez, the murderer of Emperor Maximilian. And such was the exchange of opinions. Gray. Suppose you have to intervene. What then? Page. Make them vote and live by their decisions. Gray. But suppose they will not so live. Page. We'll go in again and make them vote again. Gray. And keep this up for two hundred years? Page. Yes, the United States will be here for two hundred years, and it can continue to shoot them for that little space till they learn to vote and rule themselves. With that unsophisticated mentality, the young democracies were forced to enjoy self-government, to rave about their new republican liberty. This wording reminds one of the Napoleonic conquerors of the Tyrol and the spirit in which the suburban Paris treaties were dictated. France had drowned Europe in blood during the 1795-1815 to period, yet at the Congress of Vienna, its delegates were received in great honour. The language of the sessions and discussions was French, and France left the conference tables slightly enlarged. There was no cry to hang the emperor, nor was there a public whose animal craving for revenge had to be satisfied. 8. Of course, it would be naive to think that wars in the truly monarchical period of our Christian history were a pleasant pastime. Wars were not infrequent, and the discipline among the mercenaries was miserable. Occupied cities had to pay contributions. Taking booty was accepted. Marauding soldiers were a plague. 
It was only in the 18th century that wars had assumed a civilized character. The fact that the generals belonged to noble families helped greatly. They had the right upbringing, and Europe's aristocracy was internationally related, although not to the extent of the royal imperial families. In judging the character of their enemies, they certainly were never influenced by the mass media. One cannot imagine Marlborough being moved by the editorials in London's Daily Courant, as President Kennedy was by David Halberstram of the New York Times. The monarchs, however, were not only an international but also an interracial breed, a great advantage also to the nations they ruled, because it gave them a certain distance from their subjects, whom thus they could judge more objectively. In 1909, the only genuinely native sovereign dynasties in Europe were the Petrovic Niegos in Montenegro and the Karagjorgovic in Serbia, certainly not the most important or distinguished ones. The House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha ruled in Saxe-Coburg, Great Britain, Belgium, Portugal, and Bulgaria. The Holstein Gatorps in Russia, where the real Romanovs had died out with Peter II. The Bourbons in Spain, the Alemannic Hohenzollerns in Prussia and Romania, the Sonderburg, Glücksburg, Augustenburgs in Denmark, Norway, and Greece, the Nassaus in the Netherlands and in Luxembourg. The Swiss Lotharingian Habsburgs in Austria-Hungary and the French Savoys in Italy. They all descended from Mohammed, from Charlemagne, had a drop of Jewish blood, and looking at the motherline of Maria Theresia, one comes from Cumanian Turk Tatar princes. It is true that the Reformation raised a wall between the Catholic and Protestant families, but it was sometimes broken. In spite of quarrels, wars, and denominational differences, even as late as 1870, the defeated Napoleon III dined as a prisoner, together with William I of Prussia and Bismarck, in Wilhelmshohe Castle, where the Prussian king addressed the emperor of the French as "Mon cher Monsieur Frère." Self-control, good manners, and generosity belonged to a monarch. Here we have to keep in mind that the interrelationship between the monarchs was tightened in the course of the centuries, but they also were not entirely immune to the influences of the historic developments after 1789. In other words, to democracy, socialism, nationalism, to horizontalist temptations. It is even doubtful whether Lloyd George alone was responsible for not saving the lives of the Russian imperial family. The British in 1917 refused to give them asylum. Monarchy had several great advantages. First of all, one could expect a monarch to be psychologically and intellectually prepared for the task. Contemplating the intellectual preparation of some leading politicians for their task, one can only throw up one's hands in horror. Often, their looks and their gift of gab alone get them into office. A second asset is, or rather was, their international relationships and their lack of local ties. Number three is the fact that they owe their position to no party, faction, estate, interest group, or class, but only, to use the words of Bousset, to the sweet process of nature. The fourth advantage is that the monarchs had the chance to act historically. 
It is obvious that in democracies, where the primary problem is to win the elections, and where instability with nicely spaced changes, a sort of Punch and Judy show, is even a matter of pride, a constructive foreign policy is well nigh impossible. Monarchs were in office until they died and left their realm to their sons or nearest relative. They could act historically, not politically, in a way without a time limit. Hence their various political testaments. This has been aptly demonstrated by Professor Hans Hermann Hopper in an essay which likened the democratic process to a small child wanting to get his wishes fulfilled immediately and protesting in tears if there is a delay or a negative reaction. A monarch, as members of a dynasty, can plan for the distant future, even for generations. Yet it would be most erroneous to believe that a return to monarchy, even a Christian monarchy, would solve all our problems. Remember the praise the great monarchist Charles Morat bestowed on this form of government: the least evil, the possibility of something good. Still, a monarch, as member of a dynasty, can plan for the distant future, even for generations. In our time, with the globe transformed into an immensely complex scenery, the abyss between the skyter and the skyender, the actual knowledge of voters and candidates compared with the necessary knowledge is unavoidably widening all the time. And since the required knowledge among those active or passive in the democratic process is minute, only sentiments. Sympathies, antipathies, pleasing and unpleasant factors are now effective. Hence, democracies act like rabbits, jumping in all imaginable directions into unwanted wars, idealistic crusades, and into undesirable, fatal peace arrangements. From their childhood on, monarchs were prepared for their duties. They inherited their profession as traditionally as craftsmen did in the past. The son of a tailor became a tailor, and so forth. These tailors produced passable garments, sometimes bad ones, occasionally even excellent ones. So with the monarchs. Yet dentists, lawyers, cobblers, farmers, and plumbers could not have produced any clothes whatsoever, but only sheer monstrosities. Hence the decline of Europe, lasting already more than two hundred years. Which also means that one should not forget the already once mentioned fact that monarchy compromised with democracy during the nineteenth century and acquired merely a psychological role in the twentieth. Wars, however, are undesirable under all circumstances. The ideal solution, at present a dream without any hope of realization, would be a gremium of Christian monarchs, such as we have in a Muslim version in Malaysia, controlling the globe. Aware of the fact that wars today, thanks to the developments of technology, chemistry, physics, and biology, have assumed a suicidal character. They menace the survival of all mankind, which, so far, has spiritually no common denominator. Neither has the UN, nor really the European Union. So far, it can only boast a common economic unity to become more prosperous and a common defence against outside enemies, but without any aggressive drive. 
Under these circumstances, its coat of arms should be a fat porcupine, a beast fairly safe in its natural surroundings, but certainly not a valid symbol for Europe. Chapter 4 Nuclear Weapons Proliferation or Monopoly by Bertrand Lumenessier Before beginning this chapter, a brief note specifically to listeners of this audiobook version of the myth of national defense. The following chapter contains an extended section of game theoretical analysis, which relies heavily on detailed diagrams and complex formal mathematical notation. The difficulty of conveying this sort of content for the audiobook format has, unfortunately, made it necessary to abridge this chapter. The complete, unabridged text of this book can, however, be found for free in various digital formats at Mises.org. The problem of nuclear proliferation is an old one, dating back to the first offensive nuclear detonation in 1945, when the United States used nuclear weapons on Japan. The problem resurfaces each time a new nation develops nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union in 1949, the United Kingdom in 1952, France in 1962, and China and India in 1974. Israel claims to have nuclear weapons. Brazil, South Africa, and Argentina could, but have stopped development. Iran, Iraq, and probably others, for example North Korea, have expressed the desire to have them. If nuclear weapons in the hands of governments present a real or perceived threat of intrusion or invasion among their neighbors, we can expect smaller nations to move to protect their territory and political independence through nuclear weapons production or acquisition. The French government used this argument against the American nuclear program when Charles de Gaulle came to power in 1945. At the same time, technological and political changes have reduced the cost of acquiring nuclear weapons. Further, Technological progress should make possible the miniaturization of these weapons. Small organizations could someday have access to them. This possible proliferation is currently considered a curse, not a blessing. Why? Mainly because everyone fears that such a proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, combined with advanced means for their delivery, intensifies the problem of ensuring global security, as Degaber Brito and Michael Intrilligator wrote recently in Economic Affairs. The claim that the proliferation of any weapons, small or large, in the hands of ordinary citizens or politicians, is a general threat is, in fact, the first step in the centralization and monopolization of power. It is through the argument that proliferation itself is dangerous that individuals around the world, in being forbidden to own weapons of their choice, have been deprived of the basic right of self-protection by and from the tyrants governing their own countries. Part of the problem is fear instilled in others when one possesses weapons. Imagine a situation in which miniature nuclear weapons with great power are available and affordable for ordinary citizens. I could give the French government an ultimatum 
as they sometimes do with other governments. My ultimatum might be, if you take my resources through taxation and invasion of my property, I will destroy Paris. Or worse, the residents of Paris must pay me a tribute or face annihilation. Facts and common sense contradict this simplistic argument. In France in 1991, there were 16,000 arrests for possession of illegal arms, and only 1,600 homicides. Only 45% of the homicides were committed with guns, shotguns, or handheld weapons. The probability of the use of restricted weapons is very low, around 0.45%. Since arrests involve only a fraction of persons carrying or possessing legal or illegal weapons, the real probability of forbidden weapons being used is quite low. And, of course, the only time in history where nuclear weapons were used was when the United States was able to do it without fear of retaliation. Is proliferation a curse? We need to establish a correlation between arms possession and the number of assaults. Does legally or illegally arming additional people increase the probability of aggression or decrease it? Does the probability of nuclear war increase when additional countries develop nuclear weapons? Brito and Intrilligator, through a cardinality theorem, tried to show such a correlation. Their thesis was traditional in that the dominant factor was not the proliferation of nuclear weapons per se, but the increase in accidents or inadvertent launches by those possessing them. Alternatively, the non-proliferation case often focuses on the irrationality of the marginal actor, who can destroy the terror equilibrium of nuclear weapons a classical argument used to justify a cartel. Imagine that there is only one armed person. The temptation for aggressive behavior instead of peaceful conflict resolution for this person would be strong, because he has a comparative advantage. Now imagine two similarly armed people, or states. The fundamental question is whether either will use an aggressive, hawk strategy, or a cooperative, dove strategy in conflict. If the use of weapons will lead to a deadly war in which both sides likely will lose not only their property but their lives, an aggressive strategy is not the preferred one. If we suppose that both are rational entities, they will adopt dove behavior over hawk behavior only if the expected gains from using the dove strategy exceed those of the hawk strategy. The complication is that future gains from either strategy for one player depend on the behavior of the other player. There is a non-zero probability of armed conflict, though this probability is much lower than in the case in which a party faces no risk of retaliation. In that case, the hawk strategy would dominate for the armed player. Let us formalize this interaction between John and Peter two individuals or princes representing their countries, both possessing nuclear weapons. If there is a balance of power, nuclear weapons make war very costly. When both make war, the use of nuclear weapons imposes only losses. In the case that John has a monopoly in nuclear weapons, he faces no fear of retaliation. 
There are only gains for John, and no losses or gains for Peter as he surrenders. If John has a monopoly, the dominant strategy for him is the hawk strategy. In the case of a balance of power, each party will adopt the hawk strategy if and only if he is sure that his adversary will play the dove. If both play the hawk strategy, losses are the only outcome. If John plays hawk and Peter plays dove, John will get the totality of the gains. In the opposite case, his gain is zero. The game is symmetric since both sides have the same weapons. We can see that the hawk strategy is not the most attractive behavior, as the outcome is negative. But the dove strategy is also dubious. Thus, John plays hawk only if Peter plays dove. In the absence of perfect foresight, John has to predict Peter's behavior. We also notice that the damage from war compared to gains increases the more likely John or Peter will adopt the dove strategy, as the threshold of probability is lower. If the ratio of gains over costs from war approaches zero, which is the case with nuclear weapons, the probability of peaceful conflict resolution increases drastically. Assume that John is convinced erroneously by a third party, Paul, that Peter will play dove, or that Peter is very likely to play dove, while Peter, in fact, is ready to play hawk. Then John will adopt the hawk strategy based on incorrect information. Nuclear war is then the outcome of this incorrect information. This explains why governments have developed direct communications between those who have the power to start a nuclear conflict, protecting themselves against such erroneous decisions. But as players are rational, they anticipate difficulty in predicting the behavior of others. A natural consistency requirement is that expectations are also rational. The convergence of anticipations between John and Peter is crucial. Consequently, the arms race between two nuclear countries to establish a power equilibrium should decrease the odds of an armed conflict. The more deadly the weapons become, the more they are dissuasive. The next question is: Does the introduction of additional participants increase, decrease? Or leave unchanged the probability of conflict. With a monopoly, the probability of war approaches one. With two players, the probability nears zero. Adding participants either lowers this probability to zero or increases it until we reach pure uncertainty. The probability of war is 0.5, or pure certainty. The probability of war approaches one. Adding one player to the interaction implies a new game with three players, each always having two strategies to play: hawk or dove. Patrick plays either hawk or dove. Then Peter plays either hawk or dove, conditional on whether Patrick has played hawk or dove. Then what is John's strategy? In a nuclear conflict, if two players play hawk. The destructive power of nuclear weapons is such that the other actor who plays dove may be destroyed as well. In fact, gains occur for one or for all when only one actor plays hawk, 
while the others play dove, or when all play dove. Consequently, knowing this matrix, John will calculate the expected value of adopting the hawk strategy versus the dove by anticipating the aggressive behavior of the two other players. The threshold on which John bases his strategy is lower with three players than with two. Adding n players in this game leads to a threshold on which all players base their strategy. Increasing n to infinity reduces the threshold to zero. Each nuclear power will be incited to play dove. Adding n players implies n pure strategies where one is dominant, that is, plays hawk while all the others play dove, and one mixed equilibrium. As n approaches infinity, the frequency of nuclear war is the ratio of gains over the cost of war. With nuclear weapons, the cost is very high compared to the gains, which predicts that the frequency of nuclear war will approach zero. The lesson from this formal analysis is that the more armed players there are, the more the threshold of probability to have armed conflicts depends only on the ratio of gains over costs. The more dissuasive the means, the less the chances for conflict. Formalization can always be suspect of rhetorical trickery, and the present demonstration is no exception. At least the formal model appeals to reason and not passions. If the model is correct, then it is important to liberalize the right to have extremely dangerous weapons and accept their dissemination among nations or individuals. Is nuclear proliferation a blessing? Yes, it is. Why? Because things that are good for us are good for others. The Terra Equilibrium was a guarantor of peace in Europe during the Cold War. Without it, the Soviets might have been tempted to invade Europe. When there are no nuclear weapons, there are classic wars, which can result in massacres comparable to those seen with the use of conventional weapons in the World Wars. The Iran-Iraq War is a case in point. If both sides had had nuclear weapons, they might have hesitated to enter the conflict, saving millions of lives. Possession of nuclear weapons by all players is a good and not a bad. Indeed, the more countries possess such dissuasive weapons, the wider will be the territory of peace and stability, as experienced in Europe throughout the Cold War. There have to be serious reasons to prohibit certain countries from owning such means of dissuading potential aggressors. This sort of support of nuclear arms proliferation is natural for economists, but heretical for non-economists. The countries who are members of the nuclear club form a cartel that is looking to protect its monopoly in respect to other countries. They even use violence in order to prevent countries they do not like from obtaining nuclear technology. If nuclear weapons reduce the possibility of armed conflicts, i.e. protect human lives and territory from external invaders and violence, it means nuclear weapons possession is efficient. Nuclear weapons possession will become more necessary as the costs of nuclear technology decrease. Competition between countries to defend themselves against external aggressors 
will lead to the proliferation of nuclear weapons. The cartel of members of the nuclear club, Russia, England, France, China and the United States, will fail as more countries develop weapons. There are two major forces in this process. Club members have reasons to cheat by giving nuclear weapons to other countries, for example, France and Iraq, China and Iran. And other countries can enter the market on their own, for example, India, Pakistan, Israel, Iran, Iraq and North Korea. Remember also that Kazakhstan, Belarus and Ukraine inherited nuclear weapons from the USSR. Perhaps if Ukraine keeps its nuclear arsenal, Poland will decide to acquire the same. South Africa, Japan, Germany, Brazil and Argentina will in the near future have nuclear weapons if they do not already. This point of view is increasingly shared by Western military strategists, many of whom believe countries willing to obtain such weapons should be helped and not considered outlaws. An article by J. Fitchett in the International Herald Tribune notes this change in opinion amongst military advisers. But Fitchett claims that if proliferation prevails, the risk of conflict increases due to everyone's inability to control everyone else's dissuasion. Pentagon experts note that when communication between the USSR and the US was limited, it minimized provocative behavior. Fitchett continues, With territories like Asia and the Middle East, nationalistic passion and irrational behavior are reality. Those leaders frequently are autocratic and are ready to destroy their countries in a nuclear conflict just to satisfy their interests or territorial appetites. Even though the 1991 Iraq conflict showed the opposite, Saddam Hussein did not dare use chemical weapons under the nuclear threat of Israel and the US. We cannot extrapolate this to a world where nuclear weapons are commonplace. We should not forget that nuclear conflict is not local, and it can affect, as did the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, uninvolved third parties. This argument is not new. It is similar to the one used by French medical doctors who, in the name of protecting consumers, are impeding the sale of drugs in supermarkets. Another argument holds that competition in airline services leads to an increase in accidents due to airlines failing to invest sufficiently in safety under the pressure of competition. This has proven to be false. All defenders of monopolies and cartels use such arguments, including the one concerning nuclear weapons. It is difficult to believe that a taxi driver's monopoly protects consumers. But when a medical board announces that a monopoly benefits consumers, the public is persuaded. Indeed, reasoning is distorted when the arguments relate to our lives. In this manner, when we think about nuclear weapons, we often lose our ability to think clearly. Let's return to the economic argument. Before 1989, there was nuclear parity between the USSR and the US. We can regard this situation as a Cournot bipolarity. The essential question of that time was the arms race in nuclear missiles. For a given level of Soviet armaments, US production of missiles to match it was profitable, measured in dissuasion capacity. 
In the same way, for a given level of American offensive capacity, matching it with nuclear warheads in the USSR was advantageous. The intersection between these two functions is the Cournot equilibrium. The number of missiles being produced was very high. It was possible to improve outcomes for both adversaries through mutual arms reduction. If both parties agreed to reduce their arms while retaining dissuasion capacity, it would have been optimal for them not to miss the opportunity. From the beginning of the Cold War, we witnessed conferences on arms reduction and treaties on non-proliferation. Each side in such an agreement would have maintained a certain quota of missile production or brought stockpiles down to a level that maximized profits for both parties. All those conferences between superpowers were simple agreements to optimize the trade-off between costs and dissuasion. The failure of such agreements is intriguing. Why did they fail? Because agreements have to be respected. The majority of such treaties not only gave exact details concerning quotas, but also the means to verify whether the quotas were being respected. In other words, the issue of agreement or cartel created a prisoner's dilemma. An advantage was gained by the one who cheated while the other respected the agreement. This incentive not to respect the agreement explains the continuous failure of such agreements. The Cold War was characterized by missile production at the Cournot point, with attempts to reduce these arms at the equilibrium point. Only the disappearance of the USSR ended this strategic interdependence. The bipolar structure disappeared. Two Directions of Future Development The United States retains a monopoly on nuclear dissuasion and plays the part of world enforcer, excluding international exchanges for countries seeking nuclear weapons. Such a position is costly, and the U.S. has no legitimate claim to such a role. We should allow more and more countries to develop nuclear weapons. The first lesson of history is that, in the absence of an enforced monopoly, no agreement or cartel, even one organized by states, can survive. One of the best-known examples is the oil cartel. The second lesson is that, Competition is the means by which we maximize our exchange profits. Nuclear arms possession is the most efficient defense of territory because it produces fear. It reduces armed conflicts and does not require many personnel. Such technology, as it becomes more affordable, will face increasing demand from countries with fewer resources. Such democratization is the result of competition. I use the term democratization rather than dissemination to make a point. For many, democratization has a positive connotation. If a poor Iraqi or Pole can benefit from such protection, it is democratization. For a rich Frenchman or American, it is dissemination. For an economist, it is competition. The argument that an Iraqi... Pole or Libyan is more irrational than a Frenchman, is fundamental. This is the argument used against nuclear arms proliferation. It was evoked during the Gulf War. Saddam Hussein is not one of us. 
He does not share our values, and he is a murderous dictator. But he is not irrational or crazy. But those who share this point of view insist that we cannot extrapolate from Saddam Hussein's case. Yet, if we follow their logic, we will have to demonstrate that non-democratic political systems constantly have as their leaders irrational and crazy persons. There is no proof of this. It would also have to be proven that democratic systems are immune to such phenomena. Hitler and the National Socialists came to power through democratic mechanisms. Thus, this argument fails also. We can link this theory to the one that prohibits citizens to carry firearms. The problem with this prohibition is that citizens are defenseless, and the only armed persons are police. Who often do not know how to shoot or turn their arms against innocent civilians, or gangsters who use their arms against citizens who have been disarmed by the state. We also see that within any given territory, relaxing gun laws leads to a reduction in crime. The mechanisms proposed to account for this trend, shown most notably by John Lott, are the same ones I propose will decrease violent multinational conflict. Following the free proliferation of nuclear weapons. Chapter five: Is democracy more peaceful than other forms of government? By Gerard Radnitsky. Differential advantage of group action. State, nation, and nation-state. There are situations. Games of interaction, where the best response to the expected best actions of others is a group response. In exchanges where competition is less than near perfect, the gain each makes is influenced by strategy. In bargained exchanges, individuals decide, and their action is voluntary. In takings, the exchange is governed by force, intimidation. Or fraud, private takings we call robbery, blackmail, etc. State takings we label taxes, inflation, etc. Permanent or war, conquest, etc. Intermittent. Conventional wisdom assumes that group action is of superior efficiency to the action of individuals acting separately, and sometimes. Group action is necessary to realize the aim. Sometimes the outcome is a mix of bargained exchange and taking. A group must be formed and maintained at a certain cost. A group excludes some and includes others. The primary form of a larger group is the linguistic community. The communities range from clans, extended family. To tribes and eventually to nations, a nation is originally a linguistic community. In the wake of the French Revolution and the ensuing democratization of war, with the introduction of general conscription in 1793, one of the evils bequeathed to us by the French Revolution, nation got its political connotation, and with it. The ideologization of war followed, which culminated in the twentieth century when democracy became the new state religion, 
and the enemy was Ao Ipso, declared to be undemocratic, i.e. an unbeliever. Wars became holy missions, crusades. Think of Wilson's slogan, to make the world safe for democracy. In the totalitarian state, whether Soviet socialist or national socialist, or a totalitarian democracy, war becomes total. While in some situations group action is collectively rational, it is individually rational to take the free rider option if available. This is explained as the prisoner's dilemma that characterizes all public goods situations. The choice example of a public good is external security or national defense. This makes the theory of public goods of great relevance to the problem of security production. To suppress the free rider option, an agent is required that possesses the necessary enforcing capacity. Hence, it is rational for the nation to transform itself into a nation-state, a territorial monopolist in violence, employing violence specialists who are paid by taxpayers' money for the production of internal and external security, police and military. The standard assumption is that the military is too powerful to exist without state control. Nationalism, from patriotism to chauvinism, functions as a means to overcome the dilemma of the collectively rational being individually irrational. Mercenaries were paid, and hence there was no problem of motivation. And prisoners of war had a shadow price, ransom. In democratized war, both soldiers and prisoners of war lost their shadow prices, became worthless. In wartime, conscripted soldiers have to be motivated. This is done with the help of nationalism and the ideologization of the war at hand. War became more cruel, and the civil population became not only involved, but even the target. Thus, in World War II, Western terror bombardments of open cities of the enemy aimed at breaking the morale of the civil population by murdering as many of them as possible. In this way, soldiers could be spared. The duet theory, adopted by the RAF as early as 1918, and particularly favoured by Churchill. By the way, Churchill himself spoke of, quote, terror bombing, for example, in his memo to Air Marshal Harris, dated March 13, 1945. The 20th century turned out to be the bloodiest and most cruel century in human history. Nationalism makes it a duty, a moral concept, to submit to the collective choices made by the political leaders for all members of the nation-state, a duty to submit to them for the sake of some putative common good, and even to send people to die in war, often for the vanity of a few. Examples are Roosevelt's, quote, almost childish vanity, or the vanity of persons immodestly believing themselves to be the instrument of providence, for example, Hitler and Stalin. In these cases, the link between benefits enjoyed and costs borne by any given individual is severed. Crimes are committed with good conscience, since one feels to be the instrument of providence, 
the mythological worldview. For example, both Hegel and Ferguson used such mythological theory on a theistic basis to explain certain historical developments. Collective choice, inspired by nationalism, gets entrapped in irrationality, not to speak of the morality of collective choice as such, imposing the choice of some claiming to represent the collectivity on everybody, thereby establishing a coercive order. Here too, it turns out that collective choice, which must be non-unanimous since otherwise it would be pointless, is always morally tinged, a sort of fall from grace. Edmund Burke said it best in 1756, Politics, the thing, the thing itself, is the abuse. Hence, resorting to politics should be avoided whenever possible. The Problem of the Unit of Agency Action, in the full sense, presupposes the ability to choose. Only individuals can decide their course of action, i.e. decide the common-sense meaning of decide. Man is a chooser and cannot but choose. A collective entity, a group, a nation, etc., chooses a course of action only in a metaphorical sense. This difference is the root of the problem that bedevils holism. In order to act, a collective entity requires a recognisable unit of agency. That agency needs sufficient power and legitimacy for the group in question to represent the collective entity. Even under inherited authority a monarchy, and, strikingly so, in a majoritarian democracy, the unit of agency is problematic, since the group is non-unanimous. That individuals cannot have identical sets of interests follows from the concept of individuality. Thus, the problem of group identity arises. In states as we know them, people are born into a state, and as adults, they are forced to risk their lives in war. Groups are not allowed to choose some other unit of agency than the state in which they live, and the citizenship which they have, unless they leave the territory of the state. To illustrate the point, we can start from exchanges. They are, by definition, voluntary. Exchanges, even non-simultaneous, function most of the time, because the parties to the exchange have a reputation at stake. Failing this, there are alternative ways of enforcing compliance, from self-help and group conventions to board help and recourse to the state as an ultimate enforcer. To the parties in an exchange, the state offers to enforce the contract in case of need. However, a rational agent will shop around for the possible providers of enforcement. Some may be more powerful, some more costly, and so on. The same holds, mutatis mutandis, for the production of security. A rational agent will shop around for possible providers of security. With respect to internal security, it is generally recognized that this is so. Most often, the violence agency that supplies internal security is the state, though it need not be the state. For instance, a private police is often more effective and less costly, hence it is a growth industry. This is generally acknowledged. 
By contrast, it is generally asserted, except in libertarian circles, that the production of external security can only be delivered by the state. This claim is supported by pointing out that states are the most powerful of the potential providers. That this is so, however, is a contingent fact of history. In principle, there is no decisive difference between internal and external security. Some Anthropological Considerations on War Social life also involves conflict. The interests of individuals living in a group cannot be identical. Conflicts occur between individuals, between subgroups of the group, and between groups, often organized in nation-states. The type of conflict solution varies with the social order in which the individuals, groups, etc. participate. On the level of individuals and face-to-face groups, there are in principle three types of possible tactics. A. Rational discussion leading to a compromise based on the cost-benefit analysis made by each of the parties. And if that fails, B. Persuasion, a precursor to propaganda in conflict between states. And if that fails too, C. One of two options, fight or flight. This model or pattern can be easily transposed to the level of collectives. Conflict is a case of prisoner's dilemma in which, almost by definition, the cooperative strategy is not followed. In the history of mankind, population pressure, overpopulation relative to the resources of the territory at a certain period of time, normally found two outlets, emigration and war. We speak of gang wars, tribal wars, etc. However, the prototype of war is war between nations or groups of nations. Such a war presupposes a sufficient degree of organization and centralization. Enter the state. States are roughly defined as the last, highest instance of power, against which there is no appeal to another instance. The state is a territorial monopolist in violence, and it declares its violence to be legitimate. Coerciveness, or its absence, is not a defining characteristic. The state would be a state even if, per impossibile, the social contract were a tenable theory. Jasse demonstrates that this is not the case, that it leads to an infinite regress. Clausewitz's dictum, war is the continuation of politics by other means, is generally accepted, but the converse, politics is the continuation of war by other means, also holds. The market is based on individual choice, whereas politics, excepting extreme autocrats, is based on collective decision. Collective decision is short for non-unanimous decision. The expression politics signifies such decisions. Jasse puts forth the thesis, all unanimous politics, and unanimous politics would of course be redundant and an oxymoron, is redistributive. Only a minor part of redistribution is explicit transfers. Subsidies and other protective measures, such as regulations and various privileges, have redistributive consequences. Besides material and financial resources, positions, 
privileges, prestige, etc. are redistributed. That politics is redistributive is particularly clear when the democratic method of decision-making is being used. The situation in media-soaked mass democracy is epitomized by Jasse's dictum. Quote, If much of this contractarian reasoning is baseless, and the state is simply an enforcing mechanism to enable a winning coalition to exploit the residual losing coalition without recourse to violence, the delusions of necessity and convenience are, of course, an aid to the efficiency of this process. End quote. The course of history can be summarized thus. Politics emancipated war and democratized it. That development started in the aftermath of the French Revolution when, in 1793, general conscription was introduced. France was the forerunner. Prussia reluctantly followed in 1812, considering conscription the only viable answer to the French innovation. As mentioned earlier, conscripted soldiers had to be motivated. Nationalism, anchored in ideology, served that purpose. For the politicians, the tacit motivation was imperialism. Examples are the British Empire and the Russian imperial aspirations. Later, democracy, as a value, served as a substitute for and as a successor of imperialism. Woodrow Wilson's famous slogan legitimizing America's intervention in World War I, to make the world safe for democracy, illustrates the mood. Democracy becomes the new secular salvation doctrine. From President Wilson to George W. Bush Sr.'s New World Order, and to Clinton's declaration of commitment to it, present U.S. foreign policy initiatives are based on the democratic peace doctrine. We will return to this topic in the section on democracy as state religion and war. In Jasse's memorable wording, quote, states are an imposition, sometimes useful, sometimes a millstone, always costly, never legitimate, and never a necessity for binding agreements, end quote. So far, the problem of collective action has not been solved. Hence, we should examine alternatives. The guiding maxim is, if a state and politics cannot be avoided, to make the domain of politics as small as possible, and also examine alternative, self-enforcing, voluntary social orders. Democracy Natural versus Artificial Method of Social Choice what methods are available for cooperative solutions to problems of non-unanimous social choice? Following Jasse, I divide the set of possible methods into two subsets, natural versus artificial method of social choice. The natural method. When using this method, the parties in the collective decision problem assess the strength of either side and declare the question resolved in favour of the stronger-looking force. Examples are chess, analyses of unfinished games, and, above all, well-run committees reaching unanimity without voting, the debate having revealed the relative strength of the opposing positions. Military strength, economic influence, 
access to the media as means of mass persuasion, etc., are used to assess the relative strengths. Often, the solution is published and adorned with the claim that the debate was made to find out what the community really wants. The natural method has certain advantages. One, it is obvious to the parties that the discounted value of cost of social choice to find a solution that reflects the balance of forces and interests is infinitely greater than by procedural method. Hence, on balance, fewer social choices are imposed. You legislate less. Two, the natural method is a rigorous screen, a filter. It lets through only those social outcomes that are said to be Pareto superior. Pareto superior is the received wisdom, but if strictly applied, it will hamper innovations, impede progress. The artificial method. The artificial method rests on the assumption that the method can be legitimized by recourse to consent in advance to accept the outcome of a mechanical procedure. This method has the advantage of being very simple to handle, much like the input into a sort of sausage machine. It has also certain disadvantages, however. One, it makes the process appear very inexpensive. Hence, it implies a temptation to use the method often to legislate more. Two, the outcome, any outcome, or the mechanical product of applying the procedural rules, is evaluated as good, no matter how crazy it may be. Thus, instead of providing a rigorous filter, the procedural approach proceeds by a categorical value judgment, declaring any outcome of the method as good because it was reached by the right method. In spite of its great popularity, constitutionalism is untenable. Constitutional rules, the rules for rulemaking, cannot be above collective decision. Agreeing to procedures, irrespective of the outcomes that might emerge from them, is unreasonable. Norman Barry. It misses the point that it is substantive rules that make a liberal constitution, liberal in the classical sense, something that James Buchanan also concedes. Agreement to a mechanical procedure, a constitution, is like a contract with oneself i.e. not enforceable. The constitution is like a chastity belt of which the lady herself has the key. Jasse. It is but a vow. Society vows to respect it, but most respect it only so long as they believe that it is respected by most. How could one think that the rules constraining politics are somehow above politics, as the mentality of society changes, the social forces associated with that mentality change, and, with them, the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution is a striking example. The Supreme Court has changed it beyond recognition. The paradigmatic example of the artificial method is the democratic method of collective decision-making. General elections allegedly serve as the best procedure to identify the general will, what the principle, the people, or society wants. 
The government is the agent of the principle. As with any procedural method, the democratic method founders on the general impossibility of solving substantive problems by means of procedural method. Hence, so far as logical analysis is concerned, the theme can be closed. But let us look how it is dealt with in real life, exposing the tricks used. How is the input, how are votes, made commensurable? By abstracting from all the naturally occurring elements of a decision problem, bar two, the alternative put up for question, and the number of votes cast for each. You abstract from who cast them, the intensity of the preference or the weight of concern, differential in contribution or in risk-taking, relevant knowledge, etc., Vote aggregation is legitimized by the argument that the votes and voters are homogenous. How can they be made homogenous? By going up to a more general level of classification when describing them. Plums and walnuts become commensurable units of counting if considered as fruits. Morons and intelligent people are equal in the relevant sense if considered as members of the same biological species. Once the principle of simply adding votes has been agreed upon, majority rule alone is possible. Because of the dynamics of the democratic process, any collective decision rule requiring some qualified majority is vulnerable to erosion. By maximizing the losing minority, the winning majority can maximize its redistributive gains. The marginal blocking voter can always be overcompensated from the loss to be imposed on the extra marginal ones. The poorer 50% plus one voter, whose exploitation of the richer half appears to be an equilibrium. Rational players operating under the incentives of a democratic constitution will maximize payoffs in two ways. One, redistributive direct payoffs when shaping legislation in the political process within the meta-rules. And two, redistributive indirect payoffs that become available by changing the master rules, constitution. They learn to choose a constitution that maximizes the scope for redistributive legislation. The inherent dynamics of democracy, presupposing unqualified franchise and rational players, lead to an unrestricted domain and bare majority rule. That means it leads to unlimited democracy. It imposes dominated choices, coercion. Democratic meta-rules are no guarantee against totalitarianism. No constitution can provide such a guarantee. Disadvantages 1. The method can only express ordinarily ranked preferences. It cannot express cardinal preferences. It suppresses them. 2. The arithmetic operation of vote aggregation is meaningless in the same way as interpersonal utility aggregation. As a method of finding out what the holistic actor, the society, wants, it is meaningless. It is meaningful only as a method of head-counting. 
vote aggregating is misleading. Under the pretense that the result is only the sum of its parts, it smuggles in a holistic value, society's choice. There cannot be such a thing because of the underlying conflicting interests of the various group members. Different individuals cannot have identical interests. If you abstract from the real individuals, the fictitious entity of the society's choice remains, like the smile of the Cheshire cat. It has no ontological status, is not even a conceptual entity, since it is an inconsistent construction. Democratic choice rule is immunized against criticism by introducing a persuasive definition. Democratic is now used in a second sense, mainly evaluatively, to lift the outcome, any outcome, onto the moral high ground by moralizing. It is declared to be good since it expresses the will of the people. Apart from the fact that this is ontological nonsense, it commits the so-called naturalistic fallacy of the ethics of consensus. Often, a spurious relationship between prosperity and democracy is invoked. This claim may function like a cargo cult. Journalists often suggest that, if only democracy would be introduced into one of the ex-communist Eastern Bloc states, shops would suddenly be well-stocked with various merchandise. This can illustrate the claim made by Jassé, namely that socio-political evolution appears to have come full circle. Holistic values, i.e. values attributed to a holistic actor, the people, such as social justice, equality of outcome, etc., are appealed to in order to erode and override the very property rights that a social order is intended to protect. We have indeed come full circle, from the protective state to the redistributive productive state, hence the phenomenon of our enemy, the state. What are the arguments in favour of unqualified franchise? Suppression of relevant characteristics of voters is claimed to be a virtue in the name of a peculiar moral principle of equality, i.e. one possible version of it based on membership in the same biological species. One can formulate more plausibly other equality axioms that would require giving some people more votes than others, depending on the person and on the question to be decided, or both. Unqualified franchise is nothing more than a sacred cow, one of the myths of our age. See the political use of the democratic peace thesis below. Presumably, the myth originated in the military context, since every citizen has to risk his life, everybody should have the same vote. The mendicant order provided a model system. Practical Evaluation of the Democratic Method The democratic method tempts you to expand collective choice because it appears to be so simple to use and almost costless, a facile mechanical process. It invites you to sin, galloping interventionism. The consequences, because of the redistributive bias of democratic constitutional rule, it transforms the state into a vast redistributive machinery and the society into the churning society, interventionism, welfareism, collectivism, 
with consequences that go far beyond anything known under pre-democratic social choice. That the direction is egalitarian, however, does not entail that the end result will be so. Democracy is not a satisfactory normative political theory. From the standpoint of the free society, as regulative principle, the same holds for any procedural method. Non-unanimous social choice is morally tainted per se, since it imposes dominated choices on some part of the community. The democratic method proposed as a solution to the problem of social choice hides the problem. There cannot be a procedural solution, since the problem is not procedural. The problem of social choice is substantive. Which choices, if any, may legitimately be imposed on a dissenting part of the community? The practical problem is how to avoid making recourse to social choice too easily attainable. How to forestall the tendency to turn economic or legal problems into political problems. In summary, there are no neutral meta-rules. Every rule, whatever its level, favors identifiable interests. The majority rule, for instance, leads to a redistributive order. If it is taken as sufficient condition for social choice, it transforms politics into a three-person distribution game. A majority of two can, by agreeing, dispossess the third. A pure, ideal, typical majoritarian democracy will end up taking all of everyone's income under one set of distributive measures and returning the same income to everyone under a different set of measures, whether in money or in kind, de facto public goods. The end state will be roughly the same as in the ideal, typical, fundamentalist socialism, as Ludwig von Mises predicted in the 20s. While the above-mentioned three-person distribution game is unstable, going round in circles, a circular shift in the role of the dispossessed, the golden egg version can be stable for decades. Sweden is again a good example. The geese laying the golden eggs have been the multinational companies, and the finance minister, Gunnar Strang, often declared to the social democratic comrades who wanted more of socialism that the golden egg goose had to be treated with caution, that it must not be starved to death or forced to emigrate. The general idea remains, however, that some part of society uses the procedural social choice rule to gain income, wealth, or opportunities at the expense of another part. A popular label for this system is social market. The private market should produce the national income. Then the state redistributes it according to its ideology. Ludwig von Mises called it the latest version of interventionism. It jibes perfectly with social democratic values. At best, the social market version of democracy slows down society's motion toward the aforesaid stage of pure, churning society, and nothing more. The development toward a pure, churning society can also be slowed down from below. 
If the winning coalition abuses the potential offered by majority rule too much, the taxpayers no longer feel bound by decisions that owe their legitimacy merely to the fact that they were reached in a procedurally correct manner. Their reaction will be fight, flight, or fraud. They will transfer their capital abroad, move their production to other countries, emigrate, or, if remaining in the country, either go into the unofficial economy, the parallel economy, or simply work less. Tax revolt, emigration, etc. demonstrate the ultimate contestability of procedurally correct decisions that defy the underlying power relations. This phenomenon can be interpreted as a surfacing of what Jassé labelled the natural method of collective choice. Existing power relations make themselves felt, even if officially the majority rule democracy reigns supreme. It shows that there are limits to popular sovereignty. Meltzer, Richard and others have claimed that there is an endogenous barrier to redistribution given rational agents. The winning coalition, a holistic actor, finds that restraint is in its interest. The slice of the larger pie, its share of the large national income, is larger than the larger slice of the smaller pie, its larger slice of a national income that has been reduced due to increased redistribution. However, as Jasse has pointed out, this cannot be translated into the behaviour of the individual voter. He would have to correctly balance, at the point of marginal equivalence, his expected redistributive gain against his personal share in the loss of national income due to redistribution. It is so implausible that the voter can do this that the claim has to be rejected. It is based on a sort of fallacy of composition. Instead of hoping for an endogenous barrier to redistribution, it is plausible to predict that we will in the future witness a sort of historical wave pattern similar to that which we have seen in recent years. Creeping socialism, for example, under the heading of social market, leads to ever more complex, ever less transparent redistribution. At some point in time, a large mass of voters will blame the redistribution for the palpable deterioration of the economy, of marginal wealth, and of the moral underpinnings of the market order. There are recent examples, England in 1979, the US in 1980, and even Sweden in 1991. Then attempts follow to roll back the welfare habit and to reduce the share of public expenditures and taxes. After a while, creeping socialism again gathers momentum. It is a plausible conjecture that this historical wave pattern will continue to show so long as we practice democratic social choice rule based on unqualified franchise. And there are certainly no signs that a remoulding of the manner of franchise might become politically possible. It certainly could not be overcome with the help of the democratic method. The political parties will hinder a structural change that diminishes their income. The Dilemma of the Democracy-Induced Churning Society Sweden 
is probably the best illustration of the predicament of the advanced churning society. Bare majority rule and unqualified franchise, in combination with an absolute majority of the franchised voters deriving their livelihood from public funds. 36% of adults are productively employed, 7% self-employed and 29% privately employed. 27% are employed in the public sector, in the tax-financed welfare complex of state education, health, social services, public transport, etc. 34% are clients of the state, students, pensioners, the unemployed, etc. And 3% are clients of the civil society, i.e. they cover most of their outlays with the help of husband or wife or other relatives. Once a large group, they get fewer and fewer. That means that only just over two-fifths of the adult population over 17 and under 65 is gainfully employed. Never have so many had so few to thank for so much. A change of the system would presuppose a change of lifestyles and also the slaying of a few of the sacred cows, among them the principle of unqualified franchise. Comparing Democracy and Monarchy It may be instructive to have a look at these typical institutional frameworks before attempting our title question. In a seminal paper, Hans-Hermann Hopper made a comparison between democracy and monarchy. I prefer to interpret the descriptive concepts Hopper uses as ideal typical concepts. Interpreted in this way, his theoretical analysis of the incentive structures of each is highly illuminating. Whether the concepts can also be interpreted as statistical concepts is a question that must be put to historians. To interpret them as classificatory concepts invites criticism from the historians, who easily can find counterexamples. Let us have a look at democracy in some typical scenarios. As protector... The Korean War. The Korean War provides an example. First, a solemn guarantee by the President and Congress that, in case of an act of aggression by North Korea, the US would immediately respond with nuclear weapons. When the blatant aggression occurred, the US did nothing. Only later did it send ground forces. Gordon Tullock convincingly argues that the US threat was not taken seriously by the North Koreans. Only when Eisenhower made the threat of nuclear retaliation credible was a peace treaty signed. Had a credible threat been expressed earlier, it would have saved the lives of a couple of million South Koreans. Vietnam America got involved by unnecessarily acting as a guarantor of the peace treaty concluded between the French and Vietnam. The US then sent advisers, followed by arms, and eventually soldiers. In January 1973, President Nixon gave the president of South Vietnam, Nguyen Van Thieu, the assurance that the US would immediately come to his assistance if and when North Vietnam violated the treaty. Congress refused to honour the guarantee. 
after the US Congress, in an act of shocking dishonor, simply cut off aid to the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnam collapsed. In order to win the elections, the political parties were prepared to do anything, including stage a treacherous peace. As an ally During the Vietnam War, the American military fought only under crippling restrictions. The mass media and the political parties requested that the war be conducted democratically. It was indeed conducted in a ridiculous way. No sea blockade, no destruction of enemy supply lines, and so on. The US had forgotten the lesson from World War II, namely that the terror bombardment of large cities was militarily worthless, a waste of resources, whereas the destruction of railroads in 1943 crippled the German logistics and proved decisive. The leftist media succeeded in provoking a veritable anti-Vietnam hysteria. In addition, Robert McNamara's memoirs confirmed the view that his mismanagement of the Vietnam War played a crucial role in the U.S. defeat. Senator Wayne Morse significantly labelled the Vietnam debacle McNamara's War, the cost wrongly calculated, and the military actions sabotaged. In Peace Treaties The U.S. decided both world wars. Wilson's gravest error, even crime, was that he destroyed the European monarchies. World War I destroyed the natural enemies of Russia, the German monarchy and the Habsburg monarchy. Wilson's inconsistent conjunction of democracy and self-determination proved destructive. After that, it was no longer possible to conclude a peace treaty in the way that it had been earlier. First, the monarchies were often related to each other by family relationships and by their common interest in retaining that form of government. Second, but even more important, a monarchy is more likely to respect agreements. Why? Any political party that has come into government position after a lost war will be weak. The opposition can use the unpopular peace treaty as a powerful weapon against the government. Versailles was one of the necessary conditions for the rise of Hitler. Moreover, the opposition can break the treaty without scruples, since it has not signed it. The situation of a dynasty is drastically different. By breaking the treaty, it would lose face, disavow itself. Remember that, according to Montesquieu, honour is the key principle of a monarchy. Parameters of a social order that govern its propensity for being peaceful or belligerent. A. The more individualistic and market-oriented a social order is, the less prone it will be to be belligerent. Conversely, the more collectivist the mood in a society, the greater its propensity for bellicosity. B. Every social order has some, one or more, totalitarian aspects. The more decisive such aspects are for the general mindset of the social order in question, the more belligerent that order will be. A maximum will be reached 
in societies that have supreme values, that have absolutized their central values. The mindset of such a society is dominated by doctrines declared sacrosanct. Consistently, official deniers of the central doctrines declared state truths are persecuted as heretics. Examples are societies governed either by religion, the Crusades of the Middle Ages, the various holy wars, or by the successors of transcendental religion, the secularized religions. The choice example is, of course, the wars in the wake of the French Revolution. When conscription was introduced in 1793, the soldiers had to be motivated. This was achieved by invoking nationalism, chauvinism, by teaching soldiers and population to hate the enemy, which was demonized by atrocity propaganda characterizing them as non-human. In the West, democracy, vague and undefined, roughly one man, one vote, has become the state religion. Dewey recognized this development as early as 1920. Quote, if you commit to democracy, it takes on religious value, end quote. Democracy goes with redistribution. Remember Anthony de Gessay's memorable words, the state is simply an enforcing mechanism to enable a winning coalition to exploit the residual losing coalition without recourse to violence, end quote. Democracy and socialism egalitarianism, are two sides of the same coin. Thus, social democratism has become the new state religion in the West. One consequence of this development is the great popularity of the thesis that democracy is more peaceful than other forms of government. I will examine that thesis later in the section The Thesis Democracy is More Peaceful Than Other Forms of Government. For the moment, let's just note that totalitarian democracy, a special case of totalitarian social order, will be highly belligerent. Only after Pericles had the unreserved support of the Athenian People's Assembly, which possessed absolute power, did he become a warmonger. C. Owners of larger property will recognize that, in case of war, much is at stake for them, and hence they will rationally be risk-averse. Mutatis mutandis, the same holds up for top military men. Hence, the more influential these forces are in a social order, the more peaceful that order will be. D. The more visible the costs of war are, in financial terms and, above all, the more promptly they are felt by influential forces, in a democracy, especially the vote-providing interest groups, the greater will be the pressure on government to withdraw from the war. A good recent example is the harmless Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard, who embarked on the war game in East Timor which met with the clamouring of various interest groups, like churches, the Greens, and the foreign aid lobby, and reacted by imposing a Timor tax levy. 
as soon as the public became aware of the costs of the intervention, they immediately became peace-loving, and Australia could quickly hand over the costly business to the UN. In summary, cash payments for the financial costs of war are peace-promoting. War loans, temporal and even intergenerational redistribution, facilitate bellicose behaviour of politicians, and the transparency of politics is peace-promoting. See Describing Social Orders below, the historian Joel's analysis of British politics. Since parameters A through D apply to all social orders, they set the background for an examination of the thesis democracy is more peaceful than other forms of government. The thesis, democracy is more peaceful than other forms of government. On the formulation of the democratic peace doctrine. If the thesis, democracy is more peaceful than other forms of government, is universally quantified, all democracies, it is falsified by a single counterexample. If it is formulated as a tendency statement, testing it requires statistical investigations. And, if taken as asserting that democracies do not often initiate wars against others, it is immediately falsified, since this has happened innumerable times. Therefore, its scope is restricted, while its specificity is increased. Democracies do not make war against other democracies. That thesis has become the received wisdom and has been influential in guiding U.S. policymakers as well as scholars of international relations. Therefore, as we would expect, the first gambit in a conflict will be that each side of a conflict will declare that its opponent, partner in a potential conflict, is not really a democracy and will use the popular populist definition, explication of the concept one-man, one-vote rule, and elections at regular intervals. Hence, the first bone of contention will be the definition of the concept of democracy. For a bellicose democratic president, this gambit is naturally the opening move. The concept of democracy becomes a jellyfish. You define it in such a way that the other party to the conflict automatically becomes a non-democracy. In this way, the statement, democracies do not make war with each other, becomes a truism, an analytic sentence without content of empirical information. In his latest book, John Rawls, the justice expert, introduces classification of states into decent ones and outlaw states. The criterion of evaluation is whether or not a state has just political institutions. The idea underlying Rawls's vision of a world of decent, i.e. democratic states, or more accurately, social democratic states, is the Kantian Fidus Pacificum. It is a world in which Kant's vision of his 1795 essay Toward Perpetual Peace has been realised. The ideal of a universal community of all peoples, or better still, of the family of nations, where all wars are, by definition, family quarrels licensed by the UN, in the same way in which the medieval Pope licensed wars. The idea of a social contract, 
which with logical necessity leads to an infinite regress, is extended to the community of peoples and the terms under which decent societies may wage war against an outlaw society are explored. Economic institutions are not even mentioned. From Rawls's moral high ground, they become negligible. As in Rawls's 1972 The Theory of Justice, the whole argument is based on circular reasoning. Rawls uses again the fiction of the veil of ignorance, whereby his zombies, who do not know their temperament and nonetheless play minimax strategy, are invested with exactly the properties that are needed to reach the outcome desired by Rawls. The idea that a world government would be an ideal situation has appealed to philosophers. In reality, such a situation would be a nightmare. If violence were an industry that operated under increasing returns to scale, there would indeed be a tendency toward one world state. Fortunately, that tendency is exactly the opposite. The number of states waxes and wanes unpredictably, with some large states breaking up and some small ones trying to unite. When we see that Rawls, the most important philosopher of the 20th century according to Thomas Nagel in The New Republic, is totally confused philosophically, we are not astounded when top politicians advance confused and paradoxical arguments. For example, Chancellor Kohl of the Federated Republic of Germany argued that the European Union with a single currency is indispensable as a precaution against future wars between European democracies, while at the same time he endorsed the thesis that democracies do not wage war against other democracies. Chancellor Kohl's inane argument is already falsified by the American Civil War more correctly, war of secession, a war between states with a single currency. Cole also announced the end of the nation-state, ignoring the fact that the UN started with about 50 members 50 years ago and had about a 100 when Cole made his announcement. Philosophers often ascribe the thesis democracies do not make war against other democracies to Kant, this is a misinterpretation of Kant. 1. When, in 1795, Kant conjectured that democracies will tend to be more reluctant than dictatorships to fight anyone at all, he cautiously declared that this applied only to democracies that were also republics. For Kant, republic meant the separation of powers. 2. The U.S. Constitution of 1787, Article 4, Section 4, quote, guarantees to every state in this union a republican form of government, end quote. The word democracy is mentioned only en passant in the Constitution. At the time, however, the concept of republic was used in such a way that, for example, the Polish monarchy was always described as a republic. 3. In the interpretation that is popular today, Kant's hypothesis is easily falsified. For instance, Britain conducted two world wars and innumerable others without changing its constitution. 4. Most important of all, 
Kant's conjecture as it is interpreted today is not only falsified by history, but is also conceptually mistaken. Democracy as a form of government legitimizes a concentration of power, something which per se facilitates warmongering. The idea of an intrinsic link between democraticness and peacefulness appeared relatively late in history. Thucydides ascribed the worst atrocities in the Peloponnesian War to the cruelty of the democratic masses of Athens. The French Revolution's cult of the ancient world admired not peaceful democracies or republics, but bellicose states, and it spoke of just wars of aggression. Linking peacefulness with democracy or republic is an idea that originated in the classical liberal economistic insight that an increase in trade between states reduces the probability that those states will begin a war with each other. Thus, peacefulness is indeed a characteristic of free, individualistic, market-oriented political structures where individuals and small groups have full responsibility for their actions and can reap the benefits of competing and performing without state interference, a situation with a very minimal government or, still better, without a state. Remark on motivation of decision-makers in general. Going to war is easy for a dictator since he controls the media and commands the armed forces. By contrast, a president has to follow the rules of the game of a parliamentary democracy. For a dictator, the good reasons for Bellico's behavior depend on historical coincidences. This applies also to politicians operating in a democratic system. The role of chance in history is well known. The personality of the rulers, a decisive chance element, plays an important role. Possible good reasons for Bellico's behavior range from the acquisition of new resources to personal aggrandizement. A monarch's interest is often to preserve the estate of the dynasty, which makes for peaceful behavior. Wars not necessary for the preservation of the status quo will be avoided. For a president in media-soaked mass democracy, the incentive for belligerent behavior is more or less permanent. First, it brings an increase of power. In wartime, this can easily be achieved by the centralization and control of the economy and all of the substructure of society. Hence, in modern times, a war between nation-states of the first order automatically becomes a total war. Second, a vote-catching politician, used to working with redistributive measures such as handouts to important pressure groups, protectionist regulations, etc., may be tempted to make use of the phenomenon of war-sprung socialism. Robert Nisbet. In connection with the intervention in World War I, this can be very clearly seen. As America prepared to enter the war, the magazine New Republic looked forward to imminent collectivization and urged that the war be used as an aggressive tool of democracy. From such theoretical consideration, it appears plausible that, statistically, democratic presidents will tend more often to behave belligerently than dictators. 
socialist leanings may tempt a democratic president to be bellicose. Robert Nisbet writes, quote, To this day, the American welfare state is intrinsically no more than the New Deal enlarged, end quote. FDR's lasting legacy, the escalating warfare-welfare national security state. Describing social orders. Social orders and states can be described in innumerable ways. Since you can always invent a new descriptive system, the thesis under scrutiny uses a peculiar taxonomy with only two classes, democracy and a huge residual class, other forms of government. As rational agents, politicians react to the incentives of the system in which they have to operate. Therefore, in a democracy, a change of personnel will usually only alter the surface. What matters is the institutional setup. Thus, our question should be formulated, what institutional arrangements in a democracy might induce political decision-makers to behave, independently of their personality, more peacefully than they would behave in other forms of institutional arrangements? If we assume that there are such institutional arrangements, we will ask what they are and how they work. If a convincing theoretical argument were shown that demonstrated that such institutional arrangements exist and that they do work, historical studies would be dispensable. So far, however, no such argument has been forthcoming. What we learn from a study of the institutional arrangements of a democratic system is that, in such a system, the politicians have to follow the rules of the game, the rules that follow from its institutions. Democratic leaders require tricks and deception to bring their countries into war. Why do democratic leaders deceive the people into war? The work of the well-respected British historian James Joel on the origins of the First World War illuminates that need. Joel explains that the British system of government forces ministers to be devious and disingenuous. Thus, if a leading democratic politician, quote, is himself convinced that circumstances demand entry into war, he often has to conceal what he is doing from those who have elected him, end quote. Joel analyzes the case of former British Prime Minister Earl Grey. Quote, Grey had never had any doubts in his own mind that, if it came to a conflict between France and Germany, Britain would have to support France. His reasons were based not on internal political pressures, but on conventional thinking about foreign policy and Britain's place as a world power. If we look for responsibility for the First World War in the political and constitutional arrangement of the belligerent states, when the structure of British government can be held responsible for Grey's reluctance openly to commit Britain to support France and Russia before he was absolutely convinced he could carry his party with him. End quote. In 1914, the German violation of Belgian neutrality gave the British government the moral high ground it needed for calling on its liberal followers to support the war. Joel also asserts that many of the supporters of the liberal members of government, quote, would not stand for it if they knew the whole truth, end quote. 
Kent's naivete, assuming that people in a democracy are informed about what is going on, may be excusable in 1795. Besides Gray, Joel mentions as examples of democratic leaders who systematically deceived those who had elected them, and of course the national leaders, Asquith, Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1939-41, and Lyndon Baines Johnson in the Vietnam War. FDR outdid his paragons in the first shot gambit. His objective was war with Germany. By the end of 1940, it was clear to him that the Germans were not going to shoot first, but he knew that he could maneuver the Japanese into the position of firing the first shot. The Navy at Pearl Harbor was FDR's bait. If, thereby, a few thousand American soldiers were sacrificed, the media echo would be great. Japan's attack had to be a big success. Japan must appear to be stronger than the U.S., otherwise Hitler would not declare war. The Japanese diplomatic code and the marine code, JN-25, having been decoded, the U.S. and Britain monitored the Japanese attack fleet all the way to Pearl Harbor. That intelligence was withheld from the Pearl Harbor commanders, Admiral Kimmel and General Short, and they were impeded in their efforts to gather it themselves. They had to serve as scapegoats. Robert B. Stinnett provides incontrovertible proof, in facsimile from those former top-secret documents that have since been released. However, not all the documents relevant to the conspiracy have been released. Even today there is a cover-up, the same olds of the deputy Führer Hesse's flight to Britain on 10th of May 1941. In 1992, the Foreign Office declared that the Hess files are to be kept secret until 2018. Why do democratic leaders need to feign unanimity when the cabinet is deeply divided? Several historians have dealt with the period from May 24th through May 28th, 1940, when the British War Council was deeply split about what course of action to take. John Lukacs, with his book of 1999, Five Days in London, gives the latest account. On the 10th of May 1940, Chamberlain had resigned and Churchill became Prime Minister. At that time, France was collapsing and the British Expeditionary Force, BEF, stood at Dunkirk. The most probable development was that the BEF would be killed or captured in the Channel ports of northern France. Britain had only the police to defend it, and a successful invasion by the Germans was the most likely scenario. Foreign Minister Lord Halifax, Neville Chamberlain, Harold Nicholson, the king in the background, and leading figures within Churchill's own Conservative Party regarded testing the prospect of negotiations via the then-neutral Italy as the sensible reaction to the crisis and as the only chance to save the British Empire. Churchill most strongly opposed it. On the next day, the 11th of May, Churchill gave for the first time the order to attack German cities. On the 12th of May 1940, Halifax noted in his diary that he was worried about Winston's methods, 
and shortly thereafter, he labelled Churchill's new team a group of gangsters. We learn that, on the 27th of May, when the situation was totally confused, Churchill and Halifax took a walk in the garden, and that Churchill apparently succeeded in dissuading Halifax from resigning. The resignation of the foreign minister would have laid open the split in the cabinet. It would have made it practically impossible for Churchill to persuade the war cabinet, the cabinet at large, and the commons that his course was the right one. Even Churchill could not reveal Roosevelt's clandestinely given pledge to draw America into the war, since that would have outraged the American public, the majority of which did not wish to sacrifice American lives. Lukacs admits that we have no account of what was said during the walk in the garden. Churchill was a gambler, like Hitler. What saved him, and Britain, was what Lukacs deigns to call the miracle of Dunkirk. The Germans allowed about 350,000 men to escape across the channel from France. There are no miracles in history. What happened was that Hitler heard the advice of two men, Field Marshal Erich von Manstein and Hermann Göring. Manstein advised him to smash the pocket, whereas Göring claimed that the Luftwaffe would be capable of preventing an evacuation across the channel. Hitler was not intelligent enough to grasp the Kairos, the decisive, propitious moment, the only moment where he could have won the war by invading the British Isles, which were defended only by police. He followed Goering, whose limited fantasy could not imagine an evacuation by thousands of small boats against which the Luftwaffe was powerless. Thus, in May 1940... Hitler lost the war. Joel explains that the British system of government, and very likely any democratic government, forces ministers to be devious and disingenuous. Lukacs' account reminds us of how superficial it is to deal with governments or cabinets and so forth as if they were holistic agents, and that the public, at decisive moments, is usually uninformed or misinformed. Central items in a bellicose democratic president's box of tricks and deceit. Rule number one. First, get control over the media. They are indispensable as means of propaganda. A democratic president has to sell a war, embarking on the mass marketing of the war that he has in mind. Good historical examples are presidents Woodrow Wilson and Franklin D. Roosevelt. Neither of them would have embarked on war without the masterful preparations by Churchill, who succeeded in establishing a highly efficient propaganda machinery in the US. Faked atrocity reports in World War I and in World War II, faked movies, faked documents, tapped telephones, bribed editors, getting hold of the film industry, etc., Impressive is Marl's report of how British security coordination helped to outmaneuver the Republican Party's old standard-bearer, Herbert Hoover, by fixing the 1940 Republican presidential nomination for Wendell Wilkie, who, as late as 1939, had been a registered Democrat. Roosevelt could never have won the public opinion battle so quickly without British intelligence activity in North America. Of course, if a war goes on, 
the television reporting must be kept under control. The Vietnam War, which was lost on TV screens on the home front, was the first TV war. It was also the last. The lesson was learned. Since then, war reporting has been censored and controlled by the Pentagon. This could be clearly seen in the Persian Gulf War and the war in Kosovo, and television audiences appeared to have been quite satisfied with the infotainment they got. Reality becomes unimportant. Deceit reigns supreme. As mentioned above, the generally accepted peaceful democracy axiom in the modern time obliges a democratic president, as a first step before going to war with another country, to declare the other country to be non-democratic. If so, it is his noble obligation to convert the unbelievers to the true religion. The missionary mindset of the sects who immigrated to the New World. Some authors claim that the New England states could be characterized fairly as theocracies, a mindset that is still virulent in the U.S., provides a fertile ground for the idea of a New World Order based on worldwide democracy. The reasonable idea underlying Kant's essay on eternal peace was that if the consent of the people, a fictitious holistic entity, is required for going to war, the people will think twice before committing itself to so risky a game. This is a reasonable assumption only if you also assume that the voters are well informed about the situation and about the risk. That assumption is not justified in the real world. The voters are only allowed to choose their guardians. This is the only choice for which they are regarded as competent, whereas, with respect to all other choices, they are regarded as incompetent. Hence, the voters are rationally uninformed, and most of the time are systematically deceived by the state-owned media. For instance, in the Federated Republic of Germany, FRG, the parties would never allow a plebiscite on the Swiss model. The state has become the loot of the political parties. How could Kant have imagined the government propaganda mass-marketing a war by means of television? The people's behaviour drastically differs from Kant's ideal. Already before the age of television, the people manifested its will when the country rallied around the flag. Think of the mobs in Paris and London in 1914, clamouring for the war that destroyed Europe. Warmongering gave the government an upward blip in the opinion polls. The political leaders have learned the lesson from mass psychology, mob psychology. Hitler was the master of it, having studied Le Bon's Psychologie de la Foule. Moreover, how could Kant have imagined the development of democracy? He was thinking of an ideal typical concept. Today, when the people has chosen its guardians, it has become the subject of their persuasion and deceit. In summary, Kant's argument refers to an ideal typical republic. In this realm it is correct, but it is of no practical value. Rule 2. Provoke the intended enemy. If that fails, create clandestinely a de facto state of war, a fait accompli. 
A good historical example of successfully planned provocation is Pearl Harbor. An early example of a successful first shot story is the case of Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, inaugurating the American Civil War. In World War II, the fait accompli was the U.S. submarine warfare in early 1940. At least by the summer of 1941, the U.S. was de facto in war with Germany. If he has to circumvent or violate the Constitution, a democratic president has to do it in a clandestine way. He has to conceal the fact that he regards foreign affairs as his own policy fiefdom. Immune from parliamentary control, the consent of the parliament can be gotten later when the fait accompli has been established. That rule was followed in the two world wars. After that, dissimulation was apparently no longer considered imperative. Thus, for instance, in 1950, President Truman sent U.S. troops to wage the Korean War without even making a pretense of seeking congressional authorization. Recently, it became popular to use the U.N. as a chaperone for an intervention and to rely on moralizing rhetoric, which uses human rights as an apologia for bombardment. It is strange that proponents of the peaceful democracies doctrine appear to believe that the people, if given enough influence, would dissuade politicians from bellicose behavior. At least they believe it sometimes, and they also believe that parliamentary control would be a panacea. Sometimes they are more realistic. Thus, even the champion of the doctrine, R.J. Rummel, writes, quote, "Democratic peoples have become jingoistic on occasions and enthusiastically favored war. They can also be aggressive today, pacific tomorrow." End quote. As mentioned already, Thucydides ascribed war atrocities to the democratic masses. The Romans understood the phenomenon of mass psychology well. And coined the expression "mobile vulgus." Rule three: Create the public impression that the intended enemy fired the first shot. In the American Civil War, the Fort Sumter case served Lincoln's propaganda. In World War One, it was the Lusitania case of 1915, engineered by Churchill. The Lusitania was an armed munitions ship. I.e., it was a warship, as documented by divers in 1998 and 1999. In World War II, Pearl Harbor, mentioned above, is the choice example. Likewise, the German declaration of war in World War II illustrates the rule. The American historian John Lukacs described it: Hitler, who so far had prohibited his naval commanders from getting involved with U.S. naval units. Permitted them to defend themselves, and hence made a corresponding official gesture. In summary, to begin a war is considerably more difficult for a democratic president than for a dictator, since he has to circumvent the various laws in a complicated way or violate them clandestinely, which requires great shrewdness. When a democracy has entered a war or intervened with an ongoing war, its wars are more ideological. More total and hence more cruel than most of the wars of dictators or autocrats.
and democracy makes alliances with any dictator. For example, the friendship of Roosevelt and Stalin. Eventually, it is more difficult for a democracy to end a war than it is for a monarchy or a dictator. Perhaps the most interesting phenomenon is the many totalitarian trends in a democracy at war. Robert Nisbet writes, quote, "Though we are loath to admit it, the first twentieth-century previews of the totalitarian state was provided by the United States in 1917 to 18, after we joined the Allies in the war against Germany." Not even the Kaiser's military political order reached the totality of the war state that America did in extraordinary short order once war on Germany was declared. The relentless forces of centralization of political power reached literally every significant area of American life: the economy and the government in the first instance, but hardly less even and especially religion. End quote. Then Nisbet gives an overview of those developments. Much the same holds for America's Second Crusade. Comparing Albert Speer's industrial policy during World War II with that of the U.S., we find that during the war, German industries had considerably more freedom than American industries had. This made it possible for Germany's war industry to reach the peak of its productivity as late as 1943, despite the intensive strategic bombardments. America's output would have been even larger if industries had not been so rigorously regulated. Hans Hermann Hoppe. Wilson turned the European war into a much wider conflict called World War One, although it took place in the European theater and was not really a world war, and prolonged it for about two years in order to make the world safe for democracy and to wage. The war to end all wars. It would be ridiculous to claim that the Wilhelmine Germany was less of a democracy than the British Kingdom. Yet this is claimed by the champion of the peaceful democracies doctrine, R. J. Rummel. When asked about a definition of democracy, Rummel referred to his writings and said, quote, "But there should be little argument as to which nations are the central liberal democracies." End quote. Then he proposed an alliance of democracies with the help of a committee of experts. That alliance assesses the democraticness of applicants who want to join, i.e., to join the cartel. By the way. Rummel thereby shows that the definition of democracy is indeed the first bone of contention in a conflict between two democratic states. Since the concept was left vague and undefined, Western European politicians could pretend not to see Wilhelmine Germany as a democracy. In fact, World War One alone suffices to falsify the peaceful democracies doctrine. Rummel writes that quote. The Kaiser had considerable power over foreign affairs, and the army was effectively independent from control by the democratically elected Reichstag. And thus, World War One hardly contradicts the proposition that democracies don't war on each other. End quote. He thereby concedes that domestic policy in Germany was democratic. Ralph Rako shows in detail how Bismarck used social policy to split the social democratic vote, and thereby laid the ground for the welfare state.
which spread from Germany all over the Western world. However, Rummel ignores or disregards the fact that in Britain and France, foreign affairs was a policy fiefdom immune from parliamentary control, a situation that elicited a complaint voiced frequently and loudly by members of parliament in both countries. One result of World War I was Versailles, one of the necessary conditions for the rise of Hitler. A second one was unemployment, to a large extent also a consequence of Versailles. In America's second crusade, like the first, prompted and made possible by Churchill's propaganda apparatus in the US, the ideological motivation was the same. Therefore, the question also arises whether perhaps democracy promotes genocide. For instance, during World War II, the aerial bombardment killed about 600,000 German civilians, and after the war, about 11 million were killed. The attitude toward the Japanese was dominated by racism. Thus, Elliot Roosevelt, FDR's son, requested that the aerial bombardment of Japan should continue, quote, until we have destroyed about half of the Japanese population. End quote. The popularity of the thesis, democracies do not go to war with one another. In the Western world, this thesis is immensely popular. It belongs to the core of political correctness. Tocqueville, in his study of America, introduced the thesis and explained that this relationship was due to the prevailing egalitarian ideals. After all, America was and is the country of sects. See the section, Central Items in a Bellicose Democratic President's Box of Tricks and Deceit, above. And, in that intellectual environment, a political dogma can easily become a piece of a religious belief system. Wars for the spread of democracy become holy wars of sorts. President Wilson claimed that his interference in World War I was justified because he conducted the war in order to make the world safe for democracy. Roosevelt and Eisenhower argued on similar lines. After World War II, America's policy toward the defeated Germans was confused. Eventually, the immigrants of the Frankfurt School fed the administration the idea to re-educate the Germans instead of simply starving them to death. The kernel of the re-education was educating them to be good Democrats. On closer look, the democratic peace turns out to be an artifact of the Cold War. It is a phenomenon due to shared strategic interests rather than due to common domestic characteristics. Given nuclear deterrence, big wars were avoided and war was delegated to third or fourth-rate states acting as proxy. Up to 1914, there were many counterexamples to the democratic peace thesis. Since the end of the Cold War, the pairing of democracy and peace has been a salient feature in the proclamations of Western political leaders. Margaret Thatcher said on a visit to Czechoslovakia in 1990, quote, If we can create a great area of democracy, stretching from the west coast of the United States to the Far East, that would give us the best guarantee of all for security, because democracies don't go to war with one another, end quote. She was echoed by President Clinton, 
for whom the thesis became one of the very rare consistent elements in his worldview. He advanced it in 1992 in a campaign debate with Bush and Perot, and in 1994 in his State of the Union address. Quote, Ultimately, the best strategy to ensure our security is to support the advance of democracy elsewhere. Democracies don't attack each other. End quote. The thesis has become an axiom of American policymaking, indispensable for ennobling an otherwise disorganized set of foreign policies. Lady Thatcher's dictum was naive. Democracy exists within a thin band of social and economic conditions. Clinton was merely echoing her. As for examples of the problems, China may be successful in part because it is not a democracy. It may be doubted that, if Tiananmen Square had led to democracy, the high growth rates of the 1990s still would have been attained. By the way, when she was speaking in Prague in 1990, the year in which she lost the premiership due to the palace revolt by Mr. Hesseltine, Mrs. Thatcher was herself skating on the thin ice of party politics. Her main addressee, Vaclav Klaus, later had to cope with all the problems of shaky coalitions. The expression democracy itself should attract attention. As an alternative to oligarchy, one would have expected demoarchy. Kratos means enforcement power. Thus, the word democracy alludes to the latent coercive traits of that social order. Democracy, if left alone, will inevitably destroy the market, which is one of the necessary conditions of its existence, and thus, in the long run, will be a self-destructive system. Democracy as State Religion and War The New Political Religions Believing something is a state of mind that is independent of and irrelevant for the epistemological status of the content of the mental act of believing, of what is being believed. Believing, being convinced that something is true and morally valid, is a psychological phenomenon. It is a personal matter, but it may have pernicious externalities. It is not so much what people don't know that causes trouble. It is what they do know and know wrong. In the 20th century, religious faith has been declining, at least in the West, in the industrial states, i.e. in the power center of the world. Christianity and Judaism have steadily lost ground. Transcendental religion left a religious and metaphysical vacuum. The vacuum has been filled by various ideologies. Violent creeds like Marxism, fundamental or whole-scale socialism, and national socialism, the socialism that became more and more pronounced during World War II, ruled large parts of the world. Both ideologies are clearly political religions that became state religions. With respect to Marxism, Murray Rothbard argued convincingly that it is essentially a reabsorption theology, salvation applying to the species, not to individuals, as in Christianity. National socialism was based on a peculiar natural law doctrine, 
the race doctrine of the Aryans combined with legal positivism, whereas nationalism played only a subordinate role. The German nation was seen by Hitler as nothing more than a suitable instrument. Hence, it was consistent when Hitler, at the end of the war, declared that the German nation should perish, since it had proved incapable of winning the war. Its pseudo-religious character can be seen also by the multitude of references to providence, as Hitler implicitly identified himself with Jesus. In the West, particularly after the demise of those two totalitarian regimes, democracy, functioning as a convention for the handling of power, became the new political religion. The term was coined by Eric Vogelin as the title for his book of 1938. One year later, Raymond Aron wrote of Religion Politique and Religion Seculaire. Democracy's credo has all the earmarks of a religion. Above all, supreme values, the main characteristic of a totalitarian system. Thus, democracy treated as a state religion becomes totalitarianism in potentia. The results of an election, even if in practice they are often discounted, are officially treated as if they contained revealed knowledge, revealed by the new deity, the people, King Demos, the Vox Populi, and the leftist deity of equality now occupies the moral high ground. According to Tocqueville, democracy has always had a metaphysical flavor. The American pragmatist philosopher John Dewey presaged that development as early as 1920 with his famous dictum, once we commit to pursuing democracy, it will take on religious value. Creeping socialism now occupies the moral high ground. The most important factors for its success have been redistribution associated with democratization. Never before has life been so politicized as in the 20th century. And war, war-sprung socialism, which is one of the consequences of the democratization of war. Democracy and creeping socialism are two sides of a coin of social democratism. This made it possible for social democratism to become the new state religion. That it easily can take on a totalitarian flavor has been seen by historical examples such as, for instance, the so-called Swedish model. If democracy has become a political religion, wars are a crime for which non-democracies must be responsible. In case of doubt, the very existence of a state with another form of government makes that state an aggressor against democracies. When discussing Kant's thesis on the formulation of the democratic peace doctrine above, we mentioned that democracy as a form of government legitimizes a concentration of powers. Abolishing the separation of powers per se as, for instance, in the Swedish model democracy with its almighty parliament, facilitates warmongering. Political parties are associations of interests, and hence they tend to form cartels, thereby destroying the competition between parties. 
the Constitution becomes a pseudo-religious conception, by means of which all those who are declared to be unbelievers are a limine, excluded from political competition, and thereby pluralism is abolished. Since the transformation of democracy into a pseudo-religious system serves established interests, totalitarian tendencies begin to dominate. Thus, the totalitarian temptation is imminent in a democracy. Therefore, war becomes a secular religious crusade. This helps to explain the enthusiasm with which democracies enter a war. Witness 1914. Today, we witness the crusade against terrorism. Since an ism is an abstract entity, the task of that crusade is open-ended. It will end only when crusading no longer produces earnings in some form. Power, popularity, votes, etc. for the top politicians. The Political Use of the Democratic Peace Thesis The notion that democracies do not make war with each other is a cornerstone of the New World Order crowd, the ecumeny of the variants of the political religion. The implication is that, if we force the whole world to democratize, then we will have eternal peace. The champion of the democratic peace theorists, R.J. Rummel, spelled out the implication. Quote, Indeed, with universal democratization, they, armies and secret services, would be eliminated altogether. End quote. This naive argumentation gives the hegemon at the moment the United States, a blank check for intervention, not only an excuse, but a mission, so that it can always conduct an interventionist policy, not only with successful rhetoric, but with a good conscience, if politicians should ever need such a thing, as well. The country that does not behave in line with the intentions of US foreign policy is denounced in the media as undemocratic, Hence, there is an obligation, due to the new state religion, to send missionaries in order to convert the unbelievers. This way of reasoning eventually leads to a funny argument. Going to war with non-democratic countries solely to turn them into democratic countries makes it less likely that we have to go to war with them. President Clinton came close to such an argument in the case of Haiti and got away with it. There are, however, various problems with the thesis, and hence with the intellectual integrity of this approach. On the theoretical level, we ask, why should democracies be more peaceful, apart from the appearances, which are due to the fact that, as just noted, democratic leaders require tricks and deception to bring their countries into war? The historian will point out first that, until recently, there have not been many democracies, so there is not much historical material for testing this hypothesis. For another, many of the democracies have been linked by a common language, English, and common cultural ties, further narrowing the relevant body of evidence. Moreover, this approach does not address the question of how often democracies initiate wars against others. Answer, innumerable times. Pericles, having grown old, provoked war with Athens' old ally, Sparta. Both were democracies, as the notion was understood then, 
Incidentally, Pericles thereby ended Athens' dominating position, an unintended consequence. In 1994, President Bill Clinton declared that democracies do not make war with each other. Therefore, he proclaimed democratization as the third column of his foreign policy, a Wilson redivivus. Like his predecessor Wilson, Clinton left the word democracy undefined, vague and ambiguous. The popular thesis that Clinton professed is falsified already by a look at American history. The Civil War, the War of Secession, was a war between democracies with a single currency. Even in that war, the interpretation of democracy became one of the items contested in the war. The quotation from John Dewey about the religious character of democracy mentioned above illustrates America's missionary spirit of the country of sects. See, Describing Social Orders above. In his analysis of America, Tocqueville claimed that, at least since its revival in the 18th century, democracy has been a metaphysical system, a belief system that typically emerges in a religious conversion, appears with the advent of a new religion. In the case of democracy, the credo is the following... Nobody holds sway over me, because I dictate the laws myself. Thus speaks the sovereign, the people. According to the credo of the new state religion, a genuine democrat taxes himself and places his body and life at the disposal of the state as cannon fodder. The people gets the feeling that it has a say, that it too governs. Sharing in the decision-making and self-determination are confused. Mitbestimmung is confused with Selbstbestimmung. The new state religion is immunized against critique simply by the claim that all decisions, even the most perverse ones, emanate from the people, a fictitious holistic entity. The dominance of a monopolistic doctrine a monotheistic religion, or a political religion like democracy as a theoretical approach, is the precondition of totalitarianism. Thus, it is understandable that the concentration of power legitimized democracy is per se bellicose in tendency. A war becomes a holy crusade. The vanquished, the unbelievers, are to be converted to the true religion, if need be, by force. The question was raised earlier whether perhaps democracy promotes genocide. It is at the same time chilling and, because of the naivete, also amusing to read that, close to the end of World War II, the frank report of the British Embassy in Washington speaks of a, quote, universal exterminationist anti-Japanese feeling here. The report continues that the Japanese are themselves to blame, if it is necessary to exterminate them, because they resist democracy. Apparently, the unbelievers have the choice either of converting or of being exterminated because they are unbelievers. In the same vein goes Roosevelt's reply to Eisenhower, rejecting Eisenhower's plea to be allowed to make contact with the German resistance in order to shorten the war. Quote, I have not yet made up my mind whether or not to destroy the German nation. End quote. 
That means that Roosevelt explicitly wished to keep open the option of genocide. At the beginning of this section, we suggested that the idea that the ideology of democracy ought to be imposed on the whole world entails a totalitarianism in potentia. The two so-called world wars provided examples of that spirit. See the quotes from Nisbet, 1986, in Remark on Motivation of Decision-Makers in General, above. No wonder that American democracy welcomed the Soviet Union as an ally, that the USSR was declared to be a special case of democracy, and that Roosevelt shocked Churchill by writing to him that the USSR was a model, whereas Britain was imperialistic. Roosevelt couldn't care less that Stalin, after his invasion of Poland, was murdering considerably more Poles than Hitler. Shortly before his death, he pronounced that the Poles would not mind being administered by Moscow. Churchill, alarmed by Stalin's mass murdering of the Polish elites, in vain tried to make FDR recognize Stalin's enormous war crimes. The case of Poland is another illustration of the thesis that a democracy is not a reliable protector. The claim that the enemy country, in modern parlance the conflict partner, lacks a democratic mindset has become a central part of the war propaganda. Indeed, the one-man-one-vote rule, the cornerstone of modern mass democracy as a convention, appears to be connected with the military perspective. What legitimizing argument can be given for a particular selection criterion? In the military perspective, unqualified franchise, the theoretical doctrine that membership in a particular species ought to be taken as a criterion of selection, appears justifiable. In other plausible perspectives, it is but a trivial, ad hoc gambit designed to make votes appear homogenous, as we have argued in the section Natural versus Artificial Method of Social Choice above. Headcounting is simple, but the results do not have any deeper significance. In an economic perspective, the state is conceived as analogous to a joint stock company. Hence, the criterion that suggests itself for the distribution of voting rights is how much somebody has invested how much risk he takes, how much he contributes to the national income. Such a distribution is just according to the suum quique rule. What a citizen has at stake is his property, and in this respect there are great differences among citizens. Those who would risk much in case of war will exert pressure on the government not to take risks, to be peaceful. Votes weighted according to risk to material possessions and or according to contribution to the national income or to the contribution to the tax revenue will lead to a plutocratic system. Market-oriented classical liberals will resist bellicose politicians. In a military perspective, the risk-taking or sacrifice requested from a citizen goes far beyond property in the sense of material possessions and involves also life and body, the self-ownership in a Lockean sense. Since everybody has only one life, and in this respect individuals are indeed alike, all ought to get the same voting right. This is just according to the treating like cases alike rule, 
which applies to all cases where a given cake has to be distributed, a given burden shared. It also has the advantage that the people get the feeling of participation mentioned above. As soon as the military perspective has become irrelevant, that type of legitimizing argument loses its plausibility. Hence, plutocratic tendencies should appear, and a revision of the one-man-one-vote rule suggests itself. Today, however, unqualified franchise has a ratchet effect, a special case of the benefit ratchet effect. Redistributive benefits, once given, are politically impossible to revoke. In democracy, as we practice it today, it is impossible to replace the membership in the human species axiom by another equality axiom. A look at the incentive structure makes it obvious that those who would oppose it most vehemently are the political parties, since they are the main beneficiaries of the system, the system that makes the state the loot of political parties. The unqualified franchise axiom has become a central item in the catechism of the new political religion. Unlimited democracy tends to lead to a totalitarian democracy. At any rate, the idea that the one-man-one-vote rule establishes a connection between war and democracy can contribute to explaining the phenomenon of the warfare-welfare-national state, Roosevelt's lasting endowment to future generations. Since the problem of justifying selection criteria for voting rights would lead us outside our central topic, let's just make some remarks. In antiquity, qualified franchise, Solon, was abandoned for unqualified in the Athenian democracy of Cleisthenes as a war preparation. The Prussian three classes franchise was abandoned in 1917. Unqualified franchise and worker participation were introduced in order to motivate the population for more war efforts. During the Weimar Republic, Public finance experts suggested the introduction of qualified franchise. Hayek's two-chamber system is a mix of democracy and meritocracy. Each system has its problems. Designing a constitution of liberty is relatively easy. Finding the conditions under which it is plausible that such a constitution will be introduced and respected long enough to do any good. This is the problem. Perhaps an unsolvable problem, since it is essentially the problem of making collective choice compatible with liberty. Pre-democratic thinkers like Pufendorf and Immanuel Kant evaluated democracy, immunized against critique by recourse to the will of the people, as despotism. The majority of the founding fathers of America appear to have shared Kant's pre-democratic emphasis on the separation of power. Since, as mentioned, the concentration of power is war-promoting per se, the bellicosity of democracy is reinforced when it has become the state religion. In this view, wars must not occur. If, nonetheless, they do happen, then that is a crime for which non-democrats are to be blamed. The very possibility that there might be non-democracies in this world makes the opponent in spay automatically an aggressor against democracy. The original U.S. Constitution adopted the pre-democratic concept of the separation of power, and thus it rejected parliamentarism, 
stressed genuine confederalism and implicitly adopted secession rights, which at the time appeared so obvious that unfortunately that stipulation was not spelled out in the document. In modern times, constitutional reality in the United States is a caricature of what the Founding Fathers wished to bring about. In continental Europe, political parties tend to form a cartel, something that can clearly be seen in the Federal Republic of Germany and in the European Union, which is on the road to becoming a taxing cartel of states for maximally exploiting its citizens. Democracy as state religion influences both domestic and foreign policy. The way in which the competition among political parties is conducted strikingly demonstrates that the metamorphosis of democracy from a convention into a quasi-religious system serves the established interests. New parties can be excluded from beginning simply by labeling them undemocratic unbelievers, whatever they may profess. Competition in that area is abolished. In October of 2002, the president of the EU's commission, Prodi, declared the stability criterion of the EU of 3% to be nonsense. Thus, the last barrier of the Maastricht Treaty was abolished. This ushers in a competition between borrowing states in producing nationally debts and inflation while collectively distributing the cost. Comparison of Public and Private Security Production A Model and Thought Experiment Violence Agencies Public or Private Security is defined as the probability to be able to cope with the maximum possible menace. The higher the probability, the higher the degree of security. What is to be protected is property in the Lockean sense, i.e. body, life, material possessions. The problem of appraising potential public and private providers of security is mainly a principal-agent problem. If a private security is powerful enough to cope with the problem of defence, will it not tend to become state-like? Exercising his freedom of contract, a liberty, the rational individual will check which agency makes the best offer. Higher security at the same costs, or the same security at lower costs. The state may be the provider, but it does not have to be the state. In a world where security production is privatized, a discussion of the peaceful democracy's thesis would be pointless, since the state has disappeared. Let us look at the conceptual background of the theme security production, public or private. A power holder employs violence specialists in organized form, for internal security, the police, and for external security and military forces. We all live in states, but in part also outside of the state, from offshore banking to internet contacts. A corollary of the definition of the state as the last instance of power against which there is no appeal to another instance, see section Some Anthropological Considerations on War previously, is that the state is a territorial monopolist in violence. Its main raison d'etre is extracting taxes from the people living in its territory. What distinguishes the state from a band of robbers? 
It is the most powerful and hence the most dangerous of all bands of brigands. It originated the brigandage, and it is a stationary bandit. This is the third differentia specifica of the state compared to a band of brigands. It should be kept in mind that the state is an abstract organism. The government is its agent corporation. In some contexts, it is justifiable to treat government as a unit as if it were an individual. However, in some other contexts, one has to attend to the various individuals embodying the government, since these individuals cannot have identical interests. There is no principal difference between internal and external security. The production of external security is a necessary byproduct of a state. The state has to protect its tax base against potential rivals, other governments. Roads, too, are such a byproduct, necessary to move the military forces and to get easy access to the taxpayers. Likewise, internal security is a byproduct, but serious attention is paid to it only when a deteriorating security situation begins to threaten the tax income of the state. With respect to internal security, trust in the state as provider has largely disappeared. Private police has become a growth industry. In the US, for example, 1.6 million security personnel are privately financed and cost about $52 billion per year. In Germany, the privately financed security personnel outnumber the taxpayer-financed. The most shining examples are the gated communities. That the public is willing to pay private providers so much shows that the government has already lost a part of its monopoly in violence, and that certain functions that the government has usurped are being re-privatized. Other functions of government have been taken over by intergovernmental or non-governmental corporations. By contrast, with respect to external security today, the only violence agency we know is the state-employed military forces, which hence are paid coercively by the taxpayer. Hence, national defense is the piece de resistance of the statists, who claim that the state is indispensable. Every violence agency has protective and aggressive aspects. According to classic contractarian theory, the state is a protective state and nothing else. Protection of property, body, life, material resources, etc. However, it is obvious that Leviathan, once the people have handed over their arms to it, can commit aggressive acts against those who have given him his limited and strictly defined mandate. It turns out that the state has more aggressive than protective aspects, and that it is aggressive all the time by exploiting its taxpayers far beyond the resources it would need to fulfill its protective function. It has become a stationary bandit. By contrast, a private security agency cannot turn against its own clients, since they are paying customers, and the agency finds itself in a competitive market. Only a monopolist can do that. If a private security agency can afford to commit aggressive acts against its own clients, it has turned into a state or a state-like structure. It all depends on whether or not there is competition, the best means to tame power. 
The state is Janus-faced in principle. With progressive democratization, it has progressively overstepped its mandate and taken over more and more functions. It has become primarily a provider state. Classical liberals did not even protest against this development toward a productive state as a principle. In addition to this, the state squanders the resources it has extracted from its citizens. As mentioned above, in mass democracy the state is simply a mechanism to enable the winning coalition to exploit the rest, the losing coalition, without violence. In this sense, democracy is really peaceful. Instead of government of the people, by the people, for the people, democracy has become, in the memorable words of Arthur Seldon, government of the busy, by the bossy, for the bully. Of the politically inactive people, by the politically skilled people, for the politically organized people, the vote-providing interest groups who have the power to blackmail the vote-catching politicians and who always clamor for more redistribution. The government clearly serves aggressive interests. Stock-taking of the present situation As mentioned above, the internal security produced by the state is deficient. In practice, only the elite of the political class and some VIPs are really protected. In external security, the European states have relied on the Pax Americana since the end of the 1940s, when, for a time, Germany had become the glacis of the US's defense. The US itself has engaged only in aggressive wars, and it has been highly interventionistic. Vietnam, Somalia, and Kosovo, just to name a few well-known cases. After World War II, there was a multitude of wars, but only wars between states of the fourth or third rank. As a monopolist, the state devotes little attention to the demand side, whereas a private security agency has to attend to it. In the context of mass democracy, vote-catching politicians know that an increase in social expenditures pays off, whereas an increase in military expenditures does not. Hence, it is likely that the quality of the state-provided product will be low and the costs will be high, and that also in this area the state will not work as efficiently as private providers could. The Defense Agency Model for Comparing Public and Private Security Production on Theoretical Level First, a model is presented for individual agents. Then, the question is raised whether or not the model can be extended to collective entities. The model does not have recourse to any value judgment, nor to an image of man, and its assumptions, all descriptive sentences, appear realistic. The type of situation is a three-person game. An aggressor, A, a defender, D, and a bystander, C. Assumptions 1. Two together are stronger than one alone. Two can prevent that one dispossessing them, and two can dispossess one. 2. D owns some property, and the property of D, the potential booty of the aggressor, as well as the property of A, if any, is divisible. 
3. Both aggressor and defender are free to attract allies. 4. Minimal rationality, e.g. the appraisal that something is better than nothing. 5. D is willing to pay for security, and A is willing to pay for assistance in aggression. 6. The Pactar Sunt Servandar principle is respected by both A and D. The Incentive Structure For an attack to be plausible, we should also assume 7. That D the defender is richer than the aggressor, which will apply in most cases. And to simplify the model, we assume 8. That A is propertyless. Comments on Assumptions the assumptions are unproblematic. One is trivial. It is explicitly stated to stress a feature of the situation. In the section, Practical Evaluation of the Democratic Method, a model of democracy as a three-person game was outlined, with reference to Jassé. The democracy model assumes also that each vote has the same weight, the one-man-one-vote rule. Three is inspired by Jassé's critique of Hobbes, it is fairly obvious, except in perverse framework conditions. 4 is a reasonable assumption about the psychology of A and D. Everything else would be classified as psychopathic. 5, too, is an assumption about the psychology of A and D, which appears reasonable. Cases where it is not realised do not seriously reduce the model's realm of applicability. 6. Presupposes a minimal morality, which may be safely assumed for normal, in the statistical sense, cases. If a social order is not respected in most cases, that order is likely to disintegrate, because in it, non-simultaneous exchanges are too insecure to take place, and in an order relying solely on spot exchanges, people would have to starve. Since we do not assume an efficient ultimate enforcer, assumption 6 is necessary. The assumption of an enforcer would be problematic, and defending it would require a digression on the topics of state and ordered anarchy, i.e. lead to a problem shift. In 3, we made the reasonable assumption that both A and D are free to attract allies. Hence the key question is, which coalition is more probable? probable in the sense of both statistical frequency and propensity probability. Let us consider two relevant type cases. Case 1. A coalition in favour of attack. If C supports A, they together can dispossess D. In order to avoid quarrels over the booty, they will probably agree to a 50-50 deal. Hence, the realistic expectation of utility payoff, gain or avoided loss the side would get if it won the fight, is half of D's property. Extreme Solutions The maximum payoff for C is almost all of D's property. According to Assumption 4, A will prefer getting a tiny fraction over getting nothing at all. In extreme cases where A wants to attack D independently of any consideration of a possible material payoff, he will be satisfied even with nothing. His payoff will be psychological, for example, glee or reduction of pain of envy. Case 2. A coalition in favour of defence. If C supports D, 
A gets nothing. C gets a reward, which may include A's property, if A has any. D may offer C up to half of his property, less than the property of A, if any, because this is what C would maximally get if he chose to join the attacking coalition. Extreme Solutions The maximum payoff for C is almost all of the property of D, less the property of A, if any. In the limiting case, a pessimistic D, in order to avoid an attack that would dispossess him entirely, may even prefer keeping a tiny fraction of his property to not paying C, according to assumption 4 above. It is likely that a rational C would be interested in finding out the maximum of the expected payoff that he possibly can extort, for example, if C is a mercenary. Thus, he will make repeated inquiries at A and D, and hence the price of security production will escalate up to the extreme solutions. In the end, an indifference point will be reached where A and D offer the same amount to C. In this case, the payoff in both extreme solutions is the same. To make the model as simple as possible, it was assumed that A is propertyless, assumption 8. If so, C would get the same amount whether he joins the attacking coalition or the defending coalition, as argued in the extreme solutions. In a market situation, both A and D would rationally pay any price, A for obtaining a tiny fraction of the booty, and D for keeping a tiny fraction of his property. Hence, it turns out we need another criterion to assess the probability of C's choice. It should enable us to assess the probability that C, as a rational actor, will join the defense coalition. Externalities provide such a criterion. For C, a good reason for joining the defense coalition is that he recognizes that one day he may himself be in a situation where he has to defend his property. This is the case if he either is not propertyless or expects to have property later on. If he joins the aggressive coalition, he thereby makes property less secure in the social order in which he lives, including his own property, and in general he contributes to undermining the institution of property. His choosing to form a coalition with the aggressor would produce, as unintended consequences, negative externalities that he cannot avoid internalizing himself. Also, the converse holds. By joining D, the defender C creates positive externalities from which he himself will profit. He will lower the cost of security production in general. Of course, in the short run, the profits C could make by joining A could be larger than the costs he incurs. However, this may turn out to have been a short-lived advantage, for which he may later have to pay dearly. For many, it may be tempting to explore the possibility of transposing the model from individual players to collectives, to conceptualize A, D, and C as groups, firms, or organizations. C may be, for example, an organization of well-armed mercenaries or a privatized professional army. If you try that approach, you will ask what is likely to happen if further bystanders enter the scene. Since the incentive structure is the same for all bystanders, they will compete against each other as security providers. Competition will, here as everywhere, lower the costs. 
in this case, the costs of security production. Thanks to competition, the escalating process is reversed. The maximum expected payoff is deflated because in a competitive market, free private market, free from state interference, the minimal price will be found out. Thus, in the end, any defender D will have to give up only a tiny fraction of his property to a potential C, a security provider, powerful enough to ward off a possible aggression, in order to pay the price he charges for his assistance against a potential aggressor. The collectives that want to make provisions for their security needs will shop around in the market for security production. The extended Model 2 does not make recourse to any subjective value judgment and does not make any unrealistic assumptions. It seems to show that an effective, efficient private security production is not only feasible, but plausible. Is the picture we have drawn too rosy to be true? Is there a hidden catch? Unfortunately, there are at least two. First, the step from the individuals A, B, C to collectives is not justifiable in principle, since the members of the collectives have various interests. The approach turns out to be incompatible with methodological individualism. Not infrequently, the politicians at the top turn out to be aggressors who implicitly wage war against members of the societies they govern. Witness the deceit and propaganda lies exemplified in the historical case study by Joel, outlined earlier. Hence, the assumption of minimal rationality has to be interpreted differently for the political leaders, persons who do not bear the costs of the consequences of their decisions, and for the group governed. History shows that the Pactar Sunt Servandar principle applies to powerful states only so long as there is a possibility that the transgressor of the principle be called to account for his action. Aggressor states will break it whenever they think they can do so without fearing costs, punishment. Think of the Hitler-Stalin Pact of 1939, where each of the parties to the contract prepared war against the other as early as the 13th of November 1940, Molotov's visit to Berlin, where he submitted Stalin's requests. Which party began the shooting war was largely a matter of historical accident. Whether to call it an assault or a preventive strike is but a value judgment from a particular perspective. Second, there is a real, not merely potential, risk that a powerful defense agency may eventually become a near-monopolist, and hence become progressively more like a state. Mercenaries have sometimes taken over the state. After all, states originated in brigandage, or in a mix of defense agency and brigandage. In summary, our contracur, we have to abandon an approach that looked promising unless we assume that the incentive structure for the top people in a private defense agency will be drastically different from that in a state-like structure, unless we are willing to add that risky assumption to our list of assumptions. Some remarks on the possible or likely decline of the state. In the post-World War II period, the situation has been changing, slowly but steadily. Major wars have disappeared, mainly because of the nuclear deterrence. 
Nuclear weapons might become more and more irrelevant because sooner or later counter weapons may appear, like the National Missile Defense and Theater Missile Defense programs. Ocean-going navies are disappearing. The only exception being the U.S. Sometimes the arms race appears to be self-stultifying. For example, the U.S. B-2 bomber is so expensive that there are scarcely any targets justifying the risk of its deployment. Conscription, a modern form of slavery, has almost disappeared. It was abolished in the United Kingdom in 1960, in the United States in 1973, in Belgium in 1994, and in France in 1996. They all put their trust in all volunteer professional forces. The FRG may soon be obliged to replace conscription by other forms of national service. Politicians seem to take the Arbeitsdienst of the National Socialist German Workers Party as their model. The states have become peaceful because they have run out of people willing to sacrifice themselves on its behalf if called upon. The deployment of the NATO air force in the Kosovo war showed that the primary interest was to avoid casualties due to enemy action. The deployment of ground forces was ruled out from the beginning. States that have become partially impotent are not likely to engage each other in major hostilities. With respect to internal security, the citizens' trust in the state has largely vanished. This is shown by the growth of the private security industry. We mentioned that the number of such firms tripled in Germany from 1984 to 1996. And that in 1995, the industry's turnover in the United States totaled 52 billion dollars per year. Another sign is the emergence of gated communities from South Africa to the U.S., where their number reached 30,000 in 1997. If that development gathers momentum, it may lead to less politics. In summary. We witness a decline of the state's willingness and capability to perform its most elementary function of providing security. In view of the felt impotence, states give up part of their independence by forming unions like the European Union. By forming such taxing cartels of states, they make it more difficult for their citizens to find escapes. The private security industry seems to extend its services. From internal security to include also external security, as Creveld mentions, the range of services that firms of mercenaries offer is astonishing, and in some cases, security firms count governments among their clients. Some standard questions coming from the military, as proponents of the privatization of the army. Libertarians must be prepared to answer some standard questions from the military. The people living in a state or region find themselves in a situation with certain insecurities or potential threats from powerful neighbor states. The first task of a military planner is to identify where an attack has to be feared and how to meet it if need be. Then he must make a description of the potential enemy and an inventory of his military potential. Using the present situation as a starting point, we notice that research and development of a first-rate military power is enormously costly. 
For instance, to reduce costs, the U.S. Air Force produced scarcely any hardware and focused on software, a decision that proved to be right. The aerodynamically superior MiG-29 was no match for the fighter planes with a more powerful radar. Unless a private defense agency could afford such costly adventures, which seems doubtful, it could not compete with big nation-states as we know them today. At any rate, the potential customers for private security services enter the market for military services with certain concrete demands. They have observed that states, under the political pressure of the lobbies of the armament industry, act in such a way that a particular system is established. First, military advisors are sent to a country, then follow arms sales to those countries, and eventually a big nation-state gets itself entangled in the net of that system and finds itself in a war at the other end of the world, as with the Vietnam War mentioned previously. It has become doubtful that the state is the ideal security provider, and it is no longer plausible that it should be the only possible provider. At any rate, the potential customers of private security production will shop around for offers that would satisfy their often very particular security needs. Different countries have different defense needs, often highly specialized needs. Private suppliers of external security production must make it plausible that they can meet the highly specialized defense needs of different countries or regions. The products offered must be tailored to the needs of the people living in a given territory with a given geography. Just two examples. Swiss defense efforts have traditionally been focused on the defense of mountains. For example, building tunnels in the mountains to be used as starting strips for interceptor aircraft. The interceptors would land on a landing strip and then be taken by an elevator to the starting tunnels. Hence, there is a need for a very specialized logistic. All this will be very costly for the provider of defense. Natural monopolies will tend to develop. Will there be a real market for such highly specialized services? Or take Sweden as an example. With its long coastline, it cannot use ordinary submarines, but needs highly specialized small submarines and land forces that can intervene quickly and successfully if the enemy has established a foothold on the shore. Great Britain bought Eurofighters instead of tornadoes because it focused on short-distance defense and low-level flying. Moreover, a private defense agency has to cover considerable costs for permanent preparedness. It must be able to match a surprise attack by a potential enemy. The preparedness has to take all possible scenarios into account. Preparedness is costly and may cause a problem for a private security provider. A private defense agency must also be able to meet the strategic inventiveness of the potential attacker. One historical example is the strategic genius of General Guderian, who, in World War II, invented mobile warfare. Tanks in radio communication with a command center and operating with air support by tactical fighter aircrafts. On the French side, only de Gaulle grasped the situation, but his tank forces were incapacitated by the Stukas, another innovation in military technology. A second example was the invention of special pioneer services, which, 
combined with transport gliders, made the French Maginot Line a gigantic misinvestment. The inventiveness in military technology, application of the results of research, depends on the progress in the corresponding basic sciences, and basic or pure science has so far been financed exclusively, or at any rate mainly, by the state, i.e. by the taxpayer, whether he likes it or not. Private research institutions have most often been subsidized by taxpayers' money. Surely the market can offer better and cheaper products, products tailored to the needs of the customer. This is scarcely contested any longer. However, national defense and privatizing the army is the piece de resistance of the statists. At the moment, whether or not private security providers can meet the highly specialized needs of various customers is an open question. At present, private security providers are probably in a better position with respect to low-intensity wars. See the defense agency model for comparing public and private security production on the theoretical level above. At any rate, libertarians must be prepared to answer the questions of the professional militaries. Epilogue The question of the link between democraticness and peacefulness may have to be seen in a new light when the concept of war itself is changing and its boundaries become fuzzy. Conventional historians tend to ignore the economic significance of the use of force. In thought-provoking books, J.D. Davidson and W. Rees Mogg elaborate the thesis that history seems to be largely determined by military technology. They identify eras of civilization, the modern era beginning with the use of the bronze cannon and lasting from about 1500 to about 2000. At that time, we have entered the era of IT technology. Whether this new technology will free the individual from the state's oppression or increase the state's control and be deployed in the war against privacy is an open question. I guess that in the competition between private individuals and agencies on the one hand and state-employed ones on the other, the privately employed individuals will be better motivated. Technological innovations have, as a byproduct, increased the vulnerability of societies. A current conflict changes its nature as it goes. Thus, the targets of Bush II's war against terrorism gets more and more blurred, while the alliance with other states gets more fragile. The concepts of conflict and strategy have to be analyzed. According to Clausewitz, War is the continuation of politics by other means, but also the converse holds. Politics is the continuation of war by other means. More and more non-governmental agents appear on the scene, and the phenomenon of asymmetrical war has become more prominent. A small state or even a group of individuals show capability and willingness to attack an established military power, sometimes even with success. 11th of September 2001. Wars by proxy and low-intensity wars have become more frequent. Most important of all, with the advent of new sorts of violence, the perpetrators of violent acts are more difficult to identify and hence to combat. 
Section 3. Private Alternatives to State Defense and Warfare Chapter 6. Mercenaries, Guerrillas, Militias, and the Defense of Minimal States and Free Societies By Joseph R. Stromberg War and Economics Ludwig von Mises, founder of Neo-Austrian Economics, saw economics as part of praxeology, the deductive science of human action. His student, the late Murray N. Rothbard, once drew up a list of possible subfields of praxeology. One such field was the analysis of hostile action. Our topic lies where economics and hostile action studies meet. Historians and sociologists often bring only second-hand economic theory into their work, although ideally, in Mises's words, quote, general sociology approaches historical experience from a more nearly universal point of view than that of the other branches of history, end quote. Thus, historical sociology, grounded on sound economics, could usefully address issues of war, peace, and statism. Conflict theories of the state are found in Herbert Spencer, Charles Comte, Charles Dunoyer, Franz Oppenheimer, Max Weber, Alexander Rusto, Hugh Nibley, and recent writers like Rothbard, Charles Tilley, and Robert Carnero. Public choice theory rounds out a potential synthesis, along with the newer critical literature on public goods and the British post-Marxist sociology of John A. Hall, Anthony Giddens, Michael Mann, and Sir Ernest Gellner. Substantive Issues Regarding Provision of Security or Defense does provision of protection, security, defense, truly require a territorial monopoly of violence in the hands of the state? Hans Hermann Hopper, Jeffrey Hummel, Dan Garrett and others suggest that security is divisible and manifold, and that the free rider problem proves far too much. Hopper states the central problem as follows, quote, a tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms and will lead to ever more taxes and less protection, end quote. The sheer number of people killed by states in the 20th century, up to 100 million, with more killed in peacetime social reconstruction than in wars, makes one suspect that state-provided security is extremely expensive in all respects, and that meaningful alternatives have been overlooked. One proposal in the literature is for market-based defense, undertaken by competing insurance companies which, in time, replace states. Types of Warfare we may leave aside tribal and feudal warfare, with their cattle-raiding, personalism, and epic poetry. In Europe, traditional war in a system of contending states 
featured manoeuvre and battle between professional standing armies, commanded by aristocratic officers in the service of kings. Such warfare was less costly to both sovereign and society than modern war. Even the fierce competition of early modern times, with larger armies resting on public debt, did not completely alter this picture. According to John U. Neff, in the 18th century War of Don Carlos, fought on Italian soil between Austria and a coalition of France, Spain, and Sardinia, quote, the rival armies met in a fierce battle outside the town, Milan, later Parma. In neither place were the sympathies of the inhabitants seriously moved by one side or the other. Their only fear was that the troops of either army should get within the gates and pillage. This fear proved groundless, end quote. The French Revolution overthrew the old order in warfare and, as Pierre Vandenberger writes, quote, spawned a lethal monster, the Jacobin nationalist state, end quote. Today, we think of war as necessarily involving mass conscript armies, ideological manias, and an ever-growing array of weapons of mass destruction. As Hopper writes, this pattern grew up with democracy, where professional politicians, not subject to traditional monarchical restraints, controlled the monopoly of defense provision. The democracy's 20th century rival, mass incorporating totalitarian regimes bent on social engineering, also broke the bands of the old regime and the laws of war. Other military models, mercenaries, militias, and guerrillas, coexisted, however, with royal armies and mass conscript armies. Security provided by hired forces. Mercenaries played an important role in the politics of Renaissance Italy, where wealthy merchant oligarchies in city-states provided for their defense by hiring soldiers. A number of benefits flowed from this system. The thrifty bourgeois who hired mercenaries could dismiss them when their work was done. The soldier had no great incentive to kill or be killed, and their commanders would jockey for advantage and surrender when they lost it. As British jurist F.J.P. Veal wrote, quote, soldiering became a reasonable and comparatively harmless profession, end quote. Rules were followed, including one that a town could only be sacked if it offered resistance. Jacob Burkhart writes of Jacopo Sforza, a famous mercenary captain, chieftain, who served many local strongmen or condottieri that, quote, in monetary affairs, Jacopo was thoroughly trustworthy. Even after his defeats, he found credit with the bankers. He habitually protected the peasants against the license of his troops and disliked the destruction of a conquered city, end quote. He had three rules. Let other men's wives alone... Strike none of your followers, or if you do, send the injured man far away. Don't ride a hard-mouthed horse, or one that drops his shoe. This seems pretty reasonable for a warrior, but Jacopo's son, Francesco Sforza, 
took political power at Milan, an outcome which illustrates the downside of Italian mercenary warfare. The career of John de Hawkwood, an English veteran of the Battle of Crecy, is illustrative. Hawkwood's famous White Company fought from the 1360s into the 1390s. While Hawkwood kept his contracts and did not switch masters until his job was done, he did become territorial lord over two great estates given him by the papacy in lieu of money payment. Many mercenary captains aspired to become outright political rulers, men on horseback, rather than mere subcontractors in the business of security provision. As H. Herder and D. P. Whaley state, quote, the interests of employer and employed were divergent. The condottieri sought wealth, fame, and a territory of his own, end quote. Worse, cities sometimes felt bound to pay for more soldiers than were actually needed to keep their mercenaries from switching alliance. Niccolò Machiavelli, Republican theorist and military organizer, condemned mercenaries out of hand. From his standpoint, mercenaries were base individuals outside society. J.G.A. Pocock writes that, for Machiavelli, quote, a soldier who is nothing but a soldier is a menace to all other social activities and very little good at his own, end quote. Even if this objection is met, there remains the conceptual problem previously noted, territorial monopoly, even if these bourgeois were successful for a time in cutting their costs. Sometimes, Lewis Mumford writes, quote, the cities employed professional mercenaries to assert their mastery over their rivals. The Pisans were among the first to hire professional soldiers in war against Florence, and their success was so humiliating that the latter city began to lose faith in its boasted citizen army. Florence, a free city, contracted to surrender its freedom a second time in 1322 to the king of Naples in return for his protection, end quote. Militarily successful cities readily gave in, quote, to the temptations of a predatory and parasitic life, alternately repeating the political mistakes of the Spartans and the Athenians, if not the Romans, end quote. In the end, the Italian city-states, whether defended by mercenaries, militia, or feudal levies, succumbed to the intervention of larger territorial states. French invasion of the Kingdom of Naples in September 1494 marks the beginning of the new era. Bruce Porter comments, quote, The debacle of the Italian city-states shows the difficulty of such small firms surviving unbridled war, whereas the case of the Swiss Confederation indicates that economy of scale was not an absolute condition of survival. A small state could survive if its territory was defensible and its population highly cohesive, end quote. Before the French Revolution showed states how to tap deeply into manpower reserves, 
Even large territorial states sometimes employed mercenaries to supplement their regular armies. A well-known instance is British use of Hessian mercenaries in the American Revolution. In late modern times, states have typically condemned the use of military force by any private and unauthorized bodies. In the last two decades of the Cold War, for instance, the Soviet bloc in the UN consistently demanded that mercenaries be defined as criminals. At the same time, they called for extending the protections of the laws of war to guerrillas whom they were supporting. With modern mercenaries, perhaps most noted for their activities in post-colonial Africa, the problem of who pays, actual individual consumers of security or territorial monopolistic states, remains central. One suspects that covert agencies of imperial states that wish to dodge responsibility for certain actions constitute much of the market for today's mercenaries. A recent defense of mercenaries by the novelist Frederick Forsyth is set in the same framework. Forsyth apparently hopes that Western interventionist states, afraid of suffering casualties among their regular forces, will enroll mercenaries rather than give up intervening in other countries' affairs. This would seem to have little to do with the security, protection, and defense of real individuals, their families, and properties. Militias and Security Militia systems characterize republics. Greek city-states and Republican Rome equated citizen and warrior. Citizens had a personal obligation to take part in war. Republican military systems, which typically combined middle-class infantry with aristocratic cavalry, departed from an older Indo-European model which, ideally, excluded economic producers from war. The writings of Aristotle, Titus Livy, and Polybius, and their successor Machiavelli, are the seedbed of Republican theory. Their ideas were taken up by 18th century Americans, in whose war of secession from Britain's empire, both militia and republican ideology played a role. The Second Amendment to the American Constitution reflects the practical and ideological background, although the amendment also enshrines an individual right of self-defense, which grew out of English law and practice. In a survey of colonial and early U.S. legislation, Hummel concludes that local conscription underpinned the militia system until the Jacksonian period when genuinely volunteer units came into being. Given the effectiveness of volunteers in the Mexican War, 1847-48, albeit in temporary regular army units, Hummel asks whether coercion had been necessary for militias. Guerrilla Warfare and Security There is no absolute distinction between militias and guerrillas. Guerrilla warfare refers to tactics and style rather than to pre-existing force structure. It is the way of the weaker side when in internal war, wars of secession, or wars against foreign domination. 
Mao Zedong provided this summary. Quote, when the enemy advances, we retreat. When the enemy halts, we harass. When the enemy seeks to avoid battle, we attack. When the enemy retreats, we pursue. End quote. Guerrilla strategists allow the enemy to advance into the interior, where his supply lines are longer, where he lacks popular support, and where partisans can harass his overextended armies. They force the enemy to exhaust his manpower and resources holding ground, until a decisive battle of annihilation against the weakened invader becomes possible. Yorktown, Dien Bien Phu. Militias, with their smaller size and greater mobility, are well suited for such warfare. Guerrilla tactics are as old as organized warfare. The Roman consul Fabius the Delayer raided and harried Carthaginian invaders until Roman forces could launch decisive battles. The Peninsula War, in which royalist hunters fielded guerrilla bands against Napoleon, is a later example. To complicate matters further, guerrilla war slides over into revolutionary war. Sometimes the revolutionary goal is political secession or avoiding outsiders' rule. Even here, a social revolutionary aspect creeps in, as in the American Revolution, where a well-defined libertarian republican ideology led to reforms that ran alongside the military struggle. Elsewhere, ideologically motivated cadres, especially Marxists, have supplied the political doctrine as part of military struggle. The American Revolution and Guerrilla War William Marina writes that the American Revolution was a successful instance of people's war. The British never grasped what the Americans were up to. George Washington, who leaned towards stylized European warfare and disliked militias, arrived at his strategy to protract the war, Marina writes, almost by accident. Even regular American forces were not very regular to European eyes, and the role of militia units has been greatly undervalued. Americans took advantage of familiar terrain, forests, mountains, etc., and lived off the land while harassing the overstretched foe. They enjoyed mass support. Where they did not, the war became a social struggle, between local Tories and patriots. Thomas Paine articulated the Americans' instinctive tactics, which the British likened to those of Red Indians, and Charles Lee developed both the theory and practice of revolutionary war. Guided by Republican theory, the Americans preferred militia-based forces to the standing armies associated with British political rule. They would raid often enough to confuse the enemy, go home to farm, and then resume the war. Compare Trong Chin, quote, when the enemy comes, we fight, when he goes away, we plow, end quote. This may not have looked like war to the British, but it was effectively the basis of victory. Confederate Guerrillas and Raiders, 1861-65 Southerners may have lost their war for independence, 
by not taking up revolutionary war. The conventional view has been that Confederate authorities failed to centralize sufficiently to keep large armies in the field. As Confederate Commander-in-Chief Jefferson Davis followed a strategy of offensive defense, which, by requiring large regular forces to meet invaders or even to invade enemy territory, likely sacrificed natural southern advantages. These included a large interior, favorable terrain, a population familiar with firearms and able to live off the land, existing militia infrastructure, and popular support. Davis's critics, Vice President Alexander Stevens, J.W.B. DeBow, Governor Joe Brown of Georgia, and Robert Toombs, lamented the government's rejection of the guerrilla option. Historians like Robert Kirby, Grady McWhiney, and Jeffrey Hummel now second the critics' view. By squandering limited manpower and resources in massive, suicidal frontal attacks on entrenched enemy forces armed with modern rifles, Confederate leaders wore themselves out by whipping the Yankees. They also wore out the Confederate people. This refusal to embrace workable tactics has been attributed to fear of social revolution, which would have unraveled existing racial relations, and not just slavery, which some Confederates were willing to sacrifice for independence. Kirby holds that guerrilla war suited the habits and political ideals of Southern society, individualism, personalism, republicanism, decentralization, far better than the West Point war pursued from Richmond. In the Confederate West, Quantrill's raiders practiced guerrilla warfare and tied down significant numbers of Union troops. In Missouri, the war was personal and brutal. One reason, perhaps, why Robert E. Lee called partisan war, quote, an unmixed evil. In the East, the success of Captain John Hunt Morgan and Colonel John S. Mosby, with highly mobile cavalry, led Union commanders to brand them as outlaws. This was essentially a guerrilla war on horseback, and a more intelligent use of horsemen than heroically colorful cavalry charges to wrap up colossal infantry battles. Morgan and Mosby's gentlemanly bearing spared them the opprobrium generally assigned to Quantrill. Davis's last message called on Confederates to go on fighting, freed from the burden of holding cities and territory. It came far too late. As Stevens said, Conservative Southern leadership had sidetracked the people's revolutionary instincts and wasted their enthusiasm. Africana Commandos in the Second Anglo-Boer War, 1899-1903 Guerrillas can be defeated by an enemy even more willing to wage total war than was Abraham Lincoln. This was the case in South Africa. Afrikaners were good horsemen, superior marksmen, and tough frontier dwellers, capable of waging protracted war. They had a pre-existing militia institution, the Commando, led by field cornets who had both civil and military duties. 
These institutions had developed on the Boers' frontier of occupation for 200 years. When war broke out in October 1899, Transvaal and Orange Free State commanders spent their forces in large-scale attacks and sieges. Britain prevailed in short order. As the British prepared to relax, Boers took up guerrilla war, changing the equation. As an ideology, Boer nationalism proved hardier than the underdeveloped Confederate nationalism. Africana units soon put the British where American colonialists had put them two centuries before, as memorably stated in Edmund Burke's speech on conciliation. They could hold territory, but not govern. They were not safe outside their strongholds. The British adopted counterinsurgency tactics, driving Africana women and children into concentration camps, where 26,000 died, and burning and destroying Africana homesteads, livestock, and other property. Boer commanders, facing the destruction of their entire society, made peace and reasserted their nationalism politically. Fatefully, in the 1948 election, a political Majuba Hill for England. As a Boer prisoner put it, you English fight to die, we Boers fight to live. Guerrilla War Theorized There are other wars in which guerrillas played an important role. One thinks of communist-led guerrillas in Yugoslavia, Greece, China, and Vietnam, the Irish Republican Army, and the PLO. These did not all achieve victory, but guerrillas do create major problems for those geared to conventional war. A hard-nosed hegemonic power will follow counterinsurgency doctrine and tactics to defeat such enemies. This will involve war on the guerrillas' supporters, reconcentration, strategic hamlets, massive air campaigns, generally counterproductive unless mere murder is rational, and the like. The power then rails at the bandits and terrorists for forcing it to behave so badly. It is said that guerrillas, by not answering to higher authority, immediately turn to savagery, lower the moral tone, and undermine the rules of warfare. This argument is not exhaustive. When partisans do conform to the rules, their enemy typically proclaims them banditti and outlaws, liable to be shot if captured, thereby giving them no incentive to follow the rules. Certainly in the 20th century, it has been states which notoriously have scrapped laws of war built up over several centuries. Witness starvation blockades, unrestricted submarine warfare, ethnic persecutions, and terror bombing in the two world wars. Do guerrillas commit atrocities? Of course. Can they commit them on the scale of centralized states? Generally, no. In the 19th century, there were few partisan wars to stimulate military thought. In the 20th century, the bond between anti-colonial revolution and guerrilla war has led to much theorizing about the latter. Here, I shall only mention Michael Collins and Tom Barry, 
Ernesto Che Guevara Lynch said to have carried Barry's guerrilla days in Ireland with him on campaigns. Regis Debray, Mao Zedong, Lin Piao, Ho Chi Minh, and Vo Nguyen Gap. A counterinsurgency literature developed as well, some of which ran aground in Vietnam. It is true enough that guerrilla warfare can be brutal, but that is no great recommendation of official organized war. It is said that guerrillas never win without allies. The American and Vietnamese revolutions are mooted. The Confederates and Burrs' lack of foreign support is noted. But the American Revolution certainly did not need France to provide the margin of victory. The Chinese Revolution succeeded with little real aid from its ideological allies. Victory or defeat for guerrillas depends more on morale, exploitation of advantages, weaponry, inventiveness, and the enemy's character. Anyway, foreign assistance comes with strings attached. It has been remarked that American revolutionary militias were effective locally but no good for invading Canada. This localism of militias is actually an argument in their favor, provided one only wants defense. The Anomalies of Defense Implications for Security Provision The late Enoch Powell, classical scholar and Tory MP, wrote that American defense policy in Europe had rested on two pillars. The first held that Soviet Russia was bent upon invasion and conquest of Europe. The second that the invasion had been averted and still continued to be averted by the Americans' commitment to nuclear suicide. This was like, quote, the proof that elephants roam the railway lines because throwing bits of the times out of the carriage window keeps them at bay, end quote. Both were contrary to reason and observation. Lost in Cold War thinking about the unthinkable was provision of security for real people, their families, property, and societies. Now we are back at the beginning. If states are unreliable providers of security, if indeed they are often the main danger to freedom and security, not only for foreigners, but for their own people, how do we provide security while maintaining a free society and avoiding the trap built into state territorial monopoly? As Jeffrey Hummel has suggested to me, this is much the same question as how states arose in the first place. Toward the end of his magisterial history of Republican thought, Pocock writes that abandoning Republicanism would be, quote, the end of the quarrel with history in its distinctively American form, end quote. The end, that is, of efforts to prevent constitutional decay, quote, but what would succeed that perspective is hard to imagine. The indications of the present moment point inconclusively toward various kinds of conservative anarchism, and its end does not seem to have arrived. End quote. Classical liberals and republicans knew that military organization presents grave threats to social peace and freedom. The inadequacy of their chosen solution, written constitutions, has long been apparent. 
mass movements to restore constitutions in the United States or elsewhere are extremely unlikely and would not address territorial monopolistic provision of security. At most, such efforts might buy us a few decades off from living in interesting times. What is at stake is whether we can achieve Mises's free and prosperous commonwealth without seeing it fall back into state monopoly centralysis. In any imaginable world, building free societies involves extreme decentralization, secession, free markets, and free trade. Radically free societies under law have existed. Ancient Ireland, medieval Iceland, and colonial Pennsylvania are examples. Defending Ordered Freedom Against Rising States If we could live in an ordered anarchy or a federal republic so decentralized as to be near anarchy, how would we keep ourselves, our properties, our several territories, and our society safe from external and internal threat? Economic theory sets the problem out with utmost clarity. It cannot solve it unaided. It is here that we look to our liberal and republican forebears and historical lessons. The gravity of the quest was underscored by Jacob Burkhart, quote, an echo of the terrible convulsions which accompanied the birth of the state, of what it cost, can be heard in the enormous and absolute primacy it has at all times enjoyed, end quote. Morton Freed writes that, quote, the emergence of a state quickly catalyzes its hinterland so that a military necessity of defense is precipitated at the moment the state is born. Thus, the leap to state occurs in a field of such leaps so that newly born state A finds itself not too far from newly born state B. Whether referring to the states defending itself against the hinterland, or to the hinterlanders' need now to defend themselves from that state, the point is well taken. An interesting test case occurred in South Africa. In 1848, Great Britain proclaimed the Orange River sovereignty as an extension of Britain's frontier. A few Boers, who saw themselves as loyal emigrants from the Cape Colony, supported British rule. Most Boers resisted or ignored British rule. Some simply preferred existing arrangements with the neighboring Sotho king Moshweshwe, from whom they obtained land and with whose people they traded. Many English merchants favored accommodating Moshweshwe. Other Boers, less partial to Moshweshwe, also opposed British authority. By dogged resistance, disaffected Boers blocked British state building and British officials who would not spend money and manpower to sustain the sovereignty withdrew in 1854. Nonetheless, a successor state, the Orange Free State, emerged, controlled by Boers and other British settlers who spied the rent-seeking opportunities, despite the recalcitrance of Burrs still happy with the patriarchal near-anarchism of their mart-scappy organization. That a local state emerged, called forth by interference and example, 
is not surprising. Public choice insights about political plunder doubtless apply. Branding Boers who rejected British rule, or even the rule of fellow Afrikaners, as free riders would hardly have phased them. In their minds, they had provided their security, and British offers of help rightly seemed mere imperialist rationalizations. Republican Reservations At this point in our quest, where Confederate Republicanism and anarchist liberalism overlap, we find ourselves admiring militias, though we may ask that they be voluntary rather than conscripted. After all, in Old Testament times, the faint of heart were exempted from fighting, but presumably did something useful for the cause. Hence, we would indeed wish to plan ahead for the resort to guerrilla tactics against some power's decision to invade our homes and properties. This brings us to the absent redneck problem. This was put more elegantly by the great French liberal Benjamin Constant in the 1820s. Constant attacked fellow liberal Charles Dunoyer's utilitarianism, which foresaw economic solutions for all problems. As Ralph Raker writes, Constant highlighted, quote, a certain inner contradiction in the free society, which can only be compensated for by bringing into play anti-utilitarian forces, such as religious faith, end quote. Freedom's very success in bringing prosperity lessens the number of those, Greek clefts, Scottish Highlanders, who have the skills and personal virtu with which to defend it. Many in the American heartland fear that, in the event of a dramatic assault on their freedoms, serious help may not be forthcoming from the Manhattan literati, however conservative some may be. They imagine having to do it themselves, and wish, therefore, to keep their means of defense under the Second Amendment. Absent rednecks may be a problem, but urban environments per se do not prevent creation and upkeep of militias. In the Great Secession Winter, it was militia companies, with links to the Democratic Party, in the towns of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York, which floated the idea of a Middle Atlantic Confederacy as a way of avoiding war between North and South. Certainly Switzerland, as modern and urban as it wishes to be, is justly famous for its defensive militia system. In any case, an ongoing contest over freedom might bring forth unforeseen allies from sundry social strata. The Economic Perspective Once More Che Guevara understood the usefulness of decentralized command and tactical flexibility, as his writings show. Yet, as Cuban Minister of Economics, he labored under the delusion that socialist economic planning and calculation were possible. Edmund Burke famously said that the state is not, quote, a partnership agreement in a trade of pepper and coffee, calico or tobacco, or some other low concern, to be taken up for a little temporary interest, and to be dissolved by the fancy of the parties, end quote. Given the actual history of the 20th century, 
we might wish to reject Burke's state mystification in favor of his idea of loyalty to our own little platoons. This latter Burkean theme bears linking up with the economic analyses of Molinari, Rothbard, and Hopper. Thus, we come back to those unrepublican mercenaries, now repackaged as security or defense companies. But how do we get there? To put it another way, the political and sociological problems still need solving so that the economic solution can come into its own. Conclusions New Model Non-Armies We start from the truism that defense has the advantage. Already in 1861, McWhiney notes the rifle gave defenders at least a three-to-one advantage. And once people are driven to guerrilla tactics, defeating them raises the ratio of attackers to defenders to somewhere between four-to-one and six-to-one or higher. Successful pacification and occupation may require a ten-to-one superiority. This shift costs, in all senses, massively to the attackers. This is why Britain drew so much manpower from Canada, New Zealand, and Australia to defeat a few Dutch farmers. The final outcome, of course, still hinges on such factors as weaponry, geography, ideology, morale, and leadership. But determined defenders may outlast all but the most powerful, wealthy, and vicious foes. Much is said about industrialized war from 1861, but a turn toward lighter, more flexible weaponry and organization represents not de-industrialization, but instead different choices of goals, strategy, and tactics. Certainly, defenders of ultra-minimal republics and anarchies will use products of modern industry as available. But resorting to primitive means, man-traps, sharpened sticks, falls within praxeology's formal ends-means logic, which applies available means to problems at hand. This spotlights another advantage of genuine defense, the possibility of pinpointing one's enemies, about which Murray Rothbard wrote, Guerrillas are able, potentially, to distinguish friend from foe, and even friend from neutral. They need not wallow in the moral swamp of total war, which finds carpet-bombing civilians morally acceptable. Carol Quigley wrote in 1966 that, quote, any drastic increase in the ability of guerrilla forces to function would indicate an increase in the defensive power of existing weapons, and this, in turn, would indicate an ability to resist centralized authorities and maintain and defend small group freedoms. End quote. Do such weapons exist? I believe they do, and we must recall that when Quigley wrote, the outcome of Vietnam was still in doubt. Certainly, the success of anti-Soviet guerrillas in Afghanistan, whatever the role of U.S. assistance, resembles Vietnamese guerrillas' success against Americans, and both wars struck blows comparable to what the Boers did to the British Empire. In each case, defenders shifted significant costs, in the broadest sense, onto the attackers. 
would an announced intention to resort to such methods have a deterrent effect? Probably not, since would-be attackers always think themselves excused from historical pattern. On the other hand, no one has invaded Switzerland lately. Real Defense – A Shifting Reality I assume that minimal states and anarchies can do without nuclear bombs, cruise missiles, stealth bombers, and expensive systems suited to world conquest or universal meddling. As for the force structure of mere defense, I believe we would see some rough combination of militias and insurance companies, perhaps not as mutually exclusive as we think, with resort to mass-based guerrilla war, however and by whomever organized, in extremis. As for free riders, the American Revolution tells the tale. Had we sorted all that out, we would never have fought. Hummel throws a great Rothbardian so-what at the problem. He notes that, without free riding, civilization itself would not exist. Successful defense of freedom may require the anti-utilitarian forces of which Constant wrote, nationalism, religion, the desire for freedom, hatred of the enemy, social pressures to do the right thing, and so on. Whether this represents enlightened self-interest may depend on the selves people have. Some who normally speak for utility-maximizing economic man would be the first to coerce their fellows in wartime. Those who value freedom will forego coercion and use other means to overcome free riding. Given the costs associated with state monopoly defense, those dead millions for a start, a little free riding seems a small price. One might think that, having just defeated the strongest power in the world, Americans would have rejected the Federalist song and dance about foreign threats and looming internecine war, and the consequent need for a more powerful state. They got the stronger state, which then got them periodic wars, proving doubtlessly that the new state had saved them from other unknown perils beyond contemplation and enumeration. And elephants do roam the railway lines. It may be that the Federalists craved American empire rather than security, and the anti-Federalists, therefore, had the better half of the argument. A final comment. Some years ago, Samuel H. Beer attempted to prove the Wilson-Story-Lincoln theory that the American Union was older than the states comprising it. He spied in the Continental Congress the germ of a new sovereign power over the states. The slightest look at the Congress's trials and tribulations puts that theory to rest. But as a center for exhortation, coordination, and the like, the Congress did useful work overcoming the free rider problem during America's protracted war.